of the Apostles, a commentary by Brother Paul Cresswell. The Preface As a teenager, I had a, the wonderful experience of discovering the truth of God and was baptised at Washwood Heath Ecclesia in Birmingham. Shortly after, an older brother, who was a veritable patriarch in the meeting, came up to me and said, Paul, hmm, well, I suggest you model your life upon the Apostle Paul. At the time, I quailed at the prospect. It was not until I retired from work, however, that I did become involved in mission work and at times preached the truth in places in the South Pacific where there were no brethren or sisters. This activity led me to study the exciting period when the gospel was first sounded in all the world and conquered paganism with the help of the Spirit. I found that Whilst others had written helpful commentaries on the Acts of the Apostles, there was not in the Brotherhood a book of the kind that I was looking for, a book that really opened up Luke's work, but at the same time was a readable narrative for brethren and sisters. So if there was going to be one, I decided that I would have to write it. What follows was originally published as a long series of articles, long because Acts is the longest book in the New Testament, a long series of articles in the Christadelphian from February 2007 to November 2009. Several have asked if these articles could be made available in book form. And so, after some minor amendments, here is the finished work which I hope will be helpful and enjoyable read for many. And above all, to be to the glory of God. The Acts of the Apostles, then, the preliminary. Acts of the Apostles naturally follows on from the Gospels and covers about the same length of time, 33 to 34 years. Assuming that Jesus was born BC 4, which is regarded as the latest possible date, because Herod is known to have died that year, then Acts commences about AD 30. Whereas the Gospels record the preaching of Jesus Christ, Acts records the preaching of the Apostles, principally Peter's preaching to the Jews and Paul's to the Gentiles. Acts shows us how God wants us to preach. Today some talk about the foolishness of preaching, that we must move with the times by adopting different methods, etc. But in Acts we have God's method of spreading the word of life. Here is preaching that is blessed with spectacular results, an example for all who follow. In Acts, we see an early fulfilment of the words of the Lord from John 14. He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The greater works that the Lord spoke of in bringing the gospel to so many and to such far-off places are recorded in Acts. But the truly greater works are yet to be done when our Lord returns. In preaching to the whole world and bringing in everlasting righteousness so that there is one Lord and his name one. Acts can be divided into two sections, namely the Gospel to the Jews, Acts 2, 
to 12. The Gospel to the Gentiles, Acts 13 to 28. With regard to the Jews, the Lord said when he was crucified, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. After his resurrection and the preaching of the apostles in Jerusalem, they did know what they were doing and were without excuse. For they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spake, Acts 6 verse 10. Instead, they set up false witnesses to accuse him. After all, the same strategy had led eventually to a successful conviction in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. What had succeeded with the master would surely succeed with one of his disciples. And with the same forgiving spirit displayed by his master, Stephen, we read, kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Acts 7, verse 60. Jews and Judaism became the real opponent to the brethren in Christ in those early days. As Paul wrote, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins alway. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost, the first of Thessalonians 2, verse 15 and 16. It was this intransigence of the Jews that led to the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. Then Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Acts 13, verses 46 to 48. The key. The key to the development of the story in Acts is found in chapter 1, where we read, Ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Spirit is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. The word of God was to spread out like ripples in a pond from the centre in Jerusalem. And in fact, this has continued to far countries in a way that the apostles could not then have imagined. Acts follows the story of the Apostles' preaching. In Jerusalem, chapters 2 to 7. In all Judea and Samaria, chapter 8, verse 1 to 25. Unto the uttermost part of the earth, chapters 8, verse 26 to 28, verse 31. And so we read in Acts 8, verse 1. And at that time there was a great persecution against the ecclesia which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So, preaching to Judea and Samaria was not a deliberate decision of the apostles, but was forced upon the ecclesia by the scattering of the flock due to persecution. This verse is interesting also, in that it reveals that preaching was not confined to the apostles, but was an activity in which all members of the ecclesia were involved. None were exempt. There is a lesson here for us today. 
So the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1. This is the preparation for preaching. And Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, the introduction. The former treatise evidently refers to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1. There is then little point in considering, considering alternative authors for Acts, as Luke is the most obvious and appropriate author of these two longest books in the New Testament. He was an eyewitness of most of the events recorded in Acts, and an immediate friend and confidant of those involved in the events that he did not witness. Luke wrote to Theophilus about AD 60-62, to just before Paul's release from prison in Rome, Acts 28, verse 30-31. Who was Theophilus? His name means lover of God. And being referred to as most excellent in Luke's Gospel, tells us that he was probably an important official, a convert well known to Luke. Though little more is known about him, how thankful we can be for his spirit of enquiry that led to Luke writing such a valuable and exciting treatise, Logos, for us. A treatise of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Those words remind us of Ezra, who also had prepared his heart to seek the Lord of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel's statutes and judgments. Ezra 7, verse 10. In Acts chapter 1, verse 2, Luke confirms that the Lord's commands to the apostles were given through the Holy Spirit. A point accepted now, of course, but necessary to confirm in those early days of preaching to unbelievers. These commandments to preach are given in Matthew 28, verse 19, and John 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Though spoken to the disciples, the command was obviously intended to be a command to all who believe their teaching, so that the work would continue to the uttermost parts of the earth. It would have been impossible for the apostles to do this unaided. The apostles, of course, were chosen, and in appointing a replacement for Judas, this choosing by the Lord was not overlooked, even though the selection was by lot in chapter 1, verse 24. The word passion in verse 3 means suffering. Despite the suffering, the Lord's resurrection cannot be gainsaid, for it could be infallibly proved by apostolic witness. He showed and the Greek word means to be present or stood with me, as in Second of Timothy 4, verse 17, he showed himself alive, being seen of them forty days. This period of time definitely excludes any mistaken identity on the part of the disciples, just as his extreme suffering definitely excludes the idea that the Lord only swooned and revived in the cool of the tomb. During this time, the apostles were able to feel his wounds and observe him eat, which resulted in their absolute conviction that God had raised him up, having loosed the pains of death. We might ask, why were these proofs only made to his disciples? 
would not his revelation to independent witnesses be more effective? No, it would not. Because, as the Lord said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Luke 16, verse 31. To these faithful witnesses he had spoken about the kingdom of God, but not the name of Jesus Christ, you might like to compare Acts 8, verse 12. Partly because that was a living experience to these chosen men, and partly because, until he had risen, salvation in the name had not been confirmed. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Lord asked his disciples to not return to Galilee, but remain in Jerusalem until the promise of the Father was received. This promise had been made earlier by the Lord. He said, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that it may abide with you for ever, even the Spirit of truth, which the world cannot receive, because it seeth it not, neither knoweth it, but ye know it, for it dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. John 14, verses 16 to 17. And again, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send it unto you. And when it is come, it will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. John 16, verse 7 to 11. This spirit came upon them as described in Acts 2, verse 4. Peter, when explaining his action in baptizing Cornelius, his relations and friends, referred to this promise of the Lord again in chapter 11, verse 16. The disciples' minds, however, were filled with another promise that of the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, and the times or the seasons that would precede it. With us, they were well aware that he changeth the times and the seasons, he removeth and setteth up kings, as Daniel says in chapter 2, verse 21. Before the time came to set up his king, however, there must be a long time of preaching to prepare the people for the coming again of their Lord. And for that preaching to be successful, a special gift of God's power would be necessary in the early days to confirm the word with signs following. And so they were to tarry in the city of Jerusalem till ye be endued with power from on high. Luke 24 verse 49. This command of the Lord even then foreshadowed the eventual scattering of the ecclesia to preach the Gospel. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 to 12. Promise of the Lord's return. This said, the Lord was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. Acts 1 verse 9. In a typical foreshadowing of the Lord's ascent, Moses had been told, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud. Exodus 19 verse 9. And then we read, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. 
Exodus 24, verse 15. According to Luke 24, verse 50 to 53, it was while Jesus blessed his apostles that the cloud of the divine presence received him and angels accompanied into heaven the one who was now their Lord also. But like Moses, he will come again. The disciples were no doubt shocked by their Lord's disappearance from their sight. But as always, the consolation was at hand. Two angels in white apparel, and you might like to compare John 20 verse 12 with the angels in white apparel, two angels spoke to these men of Galilee, Acts 13 verse 31, of their Lord's bodily return from heaven when he would restore the kingdom to Israel. In that day, every eye of Israel will see him as he comes with the clouds of heaven, Revelation 1 verse 7. In that day his feet will stand again upon the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 1 verse 13 to 26. Appointment of a Twelfth Apostle. Once again assembled in the upper room in Jerusalem, the eleven, with the women who followed him, with Mary his mother and his brethren, continued with one accord in prayer. But there were twelve tribes, and now only eleven apostles. What was to be done to address the imbalance? When all one hundred and twenty disciples were gathered together, Peter took the lead. Even though not then in receipt of the Spirit, Peter knew his scriptures. He knew that they were to be fulfilled, as Christ himself had explained, quoting Psalm 41 verse 9 in connection with Judas' betrayal. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of mine bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Compare John 13 verse 18 when Jesus lifted up the heel of Judas and washed his feet. In this way, Peter introduced the idea of appointing a twelfth apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, which they had inherited. Inherited is the Greek word kleros, heritage or part. So they had inherited the work of preaching the word. Acts 6 verse 4. Judas had not only guided the soldiers sent to arrest Jesus, Luke 22 verse 47, but had purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Since he had returned the thirty pieces of silver he received in payment for his treachery, the reward of iniquity can only refer to his stealing from the back for the poor, John 12 verse 6. There is a seeming contradiction in the records of the way in which Judas died. Peter says Judas fell in such a violent manner that his bowels gushed out. Matthew 27 verse 8 says that he hanged himself. We can imagine that he did hang himself over a rocky eminence, but that in his struggles the rope, or perhaps girdle, that he used broke, and he fell headlong, so ending his life in a most unpleasant way. The Lord had said, Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And Judas' fate confirms for us, in a rather graphic way, that the wages of sin is death. What irony! 
that because it was the price paid for innocent blood, the priests used the money Judas had returned to buy a potter's field, which from the time of Jeremiah had been referred to as Akeldama, that is to say, the field of blood. Matthew 27 verse 5 and 8 and Jeremiah 19 verse 6. Peter, to justify his proposal to appoint a twelfth apostle, cites Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8. These two psalms refer to David's enemy, Ahithophel, but find their fulfilment in the enemy of David's greater son, who, like Ahithophel, also hanged himself. The word bishopric, from the Greek episcope, means office, as in Psalm 109. Evidently, to qualify for this position as an apostle, a man must have accompanied the Lord from the time of John's baptism, and be a witness of the resurrection, having seen the risen Lord. The apostles did make this witness in a powerful and convincing way, so that many believed, and great grace was upon them all. Chapter 4, verse 33. Some, ranging from the Pope to the head of the Mormon Church, claim to be apostles today. But these are false apostles. They are liars of the Satan class, soon to be exposed as such by the Lord on his reappearing. Matthias is chosen. Two disciples were nominated who fulfilled the requirements. These were Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justus, and Matthias. We get the impression from the detail in the record it was thought the office would most likely go to Joseph. But this was not to be. It was imperative that the choice was the Lord's, and in the absence of direct spirit guidance, for the spirit was not then given, the choice was made by prayer and ballot. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. How simple and direct was their prayer. It was straight to the point, without any flowery or unnecessary words intended to impress. Surely this is a model of how such prayers should be, and an example of what we should do before recording any ballot for office holders in our ecclesia. After all, it is by prayer that the Lord had chosen his disciples. Luke chapter 6, 12 to 13. We should also note that it was not the apostles who made the appointment, though, no doubt, they had the authority to do so. All disciples were involved in making the appointment. This is not democracy. Prayer makes all the difference. As it says, that he may take part, kleros, of this ministry, and they gave forth, that is, voted, their lots, clerus, and the lot, Kleros, office, heritage, fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Brother Thomas has an excellent section on apostolic succession and the qualifications of an apostle of Christ in Elpis Israel, part 2, chapter 1. There is an enlarged application of this word, Kleros, in the first of Peter, chapter 5, verse 3 where Peter describes all the members of the body of Christ as God's 
heritage. Ministers of the church, with pious pride, claim that they only are God's heritage, the kleros or clergy, not the flock who are the laos or laity. And in this way they make the word of God of non-effect. Luke uses an interesting phrase in recording this appointment. He says that Judas was replaced, that he might go to his own place. This phrase is an echo of Numbers 24, verse 25, that describes Balaam's return from attempting to curse Israel for reward, but in fact blessing it. Like Judas, Balaam, we read, loved the wages of unrighteousness, 2 Peter 2, verse 15. By contrast, Matthias, now the twelfth apostle, was chosen to serve in righteousness. But we ask the question, was Matthias' appointment valid? And another question, was Peter's action too precipitate? We can confidently answer yes to the first question, it was valid, and no to the second question, the action was not too precipitate. Matthias' appointment, which made up the full number of the apostles again, is confirmed by Luke, see chapter 2 verse 14 and 6 verse 2. Eventually, there would be more than 12 apostles. There would be 12 to the Jews, and for example, Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, the Holy Spirit is given. Pentecost was fully come, for it was now early morning. Pentecost was formerly known as the Feast of Weeks, and was held in the third month as a memorial of the giving of the law, when Yahweh came down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Exodus 19. The feast was held fifty days after Passover, and since the risen Lord had been with the disciples for forty days until he ascended to heaven, Pentecost occurred only ten days later. The feast was remarkable for the offering of two leavened loaves of bread. This was unusual. Leaven was not normally acceptable. But Leviticus 23 verse 17 is specific. They shall be bacon with leaven. They are the first fruits unto the Lord. The meaning is clear. At Pentecost, those who were the first fruits of preaching the gospel were baptized. The two leavened loaves speak of Jew and Gentile baptized into Christ. The leaven of sin are being arrested at that point. James, in chapter 1, says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. To facilitate the effective preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit filled the twelve as they were gathered together in one place, probably the upper room. They were gathered with one accord. Unity is essential to the effective preaching of the gospel, now as it was then. And in the beginning, unity did prevail, as we see in verse 46. 
The Lord exhorted us to unity by loving one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, he said. And so the Spirit fell upon them from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, with the result that they spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. There were even cloven tongues of fire as at the burning bush, but they were not burned. This phenomenon had also occurred at the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness and at the dedication of the temple. Here was the dedication of the foundation of the true house of God. And so the words of John the Baptist were fulfilled. He shall baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire in Matthew 3 verse 11. His word became as a burning fire in their hearts that could not be denied. The word sent indicates that this was not just a flash of fire, but it seems that the fire remained on them for a while, explaining why Peter was able to say, which ye now see and hear, in verse 33. And what the people heard spoken were languages the disciples had not learned, and which they did not know. The Greek word for tongue here is glossa, from which some moderns have invented the word glossolalia for in unintelligible ramblings that deceive the hearts of the simple, but are definitely not the sound words of the Spirit's wisdom. By contrast, the true Spirit of God gave the disciples suitable words to speak that were intelligible to governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles, and brought all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you, from Matthew 10 and John 14. This is something that no modern claimant to spirit possession has ever been able to do. Acts chapter 2, verses 5 to 13. The multitude come together. The multitude included a number of devout men who were in Jerusalem at that time to worship at the feast. Many were confounded to hear the apostles speak in their own language. Here is an echo of Babel, where God confounded the language and divided the nations. Through the gospel, that process will be reversed when, instead of men making a name for themselves, God's name will be paramount. Amongst the places mentioned was Parthia, where the Tower of Babel had once stood uncompleted, a monument to the folly of ambitious men. The list of places mentioned by Luke bears a striking similarity to the list of places to which Peter was later to write his first epistle. So the multinational multitude heard in their own language the wonderful works of God. These mighty works were the birth, death and resurrection of the Son of God. Their reactions varied from doubt to mocking. Reactions repeated wherever the apostles taught, for example in Athens in Acts 17 verse 32. Nothing has changed with time. We meet the same reactions today. But let us not lose heart with perseverance. Some will believe, 
a remnant will be saved. Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 20 Answer to the charge of drunkenness How strange that the apostles should be accused of drunkenness. A drunk can barely speak his own language, let alone that of another. Such accusation made by those who should have known better is almost blasphemy against the Holy Spirit from Matthew 12. The reaction of the multitude called for an explanation. Once again, Peter takes the lead. He firstly answers the charge of drunkenness. It was but the third hour of the day. Nine o'clock in the morning was too early for them to be drunk. Having dealt with the charge of drunkenness, Peter takes the opportunity to preach salvation in the name of the Lord. He does so by first citing Joel chapter 2 of coming judgment. No, this was not drunkenness, but the fulfilling of the prophet's Joel's words in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 to 32. Peter says that the days in which he spoke were the last days, that is, they were the last days of Judah's commonwealth that would end in AD 70 with destruction and slaughter wrought by the avenging Roman legions under Titus. There would be blood and fire and vapour of smoke in this bitter war of Yahweh's judgments upon his people. Before that time elapsed, the spirit given to the faithful would cause visions and dreams that would enable the faithful to prophesy. This word tells us plainly that the gift of tongues is not the unintelligible speech, but sound teaching of the word after the example of the apostles at Pentecost. What is more, this spirit would be poured out on all flesh, implying that both Jews and Gentiles would benefit, as Isaiah says in chapter 56, verse 3 and 6. Joel chapter 2 verse 23 makes it clear that there would be an early and a latter reign of spirit teaching. The early reign began with John, continued in Christ, and was extended in the apostle spirit-breathed teaching. Second of Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. The latter reign in the first month, Pentecost was actually in the third month, the latter reign in the first month was given to the saints at their Lord's appearing. We'll flood the world with the Spirit's teaching after Messiah has been revealed to the world and the northerner driven away, Joel 2 verse 20 and verse 28. In that day in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. For the Lord will be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Zechariah 13 verse 1. In AD 70 there would be no deliverance. Jerusalem became a trap from which the unbelieving would not be able to escape. Judea would pass away with the great noise of battle and the fervent heat of fire as Peter explains in the second of Peter chapter 3. When the notable day of the Lord finally came to pass at the hand of the Roman legions, 
the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace, like Sodom and her satellite towns in the days of Abraham. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. The name of the Lord. It was not those who kept the law who were saved, but whosoever, that is Jew and a Gentile, shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.31 and Joel 2.32. But who is the name of the Lord for salvation? The only name given among men for salvation is Jesus, which means, Yah shall save, or, as Peter said, shall be saved. This salvation would not come by works of law, but by calling on the name in the obedience of faith. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, in verse 22. This was a direct reference to Jesus Christ and no other because this was his title written on the cross by order of Pilate. That he was of Nazareth presented a difficulty, because a common saying was, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? John chapter 1 verse 46. Yet the scripture had foreshadowed this when it was revealed, He shall be called a Nazarene. Isaiah 53 verse 2 to 3 and Matthew 2 verse 23. The title is used seven times in Acts. The disciples even became known later as the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts 24, verse 5. This Jesus was approved of God by signs, as was Moses before Pharaoh. In the same way, the apostles were also approved, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will, Hebrews 2 verse 4. Peter says these signs God did by him, by which they should have deduced that Jesus is Emmanuel, Isaiah seven fourteen, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. By this means, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God was fulfilled in all that was done, even in crucifixion by wicked hands. The Son of Man goeth as was determined, determined in Isaiah 53 and Zechariah and so on. Crucifixion is the most terrible of deaths, and it was very bold of Peter to say, Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But God hath raised him up, providing incontrovertible proof that he is the Saviour. It was not possible that he should be holden of death, because the continued death of a sinless man is not just, Romans 3, verse 25 to 26. Peter says, having loosed the pains of death, in echo of Psalm 116, verse 3. The expression relates to the birth pangs of a new child born from the womb of the grave, so that the Lord is the firstborn from the dead, Colossians 1.18. Resurrection. David had foretold his Lord's resurrection in Psalm 16. Here was the Old Testament proof necessary as a basis for Jewish belief. 
Paul also uses this psalm in the synagogue at Antioch to prove the resurrection of Christ, that's in Acts 13. Our faith, too, is established by this fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, by which Jesus Christ confirmed the promises made unto the fathers, Paul says, in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist's expression, Thine Holy One, is drawn from Deuteronomy 33, verse 8, where Moses, in blessing the tribe of Levi, says, Let thy Thummim and thy Urim be with thine Holy One, whom thou didst prove at Massah. Evidently, Jesus' resurrection, following complete obedience to his Father's will, qualified him to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek with the future Thummim and Urim. Having said so, Peter began to speak freely of the patriarch David. Patriarch because he was the first father of the line of kings of Judah. Peter's hearers were probably agitated by now, so he changes the subject only to come back to it with greater force later in his discourse. He says that David's Psalm 16 could not refer to David himself because David's tomb was evidence that David was still dead. Jesus of Nazareth also had been dead and buried in hell, Hades, that is, the underworld, the grave. But unlike David's, Jesus' sepulchre was definitely empty. Therefore David was a true prophet when he spoke of the resurrection of Messiah, knowing that God had sworn to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne, the second of Samuel's sin. It may be that by the use of the word translated bowels in Samuel, the Spirit was indicating that this son would not just be from David's loins, but from the womb of a Jewish virgin descended from David. Psalm 132 verse 11, for example, says, Of the fruit of thy body, thy womb, will I set upon thy throne. And see also Luke 1 verse 42. God had sworn with an oath to David. Only to Abraham and David were such oaths made of God. Genesis 22, 16-18 Conviction began to grow in the minds of Peter's hearers that rumours of Jesus' resurrection were true. It remained for Peter to bring forward one final proof. Peter finished his reference to Psalm 16, verse 11 by saying that Jesus was at the right hand of God exalted. The word exalted is taken from Isaiah 52, verse 13. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. This idea refers back to Isaiah's vision. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, Isaiah 6, verse 1. So by his resurrection and ascent to the right hand of his father, the Lord had received the exaltation which the Spirit of Christ in the prophets had promised to him. As a result of his exaltation, 
the disciples had received the Holy Spirit. There could be no denying this, for the people saw and heard it. Here was proof indeed that the Lord had been raised, and therefore his is the name of salvation. Still, Peter turns again to their scriptures to clinch the point. After all, a threefold cord is not easily broken. This time Peter cites David Psalm 110 verse 1, which the Lord had so effectively used to silence his enemies in Matthew 22 verse 41 to 46. The psalm not only promises that Messiah would sit on God's right hand, but that he would do so because of the actions of his enemies in Israel. These, the psalm continues, would become subject to David's son as his footstool when he comes again to reign in Zion as high priest of the order of Melchizedek. The citation of this psalm led Peter to the inevitable conclusion of whom the name of salvation is. God, he says, hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. The evidence of Jesus' resurrection and ascension to heaven, coupled with undeniable scripture support, made Peter's case overwhelming. The Apostle Paul similarly uses the resurrection to confirm Jesus Christ's divine authority in Romans 1 verses 3 and 4, saying that he was declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Pricked in the heart. They were pricked in their heart. This phrase indicates not just a tinge of guilt, but that their guilt was deeply felt, for the same word is used in the phrase, a spear pierced his side in John 19 verse 34. Troubled in heart, they responded to Peter's preaching of the gospel of the saving name, saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That is, to be saved. Without any prevarication, Peter responded, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. In Scripture, the word repent means not to be sorry, but to change one's mind or purpose. The sign of this being baptism in water, where the believer dies to his old way of life and is, in a figure, raised to a new life of holiness and righteousness. Of course, water is but the medium. True baptism is an immersion into the only name given under heaven whereby we might be saved. This is the name, Yahweh, I will be, whom I will be. This is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For the Father's name is firstly fulfilled in Emmanuel, God with us, and subsequently is given to us through the Spirit's teaching, Matthew 28, verse 19. In this way, we are begotten of water and spirit, Christ says to Nicodemus. Or to put it another way, he that believeth, and that he means begotten of spirit, 
and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. Jeremiah explained that remission of sins, together with God's law written in the heart, is the essential element of the new covenant. That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. This is the passage alluded to by the Lord in the upper room when he said, This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Those who truly repent and are baptized shall receive the gift, the gift, the Greek word doria, of Holy Spirit. The gift given to the faithful is, of course, salvation. The Lord himself said to the woman at Jacob's well, If thou knewest the gift, Doria, of God, he would have given thee living water. The water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. John 4, verses 10 to 14. Paul says, But not as the offence, so also is the free gift. For if through the offence of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift, Doria, by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offences unto justification. He also says, In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, Doria again. For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift, Doria, of God. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift, Doria again, the second of Corinthians 9, verse 15. The promise of salvation. Having digressed to convince his hearers that the only name given for salvation is centred in Jesus of Nazareth, Peter now returns to Joel chapter 2. He says, For the promise of salvation, verse 21, the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. That's in Joel 2, verse 21 also. That the promise Peter speaks of is salvation is readily appreciated from the context in both Joel and Acts, and from Peter's repetition of this teaching in his second epistle, where he writes, According as his divine power, the Holy Spirit, hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, repentance, whereby are given unto us great and precious promises. By these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. This is the gift of Holy Spirit. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, or as Peter has said at Pentecost, save yourselves from this untoward generation. And we're citing the second of Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, 
that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Galatians 3 verse 14. Obviously here, the promise of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the blessing or promise made to Abraham. Peter's words at Pentecost amount to a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. For the promise was given to that generation of Jews that heard him, and to their children. But then the gospel was taken to the Gentiles afar off, as Moses and Isaiah had foretold. Moses said, I make this covenant and this oath with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day, the Gentile believers. Deuteronomy 29, verse 14 and 15. To which Isaiah added, Peace. Peace to him that is afar off, the Gentile believers, and to him that is near, the Jews, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Isaiah 57, verse 19. Paul brought these words together when he said, Lo, we turn to the Gentiles, in Acts 13, 46, and 28, verse 28, and wrote, But now in Christ Jesus ye, Gentiles, who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2, verse 13 and 17. Thankfully, this promise of salvation for Gentile believers is not limited to two generations, for Peter adds, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And we are called. Peter's pleading with his fellow Jews came to an end with his appeal to save yourselves from this untoward generation, which he knew would end in blood, fire and vapour of smoke. The Apostle Paul also quotes this same passage from Joel chapter 2, when he writes to the Ecclesia in Rome, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all them that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10 verse 1 and verse 9 to 13. What Peter had done at Pentecost was reveal who the name of the Lord for salvation is. The name Jesus had not been revealed to Israel before. The 3,000 who were baptized that day received Peter's word gladly. Some uncertainty might have been expected, given the opposition of the rulers and the natural resistance to change from law to grace. As it was an immediate and joyful response that followed Peter's discourse, it reveals something of the people's dissatisfaction with the current system and the power of the scripture brought forth to support the resurrection. Here was the beginning of the greater works the Lord had said his disciples would do once he had ascended to heaven, John 14 verse 12. The number of believers increased very rapidly in those early days, as we find in Acts. It is slower today, sadly, but that is because the way of life has been corrupted and people are disillusioned. The phrase, Apostles' Doctrine, which Peter uses, 
surely indicates the first statement of faith, with its consequent moral obligations of fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. The extent of their fellowship is seen in the remarkably selfless and generous sharing where we are told that they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. With the words, Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality, Romans 12 verse 13, the Apostle Paul encouraged the same spirit of sharing and supporting the needy to continue to this day. Meanwhile, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Only an, a minority in any ecclesia were given spirit gifts by the laying on of the hands of the apostles. The gifts were for the benefit of the body of Christ, not for personal benefit. And generally a brother, and sometimes a sister, in Christ received only one gift, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 11, and verse 28 to 31. These possessors of a gift then became the star eldership in their ecclesia in those early days, as we find in Revelation 1, verse 20. And then chapter 2 of Acts closes on the uplifting note of unprecedented unity amongst the believers meeting each day in the temple to preach and worship and, according to their Lord's command, to break bread in remembrance of him from house to house, literally, at home. Sadly, this practice became subject to abuse, particularly at Corinth, as we read in the first of Corinthians chapter 11. As the gospel went out into all the world, it became more appropriate to hold the breaking of bread weekly on the first day of the week. It would then coincide with the Lord's appearing to his disciples after the resurrection. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3. A lame man healed. In chapter 2 we have seen miracle, witness and response. In chapter 3 we see miracle, witness and chapter 4, opposition, which is a different kind of response. Acts chapter 3, verse 1 to 11. Healing a lame man. Peter and John went into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. This is either 9 a.m. or by Jewish time reckoning 3 p.m. 3 p.m. seems the most likely because Peter and John were soon arrested and put in the hold, for it was now even tied. Acts 4, verse 3. In Acts 10 verse 30 we read that it was at this time that Cornelius prayed and an angel appeared to him. The hour of prayer was when the priest burnt incense on the golden altar in the temple. It was while Zacharias was burning incense at this altar that the angel Gabriel appeared to him to announce the coming of John in answer to Zacharias and Elizabeth's prayers. This was in Luke chapter 1 verses 8 to 13. It was a most appropriate time to work a miracle of healing as an opening to preaching, for that hour saw the temple courts busy with prayerful worshippers. There would be a vastly more numerous crowd present than would normally be the case. Entrance to the temple on the east was through the gate called 
beautiful. This gate is said to have been about 23.5 metres high and 18.5 metres wide. It was made of Corinthian brass and ornamented with silver and gold. And though the temple was so rich, it was still a place of beggars. Peter and John were great friends and had been partners in fishing. They were now even closer companions as apostles in the service of the Master. As they approached the gate beautiful, a lame man asked them for alms. This man had been lame since birth and therefore would never have walked properly. His body had developed in a twisted and awkward fashion. Here was evidence that the law could not save, for he lay at the gate of the temple every day. He was a continual reminder to worshippers of the insufficiency of the law. In fact, he was more than 40 years old, we're told in Acts 4 verse 22, a period of probation reminiscent of Israel in the wilderness. It might seem strange that the Lord himself had not healed him when we realise that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them, as we're told in Matthew 21 verse 14. But there is purpose and wisdom in all things done and not done. Now Peter said, Look on us. They could give neither silver nor gold, for their Lord had said, Provide neither gold nor silver nor brass in your purses. Matthew 10 verse 9. In any case, Judas had stolen the money. The apostles knew that only Christ could save, and salvation cannot be my money or works of law, but by faith in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter, perhaps recalling this miracle, wrote later, Ye were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. So the lame man was healed in the name. Proof, if further proof is necessary, that Jesus is risen. Meanwhile the man, leaping and walking, praised God. Everyone who saw must have immediately recalled the messianic words of Isaiah 35, verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart. And they were filled with wonder and amazement. The people ran together to Solomon's porch, greatly wondering. For that the healing had occurred here was no coincidence. It was at this very place that Jesus had been questioned whether he was the Christ. His response that God was his father had led to the accusation of blasphemy and an attempt to stone him, recorded in John 10, verse 22 to 31. The Holy One and the Just Peter launches straight into an explanation of the miracle and an accusation that they had rejected God's Holy One in favour of a murderer. The healing had not been done by their own power or holiness, but in the name of the one revealed to Moses at the burning bush. Exodus says, the God of your fathers. Peter says, our fathers. The name of their God is, I will be who I will be. The name is prophetic of the one who Yahweh will be, Jesus his son the Holy One and the Just. Peter can say Holy One on the authority of the angel Gabriel, 
announced to Mary that her son would be that holy thing, or holy one, Luke 1 verse 35. Holy one and just are titles of Messiah and reflect the quality of his character. Because the natural man opposes God's will and all fail, death is the result. Therefore there has to be a saviour, one to do what the Creator could not do, die for the sins of the world. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, Paul says in the second of Corinthians 5 verse 19. He will also become in us all that he is himself in due time. He is a just God and a saviour who had declared, there is none beside me, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Isaiah 45, verse 21 to 22. This verse from Isaiah is applied by Paul in Philippians 2 to Jesus Christ. He says, The Father has glorified his Son Jesus. I will be, is now, I have become. Just as they had denied Moses, who gave them the name, and whom Yahweh had sent to deliver them, so they denied Jesus the name-bearer, who had been sent to be their deliverer. But God had raised him from the dead, for he alone overcame sin and upheld God's righteousness. He is the one foretold in the servant prophecies in Isaiah chapters 42 to 53. In the chapter in Acts that we are reading, in verse 13, son is the Greek word pais, meaning boy or servant. He is the Holy One, of Acts 2, verse 27, who was not suffered to see corruption. Even a man with an unclean spirit had recognised this truth when he cried out in the synagogue at Capernaum, I know thee who thou art, the Holy the righteous, one of God, Mark 1, verse 24. He is the king who shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And this is his name whereby he shall be called, the Lord, or Yahweh, our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, verses 5 to 6. Unexpected confirmation of his righteousness had come from Pilate, who three times declared, I find no fault in him. So they killed the prince, author or chief leader of life, whom God had raised from the dead. He is the author, the same word, and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12 verse 2. A prince and a saviour for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, Acts 5 verse 31. He is Messiah the Prince, who shall be cut off, but not for himself, in Daniel 9, verse 25 to 26. He is Michael the great prince, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, Daniel 12, verses 1 to 2. His name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, 
Isaiah 9 verse 6. For him the east gate of the temple is reserved. As we read in Ezekiel 44 verse 3, it is for the prince, the prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. That God raised him from the dead is final and conclusive proof that Messiah of the prophets is Jesus of Nazareth. It is in his name, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, that this man in Acts 3 was made strong and given perfect soundness. Through the same name, by faith, we will likewise be strengthened by the mercy of our Father at the last day. This is the name whereby he will bring all mankind, through faith in the name, into harmony with himself. It is the name of God's character, God's purpose and God's salvation. When Israel finally begin to understand this at his appearing, they will say, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, acknowledging him as they did when he first rode into Jerusalem on the foal of an ass. Now Luke 19. Repent ye therefore, for the time being, Peter gave them the benefit of the doubt. Through ignorance ye did it, he said, as did also your rulers. Even though it had all been prophesied beforehand by the prophets that Christ should suffer, and of the glory that should follow, as Peter mentions in his first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. But those things which God before had shown by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. In the revised version of this quotation it says, His Christ, following Psalm 2 verse 2. Finally, Peter made his appeal. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, for there could be ignorance no longer. Here is how to become a constituent of the name, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. These are the blessings of Messiah's reign, when he shall come down like rain upon the mown grass, as showers that water the earth, Psalm 72. The time of restitution of the all things promised to the fathers of Israel, in Psalm 8, verses 4 to 9, and 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, and in other places. Things spoken since the world began, and the word world there is the Greek aeon, meaning the Mosaic Age. Even Moses spake of another prophet to come, one like unto himself who would speak the words of God in Deuteronomy 18, one who would bring a new covenant and a new order to God's people. The words and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people, are similar to Deuteronomy 18 verse 20, but are in fact from Genesis, Genesis 17 verse 9 and 14. Peter is saying here that to refuse to hear the words of Jesus is a failure to comply with the Abrahamic covenant, which was confirmed by Christ, Romans 15, verse 8. It is the Abrahamic covenant, not the Mosaic, 
which will be fulfilled in the restoration of all things. And if one is not a part of it by baptism, that person will be cut off. And not only Moses, but all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after have spoken of this theme. In fact, it is Samuel's mother Hannah who is the first in the Bible to use the term anointed or Messiah. The Jews to whom Peter spoke were the children, the Greek Pais, the children of the covenant God made with Abraham. Under you first, God, having raised up his son or servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Isaiah had said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. The Lord is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. And I will preserve thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, to establish the earth, to cause to inherit the desolate heritages. Isaiah 49, verses 7 to 8. How richly blessed we are, no, not born of Israel, to be partakers in Christ of the promises made to the fathers of Israel. Genesis 22:18, Galatians 3, verses 8 and 9. Our apostle, referring to Abraham and David, gives us two illustrations of this blessing in Romans 4. Paul wrote of Abraham's belief being accounted for righteousness, that is, sins forgiven. Otherwise we never could be righteous. And wrote of David saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Romans 4, 1-8 Forgiveness of sins is fundamental to the Abrahamic covenant as we read in Jeremiah 31, verse 31-34. to And if sins are forgiven, then it is impossible to continue in sin, which would be a denial of God's blessing. This is to be in the name, to be one with the Father, assimilated to divine energy and power. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4, Arrest, Trial and Defence. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22, Arrest and Trial The priests and Sadducees, together with the captain and the margin, the ruler of the temple, were grieved at the apostles preaching Jesus. After all, they had brought about his murder, but it had failed to suppress his teaching. Secondly, Peter and John taught Jesus' resurrection, and the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. Worse, Peter accused them of murder, and all had to admit the tomb was empty. So about three hours after Peter and John had gone up to the temple at the hour of prayer, they were arrested and put in hold, for it was now eventide, it says. Nothing more could be done until the morrow. The arrest didn't stop the other disciples from preaching. 
It continued unabated so that soon 5,000 believed. The next day, Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander and priests of the high priest's family came together to find cause to accuse Peter and John. Annas had kept the title of high priest, though his son-in-law Caiaphas now held the office. John was probably Rabbi Johanan ben Zakai, who was renowned for his wisdom and who had foretold the destruction of the temple from Zechariah 11 verse 1. Alexander Lysimachus was a very rich Jew who gave large gifts to the temple. He was also a friend of King Agrippa. These, with all the council, met to bring the whole weight of the Lord against two Galilean fishermen who refused to be overawed, even though faced by the men who had forced Pilate to crucify their Lord. This was yet another unjust trial. There were no charges made. There had been no law broken. Sentence could only be passed if the apostles could be enticed to speak ill-advisedly. By what power? By what name? These were questions similar to those asked of Jesus in Matthew 21. They were looking for a weakness, an inconsistency in their reply. The priests only knew one power and one name, their own. They asked, have ye done this in contempt? Anyone could see these followers of Jesus were ignorant and unlearned men. Even so, the rulers could not resist the wisdom by which they spake. Their wisdom came from inspired words put into their minds, filled with the Holy Spirit. Had not their Lord promised, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father that speaketh in you. Matthew 10 In John 16, Christ had said, When the Comforter is come, it will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the rulership of this world, this cosmos, is judged. None could deny that the impotent man had been made whole, literally saved, as in Mark 5 verse 34 and 10 verse 52. Something which the law could not do. Peter makes it clear that it is unjust to arrest a man for doing a good deed. He turns the tables and instead of being accused, boldly becomes the accuser himself. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. In other words, healing was by the power and the name Yah shall save.
Messiah of Nazareth, whom they rejected, but God accepted. What is more, Jesus Christ is alive. His resurrection is a fact, and the miracle is proof of it. Having so said, Peter puts forward the scriptures to convince or condemn his hearers, depending upon their reaction. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of a corner, from Psalm 118, verse 22. The Lord had cited the same passage against them, adding the words, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, in Matthew 21. They had perceived that he spake of them. They had forgotten the incident, and now his disciples had the temerity to continue the insult. The corner is the corner foundation stone from which the rest of the building is measured and constructed. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel had said to Joseph, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Peter emphasizes again that salvation is in his name, and no other, echoing Joel chapter 2, verse 32, as he did at Pentecost. It was boldly done. And the priests and elders marvelled and took knowledge that these unlearned and ignorant laymen had been with Jesus. The Lord had thanked his father that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes in Matthew 11 verse 25. It is true that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many a noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It seems that the lame man had been arrested too, and because he stood with them, the rulers could say nothing against it. Obeying God rather than men. So the council conferred amongst themselves, but had to admit that a noticeable miracle had been done, and they could not deny it. This time there could be no paying off of soldiers to cover up. What could they do to these men? There was no question of guilt or innocence. No charges had been made. Nor was there any thought of surrendering to truth. The rulers were now completely without excuse. Their only question was how to stamp out this preaching in the name. They resorted to threatening, a sure sign of their impotence. And Peter, who had denied his Lord before a servant girl, didn't even flinch. Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things we have seen and heard. John also wrote of what he had seen and heard of the word of life, and thereby has showed us that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, John writes in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 2. 
Satan desired to have Peter and John, that he may sift them as wheat. But to Peter the Lord had said, I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. It was a different Peter now he was converted, and consistently so. For he also said on a later occasion in chapter 5 verse 29 of Acts, We ought to obey God rather than men. After further threatening, the rulers let them go. Because all glorified God for that which was done. We now learn that the healed man was above forty years old. These were the number of days the spies had searched out the land, and consequently the number of years of Israel's probation in the wilderness. It often takes a generation to reveal who is faithful and who is not. Having been released by the council, Peter and John recounted their experience to the Ecclesia with the result that prayer was made to their Lord which made heaven and earth. Acts chapter 4 verse 23 to 31 Prayer for boldness to preach The word Lord is despotes, that is, the God of absolute power. You'll see it in Psalms 95 verse 3 and 47 verse 2. He had made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. This is a significant phrase in keeping with the need for the psalmist had added to his prayer, which executeth judgment for the oppressed. Psalm 146 verse 6. Jeremiah, that persecuted prophet, had used the phrase in his prayer, adding the words, There is nothing too hard for thee, in Jeremiah 32, verses 16 to 20. The prayer of the assembled ecclesia continued with the words of Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. This psalm is quoted quite a number of times in the record. It particularly introduces us to the important truth that Messiah will also be the Son of God. The prayer, however, refers to Jesus as thy holy child, Jesus. The word for child is pace, meaning servant. It's really thy holy servant to Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, Christ or Messiah. From Psalm 2, verse 2, linking what had been done with Isaiah's servant prophecies. But what had been done, though did done because of envy, was still by God's determinate counsel, as we've seen in Acts 2, verse 23. The prayer continued with the request, not for safety and protection, but that with all boldness they may speak thy word. The answer to their prayer was immediate. The place where they were assembled was shaken, probably an earthquake. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spake, the word is translated as prophesied, in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 3, they spake the word of God with boldness. 
Here was a remarkable testimony to the truth of Isaiah's words. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. From Isaiah 65, verse 24. Though the fullness of those words is, of course, still in the future. The same boldness to speak the word is seen in Paul, in Apollos, and in the deacons, in 1 Timothy 3, verse 13. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37, the Apostles' Fellowship. The unique fellowship mentioned earlier in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, was repeated. A generous spirit prevailed in appreciation of the blessing given of salvation in the name. A blessing we have also been given, and to which we should respond similarly wherever there is a need. A niggardly person, however, does not reveal an appreciation of the love of God in Christ Jesus, but an evil eye, as is pointed out in Proverbs 28, verse 22, and by the Lord in Matthew 6, verse 23. With great power the disciples witnessed to the resurrection. Their power was in the Spirit-given word, for the Spirit is a teacher of righteousness, as we've read in Joel 2, verse 23. Great grace, the word carries favour, was upon them all. Despite their threatening the problem was getting worse, not better. The priests were dismayed. Something had to be done. But what? None lacked among the disciples. The apostle made distribution as each had need. Obviously it was the excess that each had above daily need that was sold. The Jerusalem disciples did not sell their homes where they lived, chapter 12, verse 12, but sale and distribution of their possessions at Pentecost had set a pattern. The distribution has a precedent in the distribution of the manna in the wilderness, which Paul talks about in the second of Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 to 15. So Paul says Paul, distribute to the necessity of saints in Romans 12, verse 13. A particular example was to be seen in Barnabas. He was well named the son of consolation, as we will find in chapter 9. Barnabas was a Levite of Cyprus who sold land and brought the money to the disciples. How strange! The God of Israel was a Levite's inheritance. He did not own land in Israel under the law, much less in Cyprus. But this incident is given here as a foil against which to see, with better perspective, the deceit of Ananias and Acts of the Apostles, Chapter 5, The First Sin and the First Deliverance. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Ananias and Sapphira. By selling his land and laying the money at the apostles' feet, Barnabas had made an impression. That had not been his intention, of course, but Ananias, the name means the Lord's gift, and Sapphira, seeing this, also sold land and brought the proceeds of the sale to the apostles. Unlike Barnabas, 
they did it because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. John 12 verse 43. Worse, they said the money given to Peter was the whole amount received, when in fact they had kept back part for themselves. In other words, they lied to the Holy Spirit. There was, of course, no requirement for them to bring the money to Peter if they did not wish to do so. Any gift was voluntary, not compulsory. Even great men, or perhaps especially great men, are susceptible to praise and flattery. We all crave praise, but overmuch praise does not gender to humility. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was premeditated. They had agreed together. In Proverbs we read, Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds and wind without rain. Satan had filled their hearts, meaning simply that they had conceived this thing in their heart. Satan had also entered into the heart of Judas, who then betrayed his Lord and died for it. What Ananias and Sapphira had done also amounted to a betrayal of Jesus Christ. They had done the same as Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, who had lied to the Holy Spirit and become a leper as a result in the second of Kings chapter 5 verse 27. Death, though shocking to our humanitarian instincts, was the inevitable result because he that despiseth despiseth not man, who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. The first of Thessalonians 4 verse 8. Yes, death does seem a severe penalty, but if the sin had been overlooked, there would be no respect for the Lord's appointed apostles in the new ecclesia. Anarchy would have set in at the ecclesia's very inception. They lied, not just to Peter, but unto God. Like Israel before them, they had rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. As Isaiah says in chapter 63, verse 10, we cannot lie before God with impunity. But what of Peter? Was he right to use the Holy Spirit power to cause their deaths? Obviously he was. For the Lord had said to his disciples, Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them, and whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. John 20, verse 23. Paul could write later, Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. And that was in the first of Timothy chapter 5, verse 24. So Ananias gave up that free spirit, which is life itself that is mentioned in Psalm 51, verse 12. And then it continues, And great fear came upon all the ecclesia, and upon all who heard these things. For there never was a more direct confirmation of the truth, that the wages of sin is death. It is because sent sentence against an evil work is not normally, we might say, executed speedily, that we fail to realise how serious sin is in the sight of God. 
This is now the second time that fear had been a result of the Apostles' actions. It was the young men who wound him, that is Ananias, up in grave clothes and buried him. The precedent for this had been set when Moses called the young men Mishael and Elzaphan to remove the bodies of Nadab and Abihu from the sanctuary in Leviticus 10 verse 4 to 5. Three hours later, Sapphira came in looking for her husband. It seemed strange that no one had told her what had happened. Perhaps those who might have done so were overcome by shock. When she did appear, Peter gave her opportunity to repent as the Lord allowed, the Lord of Leviticus 5 verse 1. But she, also tempting the Spirit of the Lord, fell down dead straight away. The record deliberately records Peter's words. The feet of them that buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. These feet were surely some of those of which it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace, and bring glad tidings of good things. Romans 10 verse 15. The gospel is our invitation to be in the kingdom. But where one has not put on a wedding garment by living righteously, responsibly for, responsibility for rejection cannot be avoided. Matthew 22 and Revelation 19 verse 8. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God. So ends the strange example of unity in marriage, in sin, and in death. It was like Adam and Eve all over again. Let us be honest with God. We cannot have secrets from him who searches the hearts. How much better to pray with David, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's in Psalm 139, verses 23 to 24. Chapter 5, verse 12 to 16, the sequel. As the story got out, many were moved by what was done to hear for themselves the apostles' preaching. These marvelled as they saw many acts of healing done by the apostles in Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch was an open portico, a remnant of Solomon's temple, situated along the eastern boundary of the temple area, facing the temple entrance. Again, Luke records that only the apostles did signs, though by this time the gift of tongues had evidently been given to a larger number of disciples. Brother Thomas suggests that this was to enable those from the diaspora to preach Christ on their return home. But in any ecclesia, there were only a few who ever received a gift of the Spirit by which they became the spirituals, or star angel, the messenger of that ecclesia. We find that in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 1 and Revelation 1 verse 20. But why record that they were in Solomon's porch? Evidently, Peter made this porch the focal point of their activities, because here Jesus Christ had been questioned whether he was the Christ or not. 
Peter and John worked signs and taught here to put the matter beyond doubt. Luke mentions the rest who dared not join the apostles. These were observers who favoured the priests and reported back to them every move. Revelation 21 verse 27 and 22 verse 15 tells us that liars cannot be part of the New Jerusalem. We're reminded it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Paul says in Hebrews 10 verse 31. Multitudes of men and women did believe, however, and their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Sick folk were brought out into the streets in the hope that if just the shadow of Peter would fall on them, as it says in Luke verse 1 verse 35, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee, that then the shadow might cause them to be healed. People even brought their sick from surrounding cities, including those vexed with unclean spirits. The word translated vexed means crowded. In other words, some of the sick were afflicted with severe mental illness like legion. Yet these were all healed by disciples who, during Jesus' ministry, had not been able to heal an epileptic boy because of their unbelief. In Matthew 17. Nothing had been seen like this before in Israel's history, except during the Lord's ministry, when they laid the sick in the streets, and as many as touched him were made whole. Mark 6, verse, 60, verse 56. Chapter 5, verses 17 to 24, Prison and Deliverance. They were dramatic and exciting times. But the Lord had been delivered to Pilate for envy. And envy was consuming the high priest and the Sadducees, who were filled with indignation. In the margin, that's put as envy. And laid their hands on all the apostles and put them in the common prison. There, in the blackness of the night, an angel opened the locked doors of the prison and instructed them to speak in the temple to the people the words of this life. Where more appropriate to speak the wonderful works of God, except that it was where the priests held their corrupt power. Perhaps the freed apostles remembered the words of the psalmist. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, which executed judgment for the oppressed, which giveth food to the hungry. The Lord looseth the prisoners, the Lord loveth the righteous. This is from Psalm 146, verses 5 to 8. So, with no time wasted, early in the morning, at daybreak in the Revised Version, they went into the temple and spoke the words of this life. The words spoken through the apostles has the same power as those spoken by Jesus Christ, who said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The word of this salvation. At the same time, the council, the Sanhedrin, and senate of the children of Israel assembled to try the prisoners. 
The Senate was a council of elders. The same Greek word for Senate is used in the Septuagint translation for judges in Deuteronomy 21 verse 2. The officers reported that the prison security was in order, but that the prisoners had disappeared. The high priest, captain and chief priests were embarrassed, and more so when it was reported that the prisoners were teaching in the temple. Chapter 5, verses 25 to 42. Witness to the council. The captain and officers re-arrested the apostles, but without violence, for they feared the people lest they should have been stoned. Feelings were obviously running high. The officers were nervous and feared the people, as had King Saul so long before in the first of Samuel 15, verse 24. To the officers' reliefs, the apostles submitted to the arrest and went willingly to witness to the leaders of the nation. Before the council, two charges were brought against the apostles. The first charge was disobedience to the council from chapter 4 verse 18. The second charge was that they had accused the rulers of murder, a teaching with which the apostles had filled Jerusalem in fulfilment of the Lord's instruction. In laying the charges, the high priest could not bring himself to pronounce the name Jesus. His hatred was such that he referred to Jesus as this man. There are still Jews who find it difficult to pronounce the name. In answer to the first charge, Peter boldly said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Perhaps it was this statement that aroused the concern that underlies Gamaliel's words, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Peter's statement became stronger when he added, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew. God had not only raised up Jesus as the seed promised to the fathers, but he had also raised him up from the dead. The council had murdered him, and their refusal to be responsible for the act was in contradiction to their cry at Jesus' trial, His blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 23, verse 35, and 27, verse 25. This was not an answer to the second charge, but an irrefutable accusation of the council's complicity in the murder of the Saviour. He is the chief prince, the leader or author of life, as Paul says in Hebrews 12 verse 2 as well. They had forced Pilate's hand so that Jesus had been hung on a tree when Pilate would have set him free. In this action they had cursed Jesus, for cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 to 23. But God, in exalting him to his right hand, unquestionably showed his approval of his Son, as Peter has exclaimed in Acts chapter 2. He is therefore the Saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins something the priests were quite unable to do. This repentance was first to Israel 
and then to the Gentiles, chapter 11, verse 15, to fulfil Christ's words, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, Luke 24, verse 47. In his Gospel, Luke records that the Lord added, And ye are witnesses of these things. So, in Acts, Luke adds that Peter continued, We are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God hath given to them that obey him. As an aside, it is interesting in the light of modern claims to spirit possession, that the Spirit was only given to those who had first obeyed the Gospel. It was never given to make a person obedient. The truth of Peter's witness was undeniable, but the council was not pricked in heart, as were Peter's hearers on the day of Pentecost. They were cut to the heart. Murder was counselled until Gamaliel, a doctor of the law who was had in reputation, came to the rescue with wise counsel. Gamaliel his name means reward of ale, was Saul's teacher, we find from Acts 22, verse 3. He was the grandson of the great Hillel and a celebrated teacher. Gamaliel was the first of only seven given the title Rabon. It is written in the Talmud, Since Rabon Gamaliel died, the glory of the law has ceased. He was a Pharisee who did believe in resurrection and was respected by all. First, Gamaliel commanded the apostles to be put aside while the council deliberated. Then, knowing his audience well, he appealed to their self-interest, saying, Take heed to yourselves. They had been unable to decide whether John's baptism was from heaven or of men, as in Luke 20, verse 4. Gamaliel left the same question open with regard to the work of the apostles and advised that they refrain from these men lest they be found to fight against God. In referring to Theudas and Judas of Galilee, Gamaliel avoided the use of the word Messiah. Both men had been slain. Gamaliel was well aware that Jesus had been murdered. He used the same word, slain, that Peter had used in verse 30. How many more murders were they prepared to commit? It would appear that Gamaliel defended the apostles because he wondered about the significance of the signs and was well aware that there had been a miscarriage of justice in Jesus' case. His statement that they may be found to be fighting against God shows that Gamaliel was worried and not too proud to entertain the thought they might be wrong. Remarkably, the Pharisees used the same argument against the Sadducees when supporting Paul's belief in resurrection in 23rd chapter of Acts and verse 9. Having agreed in principle to Gamaliel's proposal to do nothing against the apostles for the time being, the council, ignoring Gamaliel's advice to let them alone, called the apostles back, beat them, no doubt with forty stripes save one, as mentioned in Deuteronomy 25 verse 3, and commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. To beat a man who was uncondemned was, of course, totally against the law.
that they professed to uphold. And it was totally against the spirit of that law to beat a man for healing the sick in response to the command to love thy neighbour. Rejoicing in Tribulation The effect upon the disciples, however, was that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. This is not a reaction that is common to us, but one that has full scriptural endorsement in the Lord's words. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Peter recalled his experience at this time when he encouraged those who suffer similarly, 1 Peter 2, 19-20 and in other places. Paul also fellowshipped his sufferings, the sufferings of Jesus, and set us an example of rejoicing in tribulation. Were the disciples cowed by the beating and warning they had received? Not a bit. Daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ. They surely acted upon the Lord's words. If any man come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16 verse 24 It takes a rare brand of courage to continue to carry the name into the enemy's camp even into the temple itself. Let us not be faint-hearted in our preaching. Our Lord has been raised from the dead. What greater incentive to preach could we have? Let us preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. For there is a crown of righteousness to be given to those that love his appearing the first of Timothy 4, verse 2 and verse 8. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6. Stephen, full of faith and power. So Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, the daily ministration. Already there was some schism developing in the infant ecclesia. There were Grecians, that is, Hellenistic Jews from the Diaspora, who held Greek customs, and Hebrews, strict Hebrew-speaking Jews. It takes a long time for such a mix to truly become one in Christ. Inevitably, tensions would arise, something with which we are all familiar. There is nothing new after the sun. It seems that welfare provided from the temple was withheld from believers in Jesus. Therefore, it had become necessary for the ecclesia to provide for those in need. Widows, for example, were expected to work for the benefit of the ecclesia. A case in point is that of Dorcas at Joppa, who was full of good works and arms deeds, which she did, in company with all the other widows in Acts chapter 9. Paul recommended that only widows who were well reported off for good works should be taken into the number of those provided for by the Ecclesia, the first of Timothy chapter 5. Naturally, the apostles, with all their duties, could not cope with the large numbers in receipt of assistance. This led to the complaint that Greek widows from the diaspora 
were being neglected in the daily ministration. The apostles needed others to relieve them of some of their duties, in the same way that Moses had appointed seventy elders in the wilderness to assist him because of the murmuring of Israel. Deuteronomy 1, verse 9 to 13, and uh, chapter 16, verse 18. Of course, the numbers in the Ecclesia were smaller than those in the wilderness, and therefore seven, rather than seventy, were appointed. Ecclesial Selection An ecclesial business meeting was called to make the appointments. Interestingly, after the apostles had given guidance as to the qualifications required, the decision of whom to appoint was not made by the apostles, but by the ecclesia. Now there was wisdom in this, in that the brethren chosen would receive full ecclesial cooperation and support. Nehemiah likewise had appointed four treasurers to distribute to the brethren, because they were known to be faithful in Nehemiah 13, verses 11 to 13. Our own method of ecclesial endorsement for those who hold office reflects the wisdom in the apostolic appointment of these seven. At that time, wisdom was one of the gifts of the Spirit, as we have it, in the first of Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Today, with the exception of being full of the Holy Spirit, the same qualifications should still apply to ecclesial appointments. Although spirit gifts are no longer distributed to ecclesial elders, it is required that an elder have a Holy Spirit, that is, a spiritual mind, and wisdom by the prayerful daily reading of God's Word. The first of Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. The apostles' main responsibility was to give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. An example is seen in chapter 10 verse 9. But there are a variety of responsibilities in ecclesial life. The Apostles' suggestion pleased the whole Ecclesia, who then chose Stephen, a man full of faith, in the Greek word charis, faith, that which gives pleasure or delight, loving-kindness, goodwill, grace. So there was Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and with him six others. All were Jews with Greek names except Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. Philip became known as the Evangelist and later lived in Caesarea, where, on at least one occasion, he entertained the Apostle Paul, Acts 21, verse 8 and 9. No complaint of unfairness against Grecian widows could be levelled against such a team, whilst ecclesial election removed the antagonism. Appointed by the Apostle we should consider carefully whom we nominate for ecclesial duties. These seven were set before the apostles by the ecclesia because of their devotion to the truth. They were not appointed to encourage them because they were flagging. The apostles first prayed and then laid their hands on them to impart their blessing and their authority. Chapter 13, verse 3. Moses had done the same when bestowing his leadership on Joshua, which you will see in Numbers 27, verse 18 to 23, and Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. So the word of God increased, 
and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Not only did the word preached have increasing influence, but also the inspired record of the life of Christ was most likely being written. See also chapter 12 verse 24 and chapter 19 verse 20. Many commentators assume that the Gospels were written at a later date, but this is unlikely given the need for an early inspired record to strengthen the faith of the rapidly expanding Ecclesia. Luke also tells us that even a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. After all, the priests knew better than anyone else that the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth was empty and that the guard had been bribed to say that the disciples had stolen the body. Though how sleeping guards would know his disciples had stolen the body remains a mystery. Furthermore, the council of Gamaliel in chapter 5, verse 34 to 39, had paved the way for Levites, like Barnabas, to be obedient. Interestingly, Luke described the belief in Jesus being the Christ as the faith and the word of his grace, chapter 20, verse 32, in opposition to the law. For, as he says in Romans 8, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. From 3,000 at Pentecost and 5,000 shortly after, there were now another large increase in the number of disciples. By now, the Jerusalem Ecclesia numbered many thousands and couldn't be ignored. It was the largest ecclesia of the New Testament dispensation and had a considerable impact especially when Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Acts chapter 6, verse 9 to 15. The charge of blasphemy against Stephen. Stephen's miracles and preaching soon brought a challenge from the synagogue of the Libertines. These were freed slaves. Cyrenians from Cyprus. Alexandrians from Egypt and from Cilicia, which was Saul of Tarsus' country. These were unable to resist the wisdom and spirit by which Stephen spoke, because of the, the spirit gave him utterance. Luke 21, verse 12 to 15. Setting up false witnesses, as had been done with his master, was the only way Stephen could be defeated. He was accused of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God, an accusation that was patently false, being a deliberate misrepresentation. It was a half-truth, such as the serpent spoke to the woman. But having stirred up the people, they caught Stephen and brought him before the council. Here the charge was changed. The false witnesses said that he spoke blasphemous words against the temple and the law. Stephen had evidently been deliberately misunderstood, as had his Lord, when he said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, in John 2, verse 19. It was this statement upon which the Lord had been arraigned, in Matthew 26. But acceptable worship is not based upon the reverence of a temple, cathedral, or church, 
but upon worship in sincerity and truth, as Christ says in John 4, verse 21 to 24. Stephen faced two charges. That he had said, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, the temple, and that he shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. Those, these were trumped-up charges. There was some truth in them, as the prophets and history testify. Matthew 24, verse 2, Daniel and Jeremiah. All looked at Stephen as they waited for his answer, and continued to gaze spellbound as they saw his face change and shine as the face of an angel. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 1, A man's wisdom maketh his face to shine, and the strength of his face shall be changed. Stephen himself looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. Chapter 7, verse 55. Consequently, like Moses, his face shone. As a result, the council sat, looked, and listened to Stephen's peroration for quite a long time before reacting. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, Stephen's defence. The two charges levelled against Stephen were that he taught what they considered to be blasphemy. One, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy the temple, and two, he shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. In answering these charges, Stephen gave a brilliant defence, in which he skilfully turned the tables on the council and charged them with murder. His charges could not be denied. They could only be met by yet another murder. The length of this speech shows how important it was, and, since Luke has recorded it in some detail for our learning, how important its lessons are for us. Briefly, Stephen said that Abraham was called before the law was given, nor a temple built. Therefore, neither law nor temple was essential to acceptable worship. Furthermore, God had raised up Joseph and Moses to deliver his people, but Israel had rejected them. In these last days, God had raised up his son as a deliverer, and they had rejected him too. Acceptable worship had been offered to God in the wilderness before the temple was made. Therefore, neither tabernacle nor temple was necessary to worship the Creator, who fills heaven and earth, and therefore cannot be contained in a building. Something Solomon acknowledged but they did not see 1 Kings 8 verse 27. Not only so, but David, who found favour with God, was forbidden to build a temple. Why, then, was it so important? Even in the promised land, their fathers had persecuted the prophets God had sent. In rejecting Jesus, they were continuing in the same evil. In fact, the law had never been kept by the nation. Now, in their rejection of Jesus Christ and his message, they were following the national tray of unbelief. In this speech, Stephen, though he did use some detail in his argument, chiefly concentrated on a broad overview of Israel's history. 
Like the counsel who charged Stephen, it is possible to lose sight of where we're going if a broad view of the Scriptures, with its strong exhortations and warnings, is not kept in mind when looking at details. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 to 8. The Witness of Abraham The toleration established by Gamaliel was now reversed. Antagonism was inevitable, for Stephen had evidently been arraigned for teaching the doctrine that the Mosaic heavens and earth were about to perish. But Psalm 102, verse 25 to 28, had said, As a vesture thou shalt change them, and they shall be changed. There was now a new covenant in Jesus Christ, who had confirmed the promises made unto the fathers, as Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 8. Both temple and law were obsolete, as Jesus had taught the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, when he said, The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. True worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. John 4, verse 21 to 24. Stephen knew that justice would not prevail, but he started respectfully by addressing the councillors, men, brethren and fathers. He continued, no doubt, because his face shone like an angel's, by saying, The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. In the past, the glory was the visible evidence that God was present in the midst of his people. But the indwelling, the Shekinah glory, was not present in Herod's temple. Stephen's words reminded his listeners that God's covenant with Abraham has priority over the law that came afterwards. The God of glory appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia before he came to Hagarin. So God calls men and women independently of land, law or temple. Note too that it was in Mesopotamia that Ezekiel had seen visions of glory the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. At this point we should realise that Luke is giving us the substance of Stephen's speech, leaving us to work out the inferences for ourselves, much in the same way that Jesus spoke in parables. As Daniel said, the wise shall understand. Abraham received two calls, the first when he was beyond the Euphrates at Ur of the Chaldees, where the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, Genesis 12, verse 1. And the second at Haran, where God said, I will make of thee a great nation, in Genesis 12, verse 2 and 3. Verse 4 continues, From thence, or the Greek word means afterwards, as in chapter 13, verse 21, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land. That is, Abraham removed from Haran to the land of the Philistines, Genesis 21, verse 34, and from there to Hebron, Genesis 23, verse 1 and 2. The land had been promised to Abram, but he had not received the inheritance by the time of his death, though he did have a seed in Isaac. 
nor were Israel to meddle with Esau's inheritance in Mount Seir when they arrived at the borders of the land, Deuteronomy 2 verse 5. Nevertheless, God's promise given before the law cannot fail. God has a future purpose with Abraham which is still to be fulfilled. And a promise is not by law, Genesis 22 verse 16. Stephen then says that Abram's seed must sojourn in a strange land for 400 years, during which time they would be brought into bondage. But Exodus 12 verse 40 says, not 400, but 430 years. Yes, it was 430 years from the promise to the giving of the law through Moses. However, this promise was given 30 years before Isaac was born. So Stephen's 400 years from Isaac is correct. It was God who guided Abraham's seed into Egypt where their bondage began. Eventually, following God's judgment on Egypt by ten devastating plagues, Israel were delivered and entered into the wilderness of sin to serve me, that is God, at Sinai. The record says, serve me, in contrast to, they shall serve the Egyptians. Genesis 15 verse 14. The God of glory who had led them into Egypt was no longer in Egypt. He was now in the wilderness where his glory appeared to them in this place, the mountain of Sinai, not Jerusalem. Exodus 3 verse 12. Stephen's point is that Israel worshipped at Sinai before the law was given or temple built. Are they then so essential to divine worship? Even the covenant of circumcision was not after the law, but of the covenant that God made with Abraham long before the law was given. Genesis 17 verse 11 and John 7 verse 22 to 24. Acts chapter 7 verses 9 to 16, the witness of Joseph. Stephen continues by reminding the counsel of Joseph. He says, God was with him, where? In prison in Egypt, and not with his brethren in the land of promise. You get this in Genesis 39, verse 2, verse 21 and verse 23. So God exalted Joseph to rulership over Jews and Gentiles in Egypt, although he was despised and rejected of men. Jesus Christ is higher than Joseph or Pharaoh. He is Emmanuel, for God was with him, as Nicodemus admitted in Matthew 1.23 and John 3 verse 2. Therefore, divine favour is independent of law or place. This was something that Saul of Tarsus, an unbelieving witness at Stephen's trial, was to learn several years later by his own experience of prison in Rome as the Apostle Paul in the second of Timothy 3, verse 11 to 12. Meanwhile, there was a famine in the land where the patriarchs lived. But there was corn in Egypt that Joseph, acting on God's advice, had carefully stored in silos. There Joseph's brethren came and bowed down to him, and on their second visit he was made known to them. It will be at another time of national crisis 
that Israel will bow down to Christ whom they rejected, and on this second occasion he will make himself known to them, and every eye, that is every eye of Israel, shall see him. Isaiah 40 verse 5 and Revelation 1 verse 7. So Jacob went down into Egypt with a total of 75 souls. Now this number has caused considerable discussion because Genesis says 70 souls in Genesis 46.27 and other places. However, Jacob's children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren numbered 66. We read in Genesis 46 verse 8 to 26. When we add to the 66 who came out of Jacob's loins, the nine wives of Jacob's sons, notice that the wives of Judah and Simeon were dead by this time, then Stephen's count of 75 is also correct. 66 came out of Jacob's loins, and nine were his son's wives. Significantly, their lives were preserved and multiplied where? In Egypt, not in the land. Therefore, God's blessing is not dependent on this place. Genesis records that Abraham built an altar at Shechem, or Sikkim. To do so, he must have bought a portion of land there. Sikkim means portion, as Stephen confirms. In Abraham's absence, the former owners had subsequently reclaimed this land. Years later, Jacob recovered this plot of land that his grandfather had bought, and here the fathers were carried over into Shechem and buried. Genesis 48, verse 22. So there is no special sanctity in the land itself for the fathers, though buried in despised Samaria, are still in God's purpose. Acts chapter 7, verse 20 to 41, the witness of Moses. Moses is still considered by the Jews to be the greatest man that ever lived. And Stephen, being accused of teaching that Jesus would change the customs Moses had given them, spoke at length about him. Moses was born when the Hebrews were in dire dis or great distress not only because of their bondage, but because all male children at birth must be cast into the river where crocodiles lurked. By faith, Amram and Jochebed hid Moses for three months because he was exceeding fair. The margin says, from Exodus 2 verse 12, fair to God. They believed the promises and were not afraid of the king's commandment, Hebrews 11 verse 23. And so the deliverer they admired was born in Egypt and brought up not in the temple but in Pharaoh's court by Pharaoh's daughter as her own son. As a result, Moses became learned not in the Jews' law but in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. At this time, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, with the intention of delivering them. But their fathers rejected him, exposing him to Pharaoh's vengeance because he had killed an Egyptian. Jesus of Nazareth, the prophet like unto Moses, Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 and 18, 
also was a prophet mighty indeed and in word before God and all the people, whom the chief priests and rulers delivered to death, Luke 24, verse 19 to 29. Though Moses' age is not explicitly stated in Exodus, Stephen says he was 40 years old when he visited his brethren, Acts 7, verse 23. This is implied in the phrase, when Moses was grown, that is, came of age, Exodus 2, verse 11, and 14 to 15. Moses supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. First he killed an Egyptian, then next day two Hebrews fought over whether they should follow Moses or not. For when Moses separated them, the one said to him, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou killest the Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses fled at this saying. His attempt to spark a revolt had failed. The time was not yet right for the people's deliverance, for that neither they nor Moses were spiritually prepared for that momentous event. After so many years in Egypt, Moses' brethren had lost faith and worshipped Egypt's idols, we find in Joshua 24, verse 14. The council were Stephen's brethren, he said. But the simple lessons of God's word are not so easily learned where there is self-righteous pride instead of meekness. Because his brethren rejected Moses, they had to wait another 40 years for Yahweh to send him again. God, who made both Moses and Jesus leader over them, will send Jesus Christ again to deliver his people of Israel when they are finally humbled with no longer a stony heart, but an heart of flesh. But the council's attitude to the prophet like unto Moses was... Who made thee a judge and a ruler over us? Moses fled as a stranger to Midian, where he married Zipporah, one of Jethro's daughters, who bore him Gershom and Eleazar. After forty years, Yahweh appeared to Moses in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. The holy ground was not in Herod's temple, it was in a bush. For when uh, Yahweh appeared to Moses, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This extraordinary apocalypse occurred when Moses was in exile from his own people in the wilderness of Midian in all places. An even greater apocalypse came in the Lord Jesus Christ, whom they slew, but as Peter said, God hath raised him up. Thus Moses, the lawgiver, who trembled and durst not behold, had revealed to him that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had a larger purpose than the Mosaic covenant. He would reveal himself in another and greater one to come, as Peter had earlier said to them. The God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied, linking God's covenant with the fathers to the new covenant in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 3, verse 13 to 15. 
This Moses, whom they had refused as a ruler and judge, God sent him to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. And yet for all the wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness, forty years, that generation perished. All this occurred before the temple was built. Now, says Stephen, a new dispensation is beginning after the type of Moses and to which Moses himself looked forward, as we see in Hebrews 11, verse 24 to 27. Their whole history shows God's dealings with Israel did not depend upon the law or the land. Their future did not depend upon them either. There has to be another deliverer. For did not Moses speak of another prophet? Shall the Lord your God raise up unto you? Stephen forces home his point. This is he that was in the ecclesia in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. Psalm 22 says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the ecclesia will I praise thee. Jesus Christ, who is now with his ecclesia in the political wilderness, will become God's appointed ruler and a deliverer when he comes again. Him shall ye hear, as their fathers had finally heard Moses on his return. At Sinai, Moses had received the lively, the living oracles. Jesus, as mediator of the new covenant, and greater than Moses, has given us the living word of God to direct our faith. Galatians 3, 19-20 Don't be like your fathers who turned back to Egypt in their hearts, in effect saying, We have no king but Caesar. But look forward to Jesus who is the fulfilment of the name. I will be who I will be, revealed at the bush. In rejecting Yahweh and his servant Moses, Israel pressured Aaron into making a golden calf such as was worshipped in Egypt, but had not saved the Egyptians from Yahweh's judgments. Apparently this was to be the first of a set of gods, though Aaron tried to confine them to one in Exodus 32 verse 1 and verse 4. They offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Now their children rejoiced in Herod's temple, which was also the work of their own hands, and charged Stephen with blasphemy. And though Sinai was covered in smoke before them in the wilderness, the people said, This Moses, in contempt, just as Stephen's accusers had said, This Jesus, Acts 6 verse 14. They said they knew not what had become of Moses, though they knew he had ascended the mount. The council knew not what had become of Jesus, though all the evidence showed he was in heaven, Acts 2.33. But Moses did come again and witness their shame, and so will Jesus. Acts 7 verse 42 to 50, the witness of the prophets. Israel continued to be rebellious, even in the land, 
until God gave them up to worship the host of heaven. Stephen cites Amos some five hundred years later to prove his point. Had they offered to him slain beasts and sacrifices forty years in the wilderness? No, they had not. In fact, they superseded divine law by their, their idolatrous worship of Moloch and Remphan. Because of their folly, Amos had said they would be taken beyond Damascus. But Stephen, adding Jeremiah's testimony, says, beyond Babylon, implying even beyond Great Babylon, which is Rome. Acts 5, verse 25 to 27, and Jeremiah 20, verse 4 to 6. And you'll find Revelation 18, verse 10 as well. Babylon was where Abraham, their father, came from. Their history constituted a serious warning that failure to observe God's law would bring such severe judgment upon them that they would be taken further away from the land than had been their beginning. Their fathers built a tabernacle of witness to point forward to one to come, which Joshua brought into the land. And since Joshua brought them in, then they didn't receive the inheritance by Moses or Moses' law. Therefore the law must pass for something better that will bring the inheritance. In his epistle to the Hebrews, Paul follows Stephen's argument when he says that Joshua did not give them the inheritance. The true rest in the margin, the keeping of a Sabbath, waits for another Joshua or Jesus to give them. He is the true successor to Moses. Hebrews 4 verses 6 to 11. And in any case, the tabernacle was only ever a copy, a pattern or type of the heavenly things shown to Moses in the mount. Paul says so in Hebrews 8 verse 5 and Hebrews 9 verse 23 to 24. Then, when Israel was settled in the land, David the man after God's own heart wanted to build God a temple, but he was prevented. Solomon his son built it. The line of Stephen's reasoning is that if there could be a change from tabernacle to temple, then there could be another change, for the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? No. God would look to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit and trembled at his word, which this counsel would never do. Isaiah 66, verse 1 and 2. Not only so, but Solomon's temple wasn't final either, for it was destroyed. Even Solomon, its builder, recognized the truth in his prayer at the consecration of the temple in 1 Kings 8, verse 27. We cannot make a house for God out of what he has provided, only out of what we ourselves can give. God's dwelling place is not in a material temple, but in men and women who tremble at his word. These are the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 22 and Hebrews 8, verse 2. 
they clung to a temporal temple and the shadow of things to come, and not to the body which is of Christ. Colossians 2 verses 16 to 17. Acts chapter 7 verses 51 to 53. Stephen's Accusation at this stage, it had become obvious to Stephen that there was no point in continuing because the council was enraged. Stephen's skilful defence had developed into an account of the unbelief of their fathers and an exposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the council were determined to silence him, he indicts them of the murder of the just one, citing the law which they profess to respect, Stephen calls them stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Then, referring to Isaiah, he says, Ye do always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do ye, from Isaiah 63, verse 9 to 10. If they rejected the words of the inspired prophets, how could they receive the more complete revelation of heavenly things through God's Son and His prophets, John 3, verse 12. He challenged, Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? There could be no answer, because this was the Spirit's own testimony against them and their fathers. The second of Chronicles 26, verse 16, and Matthew 23, verse 34 to 37. They had slain those who spoke of the coming of the Just One, and when this sinless one came, who alone in all history had fully kept the law, they had betrayed and murdered him. They had accused Stephen of blasphemy in saying the law would be changed. But though it was a decree or order, the authorised version, disposition or ordinance, Romans 13 verse 2, a decree or order of angels, even they themselves had not kept it. This was only too true, and they knew it. We see then that Stephen made three serious counter-charges, namely, one, resisting the Holy Spirit, two, murder of the just one, three, not keeping the law. Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60. The death of Stephen. Cut to the heart not pricked, as in 2 verse 37, they cast off all restraint. Stephen, not fearing the wrath of the council, rose above the immediate threat and looked steadfastly up into heaven. There he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. His Lord was not sitting, as we might have expected, but standing in anger, ready to judge these wicked men. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul, says Psalm 109, verse 29 to 31. The way into the fellowship of heaven was open, for the veil had been rent from the top to the bottom at the death of Jesus. Jacob had also seen heaven open in vision, and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Genesis 28 verse 12. 
Son of Man is the title of the one who has the authority to execute judgment and is given dominion over the nations, Daniel seven thirteen to 14 The heavens opened is indisputable proof that Jesus is Messiah and God's appointed high priest in the Most Holy at the right hand of the Most High. The blind now stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. So confirming Stephen's final point in verse 51. The false witnesses cast the first stones as the law required, the Lord of Deuteronomy 17 verse 7. What were they thinking? How did they feel? Perhaps their consciences had been seared with a hot iron like the Catholic inquisitors of later Christian history. In his final moments, Stephen was able to call upon God, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is his life, Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. And then, kneeling down in the attitude of prayer, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. His words echoed those of his Lord, except that Stephen did not say, For they know not what they do. For now they did know. O oh, Stephen, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12. And so ends another sad chapter in Israel's history. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 8. The Gospel spreads to Judea, Samaria and Africa. The Lord had said the Gospel was to be preached in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and unto the utmost parts of the earth. To show the fulfilment of this in Acts can be summarised as follows. In chapter 1, verse 1 to 26, we have the preparation for preaching. The Acts of the Apostles continues in chapter 2 to chapter 7 with preaching in Jerusalem. Chapter 8, verse 1 to 25, is preaching in Judea and Samaria. And chapter 8, verse 26 to chapter 28 is preaching to the uttermost parts of the earth. And what you'll notice in uh, Acts chapter 8 verse 26 to 40 is towards Africa, chapter 9 to 16 towards Asia, chapter 16 to 18 is towards Europe, chapter 18 to 26 in Asia, and chapter 7 to chapter 28 in Europe. So we'll come to chapter 8 and verses 1 to 25, preaching in Judea and Samaria. Acts 8 begins with the words, And Saul was consenting unto his death. The young men had laid their clothes at his feet. He himself did not throw stones at Stephen, because it did not benefit one of the judges to do so. That is in chapter 26, verse 10. 
And yet, in a sense, Stephen was not dead. He lived again in Paul the Apostle, who was able to say at the end of his life, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown, a Stephan, of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. This is when we shall see the heavens opened. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 and the first of Timothy chapter 1. Stephen's final prayer. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, was certainly answered in Saul's case. At that time, the great persecution that followed the death of Stephen scattered the flock to Judea and Samaria. They took the gospel with them and continued to preach as Christ had said they should in chapter 11 and verse 19 to 20 in Matthew 10. How different to the followers of Theudas, whose scattering brought them to naught, we saw in chapter 5. This work was of God, and the disciples' commission to preach in Judea and Samaria began to be fulfilled. The apostles remained in Jerusalem to strengthen and encourage the remnant of the ecclesia. Strangely, the apostles are not arrested, and consequently the ecclesia soon reformed. One wonders if the priests and council were fear, fearful to touch them because of the miracles they did and their past embarrassing experiences with them. We can understand the great lamentation devout men made over Stephen. He had been highly respected in the Jerusalem Ecclesia, being full of faith and wisdom. Meanwhile, Saul make, had made havoc of the Ecclesia, committing men and women to prison without trial, entering without warning into the homes of the brethren that informers had reported to him. This, of course, happened similarly to the Jews across Europe last century, when the Nazis under Hitler gave in to bloodlust and offended against all decency. The Diaglot says, violently seizing. The same word is used in the Septuagint of a wild boar coming out of the wood and wasting the vine out of Egypt, that is in Psalm 80 verse 13. So severe was Saul that he even forced the execution of sisters in Christ, chapter 22 and verse 4 and 26 verse 9 to 11. What did he care for orphans left to fend for themselves, so long as righteousness as he saw it, was done. Be not righteous overmuch. If our righteousness hurts the brethren, there is something very wrong. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself, it says in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 16. Paul, though soon forgiven, lived with a terrible conscience thereafter as he says in the first of Timothy chapter 1. Philip preached Christ. Because of the persecution, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, where he preached Christ and caused great joy in that city by healing many with mental illness, palsies and lameness. No doubt the joy was as much in the forgiveness of their sins as in the healing that confirmed it. Soon Philip, who had been one of the seven, 
became known as Philip the Evangelist, a word meaning messenger of good. While continuing the work of his Lord to the Samaritans, as in John 4, 39-42, he met Simon the sorcerer, who bewitched the people, giving out that he was some great man. The Samaritan said, This man is the great power of God. Evidently he was some sort of charismatic leader. But now their eyes were opened, and, believing the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. These two themes comprise the gospel. Philip taught them in the correct order, for Jesus had come preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The kingdom of God is the one hope of your calling, centred on one Lord, one faith, one baptism, which is as the truth is in Jesus. This Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 5 and verse 21. Peter and John in Samaria. The people responded because they saw that Philip's miracles were genuine. To his credit, even Simon humbled himself, confessed to his sorcery, and submitted to baptism. Before long, the ecclesia in Jerusalem heard news of what was happening, so the apostles sent Peter and John to investigate. These two, on seeing the truth of the report and the sincerity of the Samaritan believers, prayed for them and gave to selected believers the gift of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of their hands. What a change of attitude for John, who had wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans, but was rebuked by the Lord, recorded in Luke 5, verse 54. Had John called down fire at that time, there would have been no Samaritans now for him to give the Holy Spirit to. Soon he was praying for their guidance and blessing, especially in the face of inevitable Jewish opposition, when they heard of the conversion of despised Samaritans. Acts 11 verse 17. We learn here that the Holy Spirit did not normally fall on believers, but could only be passed on by apostles. See chapter 19 verse 6. Not even Philip, who had the gift of miracles, or powers, and healing, was able to pass on the gift, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Because of this, we find, later in this chapter, that the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing, but without a gift. The way the Spirit was given in Acts 2 and Acts 10 is an exception to the rule. Simon offered money to buy the gift and the power to pass it on. But money cannot buy everything, as Solomon wrote. There is that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor, yet hath great riches. Proverbs 13, verse 7. Simon's offer showed he lacked proper understanding, for the truth is free. He that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Ye come by wine without money and without price, we read in Isaiah 55, verse 1. Therefore Peter said, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. 
thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, the Greek word logos. The Greek word for gift here is doria, and therefore implies not just the spirit, but also the wider gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Peter called upon Simon to repent of his wickedness and pray for forgiveness for the thought of his heart, his own desire for prestige and power. His heart was not right with him, neither was he steadfast in his covenant. Psalm 78 verse 37 Simon's attitude almost constituted blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He was in the gall of bitterness, a profane person who tried to sell his birthright for present advantage. He was in the bond of iniquity, or bands of wickedness, as Isaiah has it in chapter 58, verse 6. But all was not lost. Simon pleaded, Pray ye to the Lord for me. His appeal for the elders' prayer on his behalf is recommended to all who commit grievous sin. James 5, verse 14 to 16 says this, Though there is a sin unto death, I do not say that he shall pray for it. 1 John 5, verse 16 and John 20. Simon was totally humiliated that no flesh should glory in his presence. Never again would he be a leader. His sin is not forgotten to this day, for his name has passed into our language in the word simony, meaning buying or selling ecclesiastical preferment. The Acts chapter 8 verse 26 to 40. The truth spreads to Africa. Taking the gospel to Samaria began the long process of breaking down Jewish prejudice against Gentiles in the faith. The gospel would go from the Jews, Shem, to Ethiopia, Ham, and then to Europe, Japheth. Philip was a Greek Jew and therefore probably not as exclusive as other Jews. The work in Samaria, now being supervised by the apostles, Philip was directed by an angel to new fields. He arose and went at noon, the authorised version says south, and if you compare 22 verse 6, from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a route that was deserted, the authorised version, desert. Philip was always ready to preach the word, being instant in season, out of season. As Paul puts it to the second of Timothy in chapter 4 verse 2, on his way he met a man of Ethiopia returning from a visit to Jerusalem. This man was not a Jew but a proselyte who was not allowed to enter the temple, especially as he was a eunuch too. Deuteronomy 23 verse 1 speaks about this. He was of great authority under Candace, the word is a royal title. She was queen, probably of the kingdom of Moroe, which, Pliny recorded, was governed by queens. She may even have been in the line of the queen of Sheba. The eunuch had charge of her royal treasure, the, Pers the Persian word for which is Gaza. Gaza itself is on the highway to Egypt and Ethiopia. Philip preached unto him Jesus. This man was reading from a scroll of Isaiah, which he had probably bought in Jerusalem. He was obviously sincere, diligent and educated. 
Why hadn't the eunuch learned the truth in Jerusalem? He almost certainly did hear about Jesus there, since Jerusalem was full of speculation, but had probably suffered a setback when he found himself barred from the temple because he was not a Jew. Christ will send someone a long way to teach one man the truth. So the spirit told Philip to go near. He ran to the chariot and heard the man reading aloud from his scroll. Philip then created the opening. Understandest thou what thou readest? And was invited into the chariot to explain who it was that Isaiah had written about when he predicted the death and resurrection of Yahweh's suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53. So Philip taught him as the truth is in Jesus, Ephesians 4 verse 21. No doubt what Philip taught the eunuch from the prophets was similar to the teaching of the risen Lord from the prophets to the two on the road to Emmaus. Together they read, And who shall declare his generation? With what growing excitement this eunuch would listen as Philip explained that Yahweh's suffering servant cut off and without children shall yet see his seed. For thus saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within my walls a place and a name better than of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off, this is in Isaiah 56, verse 4 to 8, and Psalm 22, verse 30. He went on his way rejoicing. Providentially, it must have rained hard in the area shortly before, so that when water was seen, upon his confession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. In so doing, this great man humbled himself before his servants. Obviously, they would be drinking water carried by the eunuch and his retinue, but this was not enough for a baptism. In those days, there was no substitute such as sprinkling an unbelieving babe with holy water, no such substitute for the full immersion of a believer in the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. The eunuch had stated his belief that Jesus is the Christ, or Messiah, and Son of God. This belief, though vigorously denied by Jews, is an essential confession before baptism, that ye might have life through his name, we read in John 20, verse 31. The name of Jesus, Yah shall save, is the key to eternal life. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent, the Lord prays in John 17, verse 3. After they came out of the water, the Spirit caught away Philip to Azotus, some 25 miles, 40 kilometres from Gaza, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea, where he settled. For he was still there 20 years later, in chapter 21 of Acts and verse 8. When Elijah had been caught away by the Spirit, 
He was not found because his work was finished until the kingdom. Most of Philip's work still lay ahead of him. But we will have to wait for the kingdom before we find what else Philip did in the spirit in those intervening years. The nameless eunuch went on his way rejoicing, determined to preach the word in Ethiopia, for is it not written, Princes shall come out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands to God, written in Psalm 68, verse 31. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, Paul's conversion. So Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 22, Saul's conversion. From Isaiah 11, verse 3, we learn that the Spirit of the Lord would make the seed of David of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. The Hebrew words, however, have the sense of breathing in and out the atmosphere of the Spirit. By contrast, Saul, full of hatred, breathed threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of Jesus. Such extreme attitudes often develop when there is uncertainty and guilt, as was the case with Saul of Tarsus. His self-doubt even led him to seek letters of authority and commission, he mentions in chapter 26, verse 12, from the high priest to the synagogues of Damascus, so that he could arrest both men and women, disciples, and bring them bound to Jerusalem. Evidently, Damascus had a large Jewish population, for it is reported that 10,000 were killed there during the reign of the Emperor Nero. The governor of Damascus was Aretas. He was father-in-law to Herod, but after Herod had divorced his daughter to marry Herodias, he had defeated Herod in battle. The Jews hated Herod, and therefore favoured Aretas. Damascus is about 140 to 158 miles, that is 225 to 255 kilometres from Jerusalem, depending upon which route is taken. So Saul's plans involved considerable difficulty. Only reports that the preaching of Jesus' disciples was making serious inroads in the synagogues there could have prompted Saul to make the effort. Why persecutest thou me? It was while he was approaching Damascus that a light shone round about him from heaven that eclipsed even the brilliance of the midday sun, we read in Acts 26 verse 13. It was not the first time this had happened. Shepherds had been advised of the birth of Messiah in a similar way. Ezekiel had seen visions of glory in Ezekiel chapter 1, and Christ will similarly appear again, we read in Luke 17, verse 24. Saul and those accompanying him fell to the earth, as had Daniel at the vision of the man of the one by the river Hiddekel, until the angel's hand touched him and lifted him up, and he stood trembling. Daniel 10, verses 4 to 11. Now it was Saul's turn to tremble as he experienced the fear that previously he had caused others. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. 
Of course, Saul did not directly persecute Jesus, but as his ecclesia is one with Christ, so, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me, the Lord says in Matthew 25, verse 40. The words following are generally thought not to be part of the Greek text, but to have been inserted from chapter 26, verse 14. Irrespective of this, the blinding vision was enough to convince Saul forever after that Jesus was indeed alive. Stephen, whose death he had supported and the disciples whom he persecuted, were right after all. The dilemma of the empty tomb was resolved by the obvious, but previously unthinkable conclusion that Jesus was indeed risen from the dead. Several years later, he exclaimed to the Corinthians who denied the resurrection, Have not I seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Saul was told to go into Damascus, and there he would be told what he must do. At Pentecost, Peter's hearers had asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? True religion is doing. It is obedience, not just hearing. How appropriate to Saul of Tarsus are the words of Eliphaz, He disappointeth the devices of the crafty, so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. They meet with darkness in the daytime, and grope in the noonday as in the night. But he saveth the poor from the sword. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not the chastening of the Almighty. That's in Job 5, verses 12 to 17. Gamaliel's advice to leave well alone had been right. The work was of God and could not be overthrown. We read of that in Acts 5, verse 34 to 40. As Christ had been three days and three nights in the tomb, and Jonah in the whale's belly, so now Saul, blinded, saw no man but was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. He now began to see his spiritual condition, which his blindness served to emphasise. He had been told, as he later declared in a fuller account, of what the Lord had said to him on the road to Damascus. I send thee, to Gentiles, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. In chapter 26, verse 18. Oh yes, Saul had been so self-righteous, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Acts 23, verse 6. But in reality a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, as he said in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, verse 13. And he had thought himself blameless, as he says in Philippians 3, verse 6. Ananias sent to Saul. Next, the Lord appeared to Ananias, who must have been a remarkable disciple, and quite a contrast to the high priest Annas and Ananias, Acts 23, verse 2, and told him to go to the house of Judas in the street called Straight. Why did Luke record such seemingly unnecessary detail? Because he had, in his Gospel, already drawn Theophilus' attention to the words of Isaiah. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, 
make his paths straight, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke 3 verse 4 to 6. This salvation Paul was to begin to reveal to the Gentiles. But first, Saul, who was praying, no doubt for forgiveness, must receive his sight again. So it is Annas, his name meaning Yah has been gracious, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews, who was sent to heal Saul, Acts 22 verse 12. This was not without some objection, of course, from Ananias, for it seems that Saul's secret mission had been betrayed, and a swift messenger had been dispatched from Jerusalem to warn the disciples who were even now surely praying earnestly for deliverance from the scourge of this man. In his objection, Ananias was first to use the word saints, sanctified or holy ones, to describe the Lord's disciples in Jerusalem. But Ananias went his way after the Lord had said, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saul of Tartus, a chosen vessel, unbelievable, but true. He had been called by God's grace to a work reminiscent of Jeremiah's calling. I ordain thee to be a prophet unto the nations. Jeremiah 1 verse 5. God is the potter who forms man for the purpose he has in mind for him. We read in Jeremiah 18. In Saul's case, that purpose was to oppose Judaism amongst Jewish believers and to preach the gospel to the Gentiles while suffering great things for my name's sake. After all, he knew Judaism better than anyone and was ready to fellowship the sufferings of Christ in witnessing to the Gentiles because he himself had been the cause of so much suffering. Ananias evidently had a gift of the Spirit because, on putting his hands on him, Saul received his sight and was filled with the Holy Spirit. For the first time, Saul looked on the man whom he had seen in vision, who had now healed him, but whom Saul had originally intended to bring in chains to Jerusalem. That expression, filled with the Holy Spirit, was unique to Saul and to the twelve filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. It is not said of any other, Later, as the Apostle Paul, he was able to say, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than ye all. The first of Corinthians 14, verse 18. Ananias was a brave and faithful man of great compassion to do what he did. He put into practice the words of his Lord, who said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5, verse 44 to 45. Like Cornelius later, Saul received the Holy Spirit before baptism, 
but still arose and was baptized to wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord, chapter 22, verse 13 to 16. Saul then left the house of Judas, who had the same name as the betrayer of Jesus, and lodged with the disciples which were at Damascus. Saul confounded the Jews. Straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God, a title taken from Psalm 2, verse 7. It has been suggested that there were up to 40 synagogues in Damascus to judge by the number of Jews in the city. But the lesson for us is that Saul began preaching immediately after his baptism. Preaching is not something we can leave to others. Preaching is an activity in which every true disciple is continuously engaged from the very beginning of his walk in Christ. Saul confounded the Jews by his facility to prove all things from the Scriptures. But then Stephen had shown him how to do it, proving that this is very Christ. The Greek word translated proving has the meaning to construct, that is, to build his case using the scriptures. None could refute him, nor can any refute us if we do likewise. Soon, however, Saul felt the need for consolidation of his understanding of the scriptures and went, driven of the spirit possibly, into the wilderness of Arabia for some time. He tells us this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. Here he received instruction from Jesus, whom he had persecuted in a variety of matters, including how to keep the Lord's Supper. He mentions that in the first of Corinthians chapter 11. Today, of course, Arabia is well to the south of Damascus. But in those days, Arabia stretched as far north as the east of the city. Luke's words do not imply that Saul went as far as Sinai. On his return to Damascus, Saul began preaching again, and so powerfully that the tables were turned, and the Jews took counsel to kill him. Somehow Saul found out that they were watching the gates day and night to murder him. He must escape. Christ had said that, When they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, in Matthew 10, verse 23. And this Saul did by the disciples taking a great risk in letting him down the city wall in a basket. Quite a humiliating experience for the once proud Saul, the Pharisee. The second of Corinthians 11 verse 32 to chapter 12 verse 1. And so, three years after his conversion, in about AD 35, Saul arrived in Jerusalem where fear of him among the disciples had not abated, and consequently he was not received. Barnabas, meaning son of consolation, overcame the impasse by bringing him to the apostles and recounting the story of Saul's conversion and bold preaching. Later, in his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that it was only to Peter and James that he was introduced at that time. Galatians chapter 1, verses 18 to 19, so that he was still not generally known to the Ecclesia. Meanwhile, Saul determined to fulfil the Lord's charge, and unable to contain himself, spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians, 
but they went about to slay him. In other words, he continued the work of Stephen and with the same result. We would be utterly dismayed by such a reaction. But Saul, the one-time persecutor, understood it and was not deterred. Nevertheless, while praying in the temple, he received a vision of Jesus Christ in which he was warned to flee quickly to save his life. Acts 22, verses 17 to 21. When the brethren knew of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Why did the brethren take the initiative? Perhaps because Saul thought that the Jews would believe him because of his record. But if they wouldn't be persuaded when one rose from the dead, they were not going to be persuaded now by the traitor Saul, were they? Luke 16, verse 31. From Caesarea, Saul took ship to Tarsus, but passed through Syria and Cilicia on foot. He mentions this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 21. The reason why he left the ship is not known, but probably he had suffered the first of his shipwrecks. He mentions in the second of Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. Then the ecclesias of Judea, Galilee and Samaria had rest. How so? The Emperor Caligula had ordered Petronius to put a statue in the Most Holy. After receiving strong objection from a deputation of Jewish leaders, Petronius appealed to Rome, only to have his execution ordered by Caligula. In January AD 41, Caligula was assassinated and replaced by Claudius. As a result, the Jews' attention was diverted and the Ecclesias had a brief period of peace. It was a time of edification, comfort of the Holy Spirit and numerous conversions. There was unity in Christ, with believers living in areas that were normally despised by Jews. The word comfort, the Greek paraklesis, is the Greek term for the comforter, parakletos, of John 14, verse 16 to 26. This comforter is Jesus Christ, who was with them by his omnipresent Spirit. He is still with us today, as Paul says, Our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God even our Father, which hath given us everlasting consolation, paraclesis, and good hope through grace, comfort, paracleo, your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. The second of Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 16 to 17. Acts chapter 9, verse 32 to 43. Peter heals Aeneas and Tabitha. Peter took the opportunity to preach as far as Lydda, or Nod, in Benjamin, about 9 to 10 miles, 15 to 16 kilometres from Joppa. There he healed Aeneas, who had a long-standing brain disease, that had resulted in eight years of paralysis. The healing was immediate. It was symptomatic of the nation whose diseased minds had led to spiritual paralysis. Only Jesus Christ can make such people whole, and many turn to the Lord. This was done on the Sharon Plain, where Isaiah had said, They shall see the glory of the Lord, 
and the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Isaiah 35 verses 2 and 3. At Joppa, a seaport on the coast, Tabitha, or Dorcas in Greek, meaning a gazelle, was sick and died. Tabitha was a widow who received support from the Ecclesia, for which she worked making garments for the poor. Peter was immediately sent for, and he, on arrival, following Jesus' example, sent from the room the other widows who were grieving, so that he could pray without distraction. You might like to compare this with Mark chapter 5, verses 38 to 41. He prayed what James in chapter 5, verse 16 calls the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, which availeth much. Then with the words, Tabitha, arise. He took her hand, lifted her up, and presented her alive to the saints and widows. And as it became known around Joppa, many more believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with Simon at Tanner. This trade made Simon, and consequently Peter also, unclean by law. But then they shared the same name. And Simon must have been accounted worthy for Peter to stay with him. Matthew chapter 10, verse 11. It proved to be part of Peter's preparation to condescend to men of low estate, Romans 12, verse 16, and bring the Gentiles to the name of Jesus Christ for their salvation. The keys to the kingdom had been entrusted to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19. At Pentecost, he had used the first key to open the door of understanding to the Jews. Shortly, he was to use the second key to open the door of understanding to Cornelius and the Gentiles, including, dear reader, you and me. Chapter 10. The Conversion of Cornelius. The gospel had first been sounded out to Jews, to Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, and then, at the Lord's direction, to a Gentile proselyte, also in Acts chapter 8. Now it was to be taught to a Roman soldier. And not just to a soldier, to a centurion of the Italian band. But first, the centurion must be told where the truth of God could be found. And Peter must be prepared so that he would overcome his Jewish prejudice against Gentiles. It had to be Peter to be the first to take the gospel to, su to such a Gentile. Anyone less would not be believed by the Jewish brethren. And even then, Peter would be in trouble with the ecclesia afterwards. Caesarea is on the seacoast, about 30 miles north of Joppa. It had been built by Herod the Great in honour of Augustus Caesar. In Peter's time it was the seat of the governor and Roman headquarters in Palestine. By AD 40, when Cornelius was converted, there was an ecclesia there which included Philip, we read in Acts 21 verse 8. Cornelius, devout and God-fearing, was a proselyte of the gate. Being uncircumcised, he was not allowed to worship in the temple. An Italian, possibly known to the emperor, 
he had induced all his household to worship the God of Israel, and even had a devout soldier in his retinue. He gave much alms to the people, and prayed always. His life was a pattern of regular prayer, not just praying when he felt like it. He was of good report among the Jews. In this, Cornelius is an example to us of godly living. The Apostle Paul was later to encourage the same generous spirit of almsgiving in the Corinthian Ecclesia. In fact, it was while Peter was praying at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which is the hour of prayer we find from Psalm 141 verse 2, that the angelic vision came to him, and Cornelius the soldier was afraid. One day we will see our angel who will take us to the judgment seat. It will take the words, Oh, whatever our name is, a man greatly beloved, as was said to Daniel in Daniel 10 verse 11, or Thy prayers and thine arms are come up for a memorial before God to allay our fears. So pray and give. Though some have argued to the contrary, the account of Cornelius makes it clear that our children and unbaptized friends should pray and must pray. Their prayers are heard. The angel instructed Cornelius to send to Joppa for Simon Peter. There were things that Cornelius, though a devout and prayerful man, must hear and do. To be devout is not enough. We must know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And be obedient. God graciously allows sinful man to come and worship him but only in the way appointed. We cannot worship him on our own terms, for that would be in the vanity of our minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through our ignorance and by wicked works, as we read in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. Some have thought that Cornelius was the centurion whose servant to the Lord healed, and the devout soldier, the one who was healed. That's in Luke 7, verse 2. This suggestion is attractive, but in the absence of scripture testimony, remains doubtful. It may be that the Lord's teaching had affected more Romans than we give credit for. Acts chapter 10, verses 9 to 16, Peter's vision. Although Peter must have thought about his Lord's commission to preach to Gentiles and disgusted with Saul, he was still worried and needed persuading. So Peter was prepared to overcome his Jewish scruples by a vision three times repeated. The prophet Jonah had fled from Joppa to avoid preaching to Gentile Nineveh. Now Simon, son of Jonah, sought an answer in prayer on a rooftop in Joppa. Though strange to us to pray on a rooftop, it was in those times the place of prayer we find from Matthew 24, verse 17. His prayer was about the sixth hour, that is, midday. 
As Cornelius, two servants and one devout soldier approached Joppa. Apparently, Peter prayed three times a day, following David's example from Psalm 55, verse 17. The timing of the servants' arrival indicates that they had travelled most of the night, taking only an evening and a morning for their journey of nearly 50 kilometres, which is very rapid progress for men on foot. Peter's day would have started at sunrise, so by midday he was very hungry. While food was being prepared for him, he prayed and fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened, as had Stephen. He saw a sheet. The Greek word is linen. You might like to compare Revelation 19, verse 8 of the clothing of the saints, the bride of Christ. He saw linen, or a sheet, let down from heaven, full of all manner of clean and unclean beasts and creeping things and birds, symbolic of the moral condition of the Gentiles. Mixing these together made all ceremonially unclean. Therefore, despite his hunger, it was unthinkable to Peter to rise, kill and eat. He was told, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. The legal distinction between clean and unclean had been removed. Jew and Gentile are accepted in Christ, as we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. The linen sheet had been let down by four corners to indicate that men and women from north, south, east and west shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, as Christ says in Matthew 8, verse 11. The drawing up of the sheet with its contents into heaven showed that God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, and they would be accepted of him if they did. But could Jew and Gentile really enter together into fellowship in Christ when their lives were so different? The Greek word thuo, translated kill, means to offer first fruits to God, to sacrifice. Peter felt he just could not sacrifice and offer to God an unclean thing. Even after seeing the vision repeated three times, Peter still doubted what the vision meant. This was not because he was slow to understand, but because of his Jewish prejudices received from childhood and fostered by the law. They ran so deep. Acts chapter 10 verses 17 to 33. Peter sets out for Caesarea. Peter had seen the vision three times. Now three men stood outside the gate of the house, calling for him. That they did not enter the house shows their humility and their respect for Jewish scruples against Gentiles. Despite this, the Lord said to Peter, Go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. The lesson to Peter was becoming clear. Christ had set aside the laws of defilement by contact. He would remember the words of his master. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, 
and that's the ESV version of Mark 7, verses 15 to 19. Later, Paul was to say, I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. For meat, destroy not the work of God, in Romans 14. And again, it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer, the first of Timothy 4, verse 5. By the time the three men had explained their purpose and the angelic visitation to Cornelius, it was too late for Peter to begin his journey to Caesarea. So Peter did something that earlier would have been unthinkable. He called them in and lodged them. The next day Peter set out for Caesarea, wisely taking six brethren from Joppa with him to cover himself, which, from Acts chapter 11 verse 12, proved necessary. It took them only about a day and a half to arrive at Cornelius' house, which would have made it a very strenuous journey. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul said to Timothy in the second Timothy 2 verse 3. Meanwhile, Cornelius hadn't been idle. He had gathered together his kinsmen near friends to hear what Peter would have to say. This is an extraordinary example we could do well to follow. Cornelius was looking for Peter, and as soon as he saw his approach, he left the house and went to meet him, as had the father of the prodigal son, though here the circumstances were different. On meeting Peter, Cornelius, it says, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter, recovering from his surprise at such an unexpected reaction from a Gentile superior, took him up, saying, Stand up! I myself am a man. Here was humility in both Cornelius and Peter. One can hardly imagine priests of the church rejecting such obeisance. They demand the worship of men, especially the one who vainly boasts he is Peter's successor and the apostle of Jesus Christ. And so they entered the house, which, as Peter points out, no Jew then would normally do, because it was unlawful by rabbinical tradition, and was severely frowned on by the Jewish brethren, as we shall later find. But God hath showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean, said Peter, which is another lesson for us when we set out to preach the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 10, verse 29, Peter says, I not we, I came without gainsaying. No doubt the six Jewish brethren with him held back. After all, they hadn't received the vision. Then Cornelius explained for what purpose he had sent for Peter to come, saying, A man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard. There is no doubt then that the sincere prayers of those who are seeking truth are heard. And therefore we should encourage our children and friends to pray regularly. Significantly, the angel also added, Thine arms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. God also takes note of a generous spirit like his own, and is pleased to reward it. 
Peter had been very hungry when he prayed. Cornelius had been fasting. This fasting was evidently in preparation for his prayer, which must have been vitally important to him to take such a measure. For what then did Cornelius pray? The answer to that question must lie in Peter's preaching. It gave Cornelius enlightenment concerning Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. Him God raised up the third day to be judge of quick and dead. And so all were gathered, here present before God, to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. For it was God's will that all Cornelius' house should be saved. Cornelius' words revealed to the seven brethren that he already had a high degree of spirituality, and that all his house understood that Peter's words were the inspired word of God and would be received as such. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 to 43. Peter's speech. Peter's visit to Cornelius was the turning point in the apostles' preaching, after which the world began to be turned upside down, we read in chapter 17, verse 6. Within a very few years, all nations would hear the gospel that Peter first brought to the Gentile world. Similarly, within a few years from now, all nations will hear the gospel of the kingdom and will submit to Zion's king, as we have it, in Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7. Peter began, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The scales had fallen from Peter's eyes as earlier from Saul's. Luke's summary of what happened showed that Peter used the words of the law to justify preaching to Gentiles, even soldiers. There is a lesson from the law here for us too. Since God is no respecter of persons, and if he were, we would not have the truth, love ye therefore the stranger, we read in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 19. Exclusive Judaism had made God a respecter of persons. Peter's words were therefore spoken as much to his six brethren as to Cornelius and his entourage. It was an acknowledgement that to fear or to revere him and to work righteousness are preconditions to acceptance. Peter said, in every nation some are accepted. He did not say, in every religion. God's covenant is exclusive. It is his calling of persons that is not. If it were not so, or if sincerity was enough, there would have been no need to instruct Cornelius. What is involved in working righteousness? Verse 2 gives the answer. But we also remember John's counsel to soldiers. Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages, John said in Luke 3, verse 14. Even so, salvation is not by works alone. Peter is probably referring to the proverb, He that deals faithfully is accepted with him. Proverbs 12, verse 22, in the Septuagint version. The Lord said, 
This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent, in John 6 verse 29. So Peter also stresses the need for faith when he said, Whosoever believeth, in verse 43. Peter then said, The word, it's the Greek word logos, the word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, that word I say ye know. Peter realises that Cornelius was familiar with this. But is it true? Yes, it is. It was the Logos, which was from the beginning, and revealed in those last days in the only begotten Son, the Logos made flesh in Jesus' anointed, as we read in John chapter 1. Originally sent to preach peace to the lost sheep of the children of Israel, Matthew 15 verse 24, the gospel of peace was now come down to the Gentiles, even to a soldier, because Jesus Christ is Lord of all, that is, of Jew and Gentile. It is written, Peace, peace to him that is afar off, and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Isaiah 57 verse 19. Peter continued, That word, the Greek this time is the word rima, the spoken word, that word ye know. How did Cornelius know? Because this thing was not done in a corner, we are told, in Acts 26, verse 26. Furthermore, it is possible that Cornelius the centurion had spoken to the centurion that was in charge of Jesus' crucifixion, who had said, Truly this was the Son of God. So Cornelius knew the substance of the Lord's teaching. He would also know of the crucifixion, but not of the Lord's resurrection. That comes out in Acts 10, verse 40. Yet, says Peter, this was published in Judea and began from Galilee, which significantly was known as Galilee of the Gentiles, Matthew 4, verse 15. This Jesus of Nazareth, who had been anointed with spirit power so that he could do good and heal all oppressed with mental diseases, as in Acts 1 verse 8, for God was with him. He is Emmanuel, God with us, as we read from Isaiah 7 verse 14 and confirmed in John chapter 3 verse 2. In unbelief, the Jews slew him and hung him on a tree. The tree of knowledge of good and evil became a tree of death. But despite his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus will become a tree of life to all who overcome and eat of him. John 6, verse 53, 54. The proof of the resurrection was that God showed him openly to reliable witnesses because the Jewish leaders refused to see and would be false witnesses. He was not shown to those who refused to believe, though one rose from the dead, we read in Luke 16, verse 31. If further proof was necessary, Peter adds that they had actually eaten and drunk with him. His appearing was not therefore a vision or the imagination of distressed minds, but a reality. 
Luke 24, verse 30, and John 24, verse 12. This they were commanded to preach, and to testify that he is ordained to be the judge of both the living and the dead. Unlike the judges of the Lord's time and ours, the Lord Jesus Christ will judge the world in righteousness. When will this be? He will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And this will be after the resurrection of the dead, we find in John chapter 5. The judgment is not now. For Paul says in the second of Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ in the future. It is knowledge that brings responsibility, so that through his name, Yahweh, whosoever, Jew and Gentile, Joel chapter 2 verse 32 and Romans 10, 11 to 13, whosoever believeth in him should receive remission of sins. And to him all the prophets give witness, as Peter re-emphasized in his epistle, saying that the Spirit of Christ in the prophets testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. This remission of sins is an essential part of the new covenant of, in Christ, as Jeremiah revealed in Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 34. It was to these words of Jeremiah that the Lord referred in the upper room when he said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. For Jeremiah continues, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Acts chapter 10, verse 44 to 48. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Peter had not said how forgiveness of sins might be procured when there was a sudden and dramatic interruption. The Holy Spirit fell on all them which heard the word. The circumcised brethren were astonished, as well they might be, for they heard them speak with tongues the languages of other nations and magnify God. It was rightly expected that the Spirit was imparted by the laying on of hands, as we find in Acts 8 and verse 18. This event was an exception. Paul says that tongues are for a sign to them that believe not, in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 22. Here the gift was given as a sign to the believers of God's acceptance of Gentiles. Because of the six brethren with him, Peter was cautious and asked, can any man forbid water that these should be baptized, which have received the Holy Spirit as well as we? The Lord had baptized Cornelius and his household with the Holy Spirit, Acts eleven fifteen to 16 makes clear. Even so, it was not enough. Baptism with water into the name of the Lord was still necessary for the remission of sins, as we have learned from Acts 2, verse 38. Under the circumstances, none of them could refuse baptism to these Gentiles. So Peter commanded them to be baptised in the name of the Lord. Interestingly, we learn from Peter's question that baptism can be forbidden where it is not appropriate. There must be fruits meet for repentance. 
The Lord himself had given Peter the responsibility of binding some to the consequences of sin, presumably by forbidding baptism, and of loosing others by the forgiveness of sins, in Matthew 16 and verse 19. Because we believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture, we know that every word is important and has a purpose. There is a significant difference in the phrase, the gift of the Holy Spirit, from that used in verses 44 and 47, of the giving of the Spirit. The word gift is the Greek doria. Normally the word charis is used for spirit gift. The phrase gift of Holy Spirit is only used here and in Acts 2 verse 38 using the word doria and implies much more than just the ability to speak in tongues. In Acts 2 verse 38 the phrase evidently refers to the promise of the Holy Spirit which from verse 33 there is the fulfilment of all that is written in the prophets in the case of Jesus Christ and salvation in the name from verse 21 or the promise of verse 39 to those who are Christ's. You are invited to review the supporting passages mentioned in our commentary on Acts chapter 2 verse 38 to 39 noting that only the disciples worked wonders and signs, verse 33 of chapter 2, and not those baptised on that day who had not then received a power. What was poured out upon Cornelius was the gift of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a much larger and more important gift than speaking in tongues. We must not limit the Spirit's work to miracle only. On the other hand, it is important to note that where a spirit gift was given in the first century, its manifestation was quite different to any done by those who claim to have the spirit today. Investigation shows modern claims to be entirely false, even though the claimant might be quite sincere. It's so easy to be self-deceived. Cornelius invited Peter and the brethren to tarry several days to instruct them in the ways of Christ. This would cause consternation to law-abiding believers, but had not the Lord taught, Ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. The hour cometh, and now is, when true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Christ said this in John 4, verse 21 to 23. So from Peter's speech we have confirmation that Jesus is not God because, first, God sent Jesus to preach, verse 36. Secondly, God anointed him, verse 38. And thirdly, God was with him, also verse 38. Fourthly, he was slain, whereas God cannot die, verse 39. Fifthly, God raised him up from the dead, verse 40. And last, God ordained him to be judge of all. This is mentioned in verse 42. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, Peter's Defence. 
Acts of the Apostles, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, Peter's defense. News came to the Jerusalem Ecclesia that Gentiles had received the word of God from Peter. Surely the Ecclesia would rejoice at the news, but no. It began the problem of Judaism in the Ecclesias that not even the Apostles were able to stop until eventually the Jewish Ecclesias were destroyed. The problem was not the Apostles, but the Circumcision Party, who became a pressure group for circumcision and the law in the Ecclesias. The Circumcision Party didn't object to Gentiles being baptised, but to Peter's scandalous behaviour in going in to the uncircumcised and horror of horrors, even eating with them. And this criticism was made despite Peter having been appointed by Christ as the leading apostle. It is sin that separates men from God, not uncircumcision, not nationality, nor sinful nature, for which we cannot be held responsible, since it is not our fault. Peter was in trouble, but at least he was given the opportunity to explain though the circumcision party had already discussed the matter in his absence and condemned his action. So Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning. His was no instant decision. He had said he had considered the meaning of the vision before refusing to eat. It was the spirit that had said, Go with them, nothing doubting. And how wise he had been to take six others with him as witnesses. There had been seven of them in all the number of the covenant. These had come with Peter to Jerusalem to present their case. Notice too that Peter said, The man? It would surely have made the matter worse if he had named Cornelius or said that he was a centurion of the Italian band. Moreover, Cornelius had seen an angel and they couldn't criticise an angel. And then the angel had said that Simon shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. Their conversion had not been an emotional outburst, but the logical response to understanding the words of sound teaching. What is more, as Simon began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. So the Lord confirmed Peter's action before any of the six could accuse Peter of unlawfully teaching uncircumcised Gentiles. In verse 16, Peter recalls the words of the risen Lord when he said, John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Even in Peter's difficult situation, the Holy Spirit brought all things to his remembrance, whatsoever the Lord had said unto him. John 14, verse 26. For as much then as God gave them the like gift, and again it's the Greek word doria, for as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, this was the gift of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, of which tongues was but a sign to authenticate the gift. Then using the same argument that he had used earlier to the council, Peter said, What was I that I could withstand God? That's in Acts 5, 
verse 29 and verse 39. So any contention must be with God, not with Peter. At this, the circumcision party had to hold their peace. They finally glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life, thus confirming our understanding that the gift, Nuria, is life. The basis of acceptance is belief and repentance to salvation. Second of Corinthians 7, verse 9 to 10. And you might compare repentance to Israel, spoken in Acts 5, verse 31. So it's repentance to salvation. It's not who we are or where we were born. But the problem of Judaism continued and continues in legalistic attitudes to this day, as Paul points out in Galatians chapter 2. Acts chapter 11, verse 19 to 30. Antioch becomes the new centre. Persecution in Judea following the death of Stephen, far from limiting the spread of the truth, had the reverse effect. Brethren fled to Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, taking the word of God with them. Some Jewish brethren from the island of Cyprus and Cyrenia on the North African coast came to Antioch and spake to Grecians with the result that large numbers believed and turned unto the Lord Jesus. Antioch was situated in Syria on the Orontes River. It was the third city of the empire and capital of the east with a population of about 500,000. There were many Jews, but it was also full of idolatry. It was an unlikely place to preach and establish an important ecclesia. It was also an unlikely ecclesia, for it contained Gentiles at a time when preaching to such was definitely not condoned. But then, these were Hellenistic Jews who were not so exclusive as those who lived in Judea. But the hand of the Lord was with them, implying that signs confirmed the teaching, chapter 13, verse 11. And God gave the increase, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 and 7. When news of what was happening reached the Jerusalem ecclesia, they sent Barnabas to investigate, as earlier Peter and John had gone to Samaria, in Acts 4, verse 14. Barnabas was a Levite, originally from Cyprus, and fearless. He was aptly named the Son of Consolation, for he was a brother with largeness of heart, an example to all of kindly and godly living. He was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, like Stephen. Evidently the apostles had not seen fit to send an investigator of the circumcision party. For Barnabas, when he had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, and much people was added. Barnabas' first name was Joseph, meaning adding unto the Lord. Barnabas realised that there was a need to strengthen and set in order the new ecclesia, and stayed for that reason. It was ever needful, and still is, for this to happen in mission work so that new brethren and sisters can be consolidated in the faith. No doubt he exhorted them to work to a plan so that they would not just drift into the kingdom. 
if drifting into the kingdom is possible. We're reminded of Moses' appeal to Israel. Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe to do all the words of this law. For it is not a vain thing for you, because it is for your life. And through this thing ye shall prolong your days in the land. This from Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 to 47. Or again, the words of the Apostle Paul. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forth unto those things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 13 to 14. And so Barnabas exhorted the new ecclesia to cleave, that is, to abide with, to cleave to the Lord, because problems and difficulties will surely come, as we see in Acts 15, verse 1 and 2. Barnabas seeks Saul. The work at Antioch was such that extra help was needed, and Barnabas knew just the man. He remembered that at Saul's conversion he had been told he was to bear my name before the Gentiles. So Saul left his home in Tarsus, never to return. His call, like Abraham's, had come at last. He spent a whole year with the ecclesia in Antioch before his second visit to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the apostles were first derisively called Christians at Antioch, in Acts 11, verse 26. The Jews viewed the teaching of Jesus as Messiah, as blasphemy. No longer were the disciples seen as a Jewish sect. The separation was obvious to all. The Jews called them the sect of the Nazarenes, Acts 25, verse 5, but the disciples called themselves believers in Acts 5, verse 14, saints in chapter 9, verse 32, disciples in chapter 9, verse 36, brethren in chapter 11, verse 29, and brethren in Christ, Christadelphians, in Colossians 1, verse 32. It was about AD 44 that Agabus and others with a spirit of prophecy arriving from Jerusalem, said that a great dearth was coming upon the habitable land, the Oikimene, of Palestine in the days of Claudius Caesar. History records this severe drought in Palestine during the years AD 45 to 46. The name Agabus means locust, an appropriate name for one who announces a coming famine. A second prophecy of his is recorded in chapter 21, verses 10 to 11. This famine would affect the brethren more than others because their allegiance to Christ cut them off from Jewish welfare derived from the distribution of tithes by the Levites. The disciples determined to send relief to the brethren in Judea. Barnabas and Saul were entrusted with the difficult task of delivering it to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine, so that they shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. The righteous showeth mercy and giveth. 
That's from Psalms 33 verses 18 to 19 and 37 verses 18 to 21. Barnabas and Saul took with them Titus, who was uncircumcised. The details of this visit in AD 46 are found in Galatians 2 verses 1 to 19. This relief sent by Gentile brethren to the brethren which dwelt in Judea reinforced the fellowship that must prevail between Jew and Gentile saints, as we have it in Romans 15, verse 25 to 32. No prejudice must be allowed to divide the body of Christ. Instead, there was a sharing of the benefits that God had given with those that suffer, that continues in the body to this day. For God loveth the cheerful giver, Paul tells us, in the second of Corinthians, chapter 9, verse 7. The gift was safely delivered to the elders of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, chosen for the daily ministration, we found in Acts chapter 6. The very same elders that before long would have to settle the question of circumcision and keeping the law by Gentile converts. This is recorded in Acts chapter 15. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 12, James executed, Peter delivered, Herod judged. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, James executed. Herod, grandson of Herod the Great, and brought up in Rome, was now at the height of his power. Because of his friendship with Claudius, he ruled Judea, Samaria, and Lebanon as King Herod Agrippa I. An Idumean, in an attempt to be popular with the Jews, he tried to suppress the followers of Jesus Christ by removing selected prominent disciples. Before the Jews, he gave the appearance of keeping the law, but was quite prepared to break the commandment, Thou shalt not kill, by executing James. James, the brother of John, was the first apostle Herod beheaded with the sword. Like his brother, James was an energetic disciple. On an earlier occasion, they had wanted to call down fire from heaven. That was in Luke chapter 9. When his brother was murdered, continuing the outworking of Luke 21 verse 12, they shall lay their hands upon you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. Nothing could be done but submit to the will of the Lord. James had indeed been baptised with the baptism that his Lord had been baptised with. From Matthew 20, verse 20 to 23. Summary of James' life. James was older than his brother John. They were the sons of Zebedee and Salome, who was probably sister to Mary, the Lord's mother, and were called sons of thunder. That was in Mark chapter 3, verse 17. James and John were fishermen of Galilee who had immediately responded to the Lord's call, leaving their fishing to the care of their father. They both later became apostles, and with Peter were the first three among the disciples. They were together with their Lord at his transfiguration and in the garden in Gethsemane. 
They also received the Olivet Prophecy of the destruction of the temple. It was Salome, their mother, who had asked the Lord that her sons, James and John, might sit at his right hand and left hand in his kingdom. Although James himself does not seem to have been amb ambitious, as little is recorded of him. This was in Matthew 20, verse 20 to 23. He died in A.D. 44. Acts chapter 12, verses 3 to 19. Peter delivered. By this time, Peter had returned to Jerusalem. He was the next to be arrested, but he could not be killed immediately because those were the days of unleavened bread. In other words, he was arrested at the time of the anniversary of the Lord's crucifixion. Herod observed the formalism of the law, but with murder in his heart. But then, so had the priests in their treatment of the Lord Jesus. John 18, verse 28. The meaning of unleavened bread, sincerity and truth, is so opposite to the leaven of malice and wickedness shown by those who sat in Moses' seat. John was later to write, Ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Perhaps remembering the death of his brother, and the subsequent fate of Herod. This was in 1 John 3, verse 15, and Herod's fate, Acts 12, verse 23. This was Peter's third imprisonment, and he was very strictly guarded by four quaternions of soldiers, because he was a known escapee. Four quaternions would be four watches of four soldiers each watch, using the strategy later to be adopted by Hitler. Herod gave the people someone to hate so that they might respect and follow him. All this happened at Easter. Passover, the revised version, Acts 12, verse 4. Passover. And the ecclesia was praying without ceasing unto God for Peter's deliverance from death, which is what the Passover is all about. And as James, the Lord's brother, later remembered, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, or ecclesia, availeth much. How strange that Peter was sleeping, despite being chained to two soldiers, and his execution scheduled for the next day. His fear when caught out in Caiaphas' palace was a thing of the past. Probably he remembered that when his Lord was facing death the next day, he had said to Peter and the other disciples, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, and these things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That's in John 14 and John 16. Meanwhile, it is doubtful that Herod slept very well that night. So well did Peter sleep that it was necessary for the angel to strike him on the side to awaken him. Light shone in the prison as the angel raised Peter up and said, Arise up quickly. Then Peter's chains fell from his hands. The angel said, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. As Israel had done at the first Passover, Exodus 12 verse 11. Had not his Lord said, 
when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. John 21, verse 18. But Peter was not yet old. His time had not yet come. So casting his outer garment about him, Peter followed the angel out of the prison through the first and second ward. The final obstacle was a locked iron gate, but it opened, seemingly of its own accord, and they passed through into the city and along the first street, at which point the angel left Peter. Again, had not his lord said earlier, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, verse 18. Remember, this was the Passover. Peter had undergone a typical death, descending into prison as into the tomb of the Lord, and had been raised to newness of life by an angel whose light shone round about him, as light had shone in the tomb of the Lord's resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 3. Once again, the keepers had become as dead men at the presence of an angel. None moved to prevent Peter's escape. Not a dog moved his tongue, we read in Exodus 11, verse 7. The angel continued with Peter just as long as was necessary to see him to safety. After the angel left, Peter paused to collect his thoughts and said to himself, now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Of a surety, or truth, is an expression common to Peter. This we gain from chapter 4 verse 27 and chapter 10 verse 34. Here's the Lord hath sent his angel and delivered me, is a reminder of David's confidence in Yahweh when he sang, The righteous cry, and Yahweh heareth, and deliver them out of all their troubles. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. Psalm 34, verses 16 to 19. Meanwhile, Peter arrived at the house of Mary, John Mark's mother, where many were gathered together praying all night because Peter was to be executed the next day. This is the house where was the upper room in which Jesus kept the Passover with his disciples and where the apostles resided. It would appear that the good man of the house had died, perhaps killed during Saul's persecution. A young woman named Rhoda answered Peter's knocking, but on recognising his voice, in her excitement, instead of opening the door, she ran back in to tell the others. With the same incredulity that we would display in similar circumstances, they did not believe when their prayer for Peter's release had been answered. Rhoda's insistence that Peter was indeed outside changed their, Thou art mad, to, It is his angel. No doubt it was Peter's angel who had shone in the prison, caused his chains to fall off and the doors to open, 
For all saints have an angel who has charge of their affairs, we find in Matthew 18, verse 10. But it was not his angel at the door. Peter continued knocking, probably fearful of making a disturbance that could lead to his re-arrest. Finally the door was opened, and it is probably an understatement when Luke says, They were astonished. The disciples did not believe when the women told them that the Lord was risen, and didn't believe again when their prayer for Peter was answered. Later Paul was to write, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the Ecclesia by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Ephesians 3 verse 20. Peter goes into hiding. Jesus had instructed his disciples, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. And that's just what Peter did. He went into hiding and as soon as possible left Jerusalem. Where did he go? Certainly to where there was an established ecclesia and work for the apostle to do. And what is more likely than to a new Gentile ecclesia beyond Herod's reach? Almost certainly Peter went to Antioch, the new centre, where occurred the dissimulation mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14 by the Apostle Paul. In this incident, Peter, and even Barnabas, withdrew and separated himself from association with Gentile believers, fearing them which were of the circumcision. So relentless was the political power of the circumcision party that even the apostles were not able to overcome it. Eventually, it would destroy the Judean Ecclesius. At this point, Peter disappears from Luke's record, except for the briefest resurrection appearance, as it were, in chapter 15, when Peter returned to Jerusalem after the death of Herod. A review of Peter's life is therefore appropriate at this point. Summary of Peter's life Peter, meaning a stone, is a Greek name sometimes given in the Aramaic form Cephas. His Hebrew name is Simon, meaning hearing, John 1 verse 42. He was a fisherman in partnership with Andrew his brother and his cousins James and John, sons of Zebedee. It was Andrew who first introduced Simon, son of Jonas, to Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 41. His was a threefold calling. The first was to be a disciple in John chapter 1, verse 42. The second was to catch men in Luke 5, verse 10. And the third to be an apostle in Luke chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. It's interesting that his threefold calling is matched with his threefold confession of Christ. In Matthew 14, verse 33, John 6, verse 69, and Matthew 16, verse 16. But then you see, we also have his threefold denial of Christ before the cock crew. In John 18, verse 17 
25 and 26 to 27. But even that is matched, isn't it? His threefold protestation of love. John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17. Oh yes, Peter showed an ardent love for his Lord, mixed with courage and impulsiveness that early on sometimes led him to make mistakes. He was always in the forefront of the disciples, being one of the first three. Despite his early mistakes, Jesus had confidence in Peter, requiring him to strengthen thy brethren and to follow me, Luke 22, verse 31 to 32. He also showed an early maturity in understanding, proclaiming that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. After the ascension of the Lord, Peter immediately assumed leadership of the disciples. He moved first to propose a replacement for Judas, citing what must have been then an obscure scripture in support. This is in Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 22. He was the first to preach the gospel publicly in Acts 2, verse 14, and to heal in Acts chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. He was the first to take up defence of the truth before the council, chapter 4, verses 8 to 14, and to rebuke and judge in the Ecclesia, chapter 5, verse 3 to 4 and 9. He could not be cowed, chapter 5, verse 29 and verses 40 to 42. He was the first to raise the dead, chapter 9 and verse 40, to preach to Gentiles, justifying their inclusion in the hope, of Israel, Acts chapter 10, and to undergo a typical death and resurrection, Acts chapter 12. Though still able to make a mistake under pressure from Judaizing brethren, Peter did have the humility to learn from his mistake and from the Apostle Paul. There's a connection there in Galatians 2 verses 11 to 14 and the second of Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. Peter was an apostle to the circumcision, a pillar in the ecclesia, and a shepherd of the flock. James became the leader of the Jerusalem ecclesia, and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter went to Antioch and back to Jerusalem in Acts 15, verse 7. He also went to Corinth, we find from the first of Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 12, and 9, verse 5, and to Babylon, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 5, verse 13. This he did in strengthening his brethren of the diaspora. He had been one of the first to see the risen Christ, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 5 tells us that, and had special instruction from him, John 21, verse 15. Acts chapter 12, verses 18 to 25. Herod judged. At daybreak, when it was found that the prisoner had escaped, Herod sent soldiers to search for Peter in the homes of known disciples. No doubt this was a frightening and violent experience for them. Herod, being thwarted, turned his fury upon the keepers of the prison, examining them by torture and finally commanding that they be put to death. Such is the tyranny of corrupt power.
It would be fearful to fall into the hands of such a vengeful man, as many have. But vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, verses 30 to 31. And his judgment was about to fall upon the wicked Herod. Herod left Jerusalem for Tyre and Sidon, who had highly displeased him. War threatened. The two cities traded with Palestine for wheat. War would cut off their most accessible food supply. They would become dependent upon uncertain supplies brought in by sea. The people therefore desired peace. To celebrate the peace, games were held in honour of Emperor Claudius. The Jewish historian Josephus records that it was on the second day of the games that Herod sat upon his throne, the Greek Bema, judgment seat, and made an oration. Herod is known to history for his remarkable oratory and his vanity. He was dressed in silver clothing that, reflecting the intense light of the sun, dazzled the people. It was a stunning performance. The people shouted, It is the voice of a god and not of a man, making him higher than even the emperor. And immediately the angels smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the spirit. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory, for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. So we read in Psalm 115, verse 1. According to the account of Josephus, uh, of the death of Herod, a severe pain also arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom ye call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life, while providence reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be hurried away by death. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he departed this life, being in the fifty-fourth year of his age and the seventh year of his reign. Almost certainly his ordeal began by feasting at the games on undercooked pork containing worms. And you can read of that in Modern Medicine and the Bible by Alan W. Fowler, pages 26 to 27. So by divine providence in AD 44, the persecutor perished. But the word of God grew and multiplied, implying that the New Testament was being written as more and more turned to the gospel. By this time, Barnabas and Saul later the order would be reversed in chapter 13 verse 43 thereafter Paul being mentioned first returned from Jerusalem having fulfilled their ministry of sending relief to the brethren that's in chapter 11 verse 29 to 30 accompanying them was John Mark nephew to Barnabas Colossians 4 verse 10 
The whole scene changes at this point in Luke's recounting of the preaching of the gospel into all the world. The change may be summarised as followed. Acts chapter 1 verse 12, Jerusalem the centre. In Acts chapter uh, 12, chapters 12 to 28, Antioch became the centre. In Acts 1 to 12, Peter the chief apostle. Then in Acts 12 to 28, Paul became the chief apostle. In Acts chapter 1 verse 12, the gospel was preached to Samaria. In Acts 12 verse 28, the gospel is preached to Rome. And then in Acts 1 verse 12, rejected by the Jews of the land. In Acts 12 verse 28, rejected by Jews of the diaspora. The Apostle Paul now then becomes the central figure in the work of preaching as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. As he explained to the Galatian Ecclesias, the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. Galatians chapter 2 verse 7 to 8. So far, Luke has shown how the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ had been taught to the Jews. Through Peter's preaching, he has illustrated that God's purpose has undergone a development that had been foreshadowed in the Scriptures, even though the people had not foreseen it. That development was now fulfilled in his Son, whom they had crucified but whom God had justified in raising him from the tomb and exalted him to his right hand. The thrust of preaching to the Jews had been concerning forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ by grace. The Lord had passed because it could not save. The divergence from Judaism had become obvious. From this point, the thrust of preaching to Gentiles was different. It would be centred on the coming kingdom. Salvation through forgiveness of sins, a concept foreign to Gentiles, would follow after when the teaching of the kingdom had been accepted, and those interested would say, Men and brethren, what shall we do? This time, not to be saved, but to inherit the kingdom. Similarly, our preaching to the modern world should primarily focus on the coming kingdom. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ is certainly not secondary, but it is not something that people see any need for until interest in the inheritance has been aroused and our condemned state in this body of our humiliation realised. In some ways there is a similar pattern in the progress of events as Luke orders his treatise. Um, with Peter, his first address is in chapter 2. Paul's first address is in chapter 13. Peter heals a lame man in chapter 3. Paul heals a lame man in chapter 14. Peter's healing was by his shadow in chapter 5. Paul's healing was by his handkerchiefs in chapter 19. We read of Simon the Sorcerer of chapter 8, but when we turn to Paul we have Elymas the Sorcerer in chapter 13. 
Peter's laying on of hands in chapter 8, again. Laying on of hands of Paul in chapter 19. Then we have Tabitha raised from the dead in chapter 9. Paul raises Eutychus in chapter 20. Peter was imprisoned in chapter 12. Paul was imprisoned in chapter 28. We might also notice that Luke, having shown the rejection of Peter's gospel by the Jewish authorities, is now to lead us through the various difficulties faced by Paul until the acceptance, or at least the tolerance, of the gospel of the brethren in Christ in the Roman world. Chapter 13, Paul's First Missionary Journey Antioch Ecclesia was well blessed in that it contained a number of prophets and teachers. Prominent amongst them were Barnabas, Simeon that was called Niger, meaning black, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, being Herod's foster brother, according to the margin, and Saul. These were the spiritual leaders, the spirituals, of the Ecclesia, because their appointment had been made by the Spirit. We read of this in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. These fasted as they ministered to the Lord. We can assume that their earnest prayer, for it must have been earnest for them to fast at the same time, was for guidance about where next the gospel should be proclaimed and who should do it. The answer came quickly. Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So, fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them in fellowship, blessing and support, and sent them away. Galatians 2 verse 9 All such ventures today should similarly be conducted with ecclesial prayer, guidance and support. That does not take away individual initiative in the performance of the work any more than it did with Barnabas and Saul. But it does allow for proper briefing, coordination and doctrinal integrity. In short, let all things be done decently and in order, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 40. The first missionary journey had been set in motion not by man, but by God. Persecution in Jerusalem led the Antioch Ecclesia to take the initiative in preaching. Guidance of the Spirit led to preaching to Gentiles afar off. It was the Holy Spirit that had separated Barnabas the Levite, compare Numbers 8 verse 14, and Saul the Benjamite for his work. The chosen vessel began his life's great work at last. His preparation had taken about 12 years of Bible study and ecclesial experience. In this there are two important lessons. Firstly, for young brethren and sisters to prepare for future service while they can, before family and other responsibilities crowd out the opportunity. And secondly, to pray before making any decision or starting a new venture. 
The two friends travelled about 40 kilometres to Seleucia and boarded a vessel bound for Cyprus. The sailors cast off as the wind filled the sails. The boat rose and fell on the waves. Their adventure had begun. And though they didn't know it, it would be more than two years before they saw Antioch again. It's not surprising that they went to Cyprus first, for it had been the birthplace of Barnabas. And it was known that some preaching to the Jews had already taken place on the island. So on arrival at Salamis, Barnabas and Saul preached the word of God in the synagogue. It was standard practice for Barnabas and Saul to preach to the Jew first, before turning to the Gentiles, as we see in chapter 13, verse 46, and chapter 17, verse 1 to 2. Synagogues provided a ready audience of Jews who respected the Scriptures. They also provided an opening to preach to the Gentiles through proselytes who attended synagogue services. Saul was not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, as he wrote in Romans 1, verse 16. Though not mentioned earlier by Luke, they also had John Mark with them as their minister. The Greek word huperites used here means assistant or under rower. It would seem that John had not been selected by the ecclesia for the work, but had probably been invited by Barnabas to be their assistant. Acts chapter 13, verses 5 to 12. Preaching in Cyprus. Salamis was a busy commercial city situated on a fertile plain surrounded by hills. It must have had a large number of Jews there to support several synagogues. But there was little reaction to the preaching if Luke's silence on this point is anything to go by. Indeed, nothing is reported of any notable reaction as they taught throughout Cyprus until they came to Paphos at the western end of the island. Despite this, Barnabas returned to Cyprus to continue the work after the Spirit separated him from Paul. So there must have been some potential for the gospel on the island. Chapter 15, verse 39. At Paphos, things took an interesting turn. Here was a Jewish sorcerer. Jewish sorcerer. Greek magos, meaning wise, but implying an astronomer like the Magi. Such astronomers foretold future events by observing the juxtaposition of stars and planets, so that there was a combination of science and the supernatural. He also claimed inspiration, for Luke says he was a false prophet. He had an interesting name, Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, son of Joshua, means son of salvation. But in verse 10, Paul calls him son of the devil. His name by interpretation was Elymas, meaning in Arabic, the wise. But he had met his match in Barnabas and Saul. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 1 Corinthians 1 verses 19 to 20. 
how much more so the wisdom of a false prophet like Elymas. To make preaching even harder, the Temple of Venus, or Aphrodite at Paphos, was the centre of her immoral worship, for it is at Paphos that she is said to have appeared by rising from the foam of the sea. Consequently, Christians in Cyprus have adored the Virgin Mary by the name of Aphroditissa until modern times. Nevertheless, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a prudent, meaning intelligent man, invited Barnabas and Saul into his presence so that he could hear the word of God. The phrase in classical Greek means to ask questions. It was through Sergius Paulus that they met Elymas, who was one of the proconsul's companions. Luke as a historian. Luke has often been criticised for historical inaccuracies in his writing of Acts. But it is known that Antioch was the chief city of a senatorial province, and therefore governed by a proconsul since BC 22. An ancient Greek inscription dated in the proconsulship of Paulus was discovered at Soloi on the north coast of Cyprus. The ancient Roman writer Pliny the Elder, in his Natural History, mentions three times the proconsul Sergius Paulus as being interested in intelligent researches. He also writes that on Cyprus there was a school of magic art taught by Jews. With the passing of time, Luke has been found to be a completely accurate historian, despite his critics of the 19th century. But then, their work has faded, while Luke's remains. Elymas struck with blindness. The proconsul was obviously impressed by Saul's reasoning, fearful of losing his standing before Paulus and the people. Bar Jesus, Elymas, opposed the faith. But Paulus was too intelligent a man to be turned away by such scheming. The matter in any case was not left in doubt because Saul fixed his gaze on Bar-Jesus and with the terrible words, O full of all subtlety and all mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And Elymas was struck with blindness, so that he needed to be led by the hand. The blindness of Elymas opened the eyes of Paulus. Luke says he believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. No doubt the case of Bar-Jesus reminded Saul of his own earlier spiritual blindness, followed by literal blindness incurred on the road to Damascus. He too had to be led by the hand into the city. But Saul had repented. Whether Elymas did so we are not told. But Sergius Paulus did. Undoubtedly Elymas' blindness came as a result of the finger of God as the magicians Janes and Jambres had said to Pharaoh about the power of Moses. The sorcerer could no longer see the stars and constellations that were necessary to his spurious prognostications. 
Why did Luke make so much of this incident? Elymas would have been representative of a widespread system of pseudo-scientific religion. Therefore, the victory of the Gospel of Paphos would have had far-reaching consequences. Bar-Jesus may also have done his magic arts blasphemously in the name of Jesus, for Paul's denunciation was particularly severe. Paul describes Elymas as having all the subtlety and mischief of the serpent in Eden. He was a seed of the serpent, perverting the right ways of the Lord with his lying words. Ye shall not surely die. Ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Paul adds that Elymas was a son of the devil, for Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer, a manslayer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. For he is a liar and the father of it, and the Lord here is speaking, of course, as the serpent, and those who follow the ways of the serpent. The passage is taken from John chapter 8, verse 44. How true are the Lord's words! The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Matthew 13, verse 38. Other scriptures emphasise the point. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things, prudent, and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but transgressors shall fall therein. Hosea 14, verse 9. Or again, which have forsaken the right way, and have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, to whom the mist of darkness, such as came upon Elymas, is reserved forever. The second of Peter, chapter 2, verse 15 and 17. So the hand of the Lord was heavy upon Elymas, as it had been upon Ashdod, when the ark of God had been taken there in captivity. 1 Samuel 5, verse 6. His blindness came upon him like a mist, in the way Isaiah had forewarned. They have made them crooked paths. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as in the night. We are in desolate places as dead men. Isaiah 59, verse 8 and verse 10. Meanwhile, Sergius Paulus, when he saw what was done, believed, surely implying that he was baptised. He was astonished at the doctrine of the Lord, as Isaiah had anticipated rulers would be when he wrote, So shall he sprinkle, that is, for forgiveness of sins, many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Isaiah 52, verse 15. Saul, also Paul. Up to this point in Luke's account, Saul had been preaching largely to Jews. At Paphos the emphasis changed to preaching to Gentiles. Saul therefore began to use an alternative Greek name that was more appropriate to his Greek-speaking audience. And unto the Jews, he wrote later, 
I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, as he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20 to 22. He therefore had two names, as was common at that time. Saul meaning asked for, which he certainly had been, and Paul meaning little, as he was in his own eyes. He considered himself to be least of all the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. On one hand, to such a Sergius Paulus, a Roman Jew would have been doubly interesting. On the other hand, the change of name indicated that the partition between Jew and Gentile was gone forever. Acts 13, verse 13 to 52, at Antioch in Pisidia. Paul and his company loosed from Paphos. So saying, Luke informs us that Paul had now taken over the leadership of the expedition. John's defection. They came to Perga in Pamphylia, where John had left them, and returned home to Jerusalem. Why did John go back? We're not told what caused John to leave the party, nor does the word of God reproach him, though Paul felt it deeply. We see that in chapter 15, verse 38. There would be a number of factors that led to John's defection, which we can only guess at. They had probably not intended in the beginning to go beyond Barnabas' home of Cyprus. But Paul was now the leader, and he was determined to extend their journey into unknown and dangerous territory. No doubt, too, John was homesick after so long a time, and was concerned about his widow's mother. But what made his defection so hurtful was that, to judge by Paul's comments to the Galatian Ecclesias, in Perga Paul became sick. The area was known for its enervating atmosphere, and Paul almost certainly went down with malaria. I have frequently seen the shivering fever, pain, and extreme weakness caused by this disease in the Pacific Islands, where malaria is endemic. The sufferer is in a pitiable condition, and in those days was thought to have been struck down by the gods for incurring their wrath. Malaria fits what we know about Paul's recurring illness, and malaria does recur frequently. This makes the reception of Paul's gospel by the Corinthians all the more remarkable. Paul comments on this when he writes to them. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The first of Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Despite this serious setback, John later recovered Paul's trust and confidence in him, and Paul wrote at the last, For he is profitable to me for the ministry. The second of Timothy 4, verse 11. May it be that all our young men and women who turn back would recover and enter again into the Father's and our affections as John Mark did.
Paul did not preach in Perga, but as soon as he was well enough to travel, headed into the cooler climate of the mountains to be received by the Galatians, despite his obvious weakness. He writes to them later in commendation of their reaction to his temptation which was in my flesh, ye despise not nor reject it, but receive me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 verse 13 to 15 and chapter 2 verse 20. His perseverance in his suffering was to them a savour of Jesus Christ. From Perga to Antioch is about 106 miles, 170 kilometres, through the Taurus Mountains. The journey would take eight or nine days, but probably a lot longer in Paul's weakened state. Throughout the journey they would be in considerable danger from robbers. No doubt they prayed for safety and were protected by angels. Later Paul was able to write, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in the second of Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. And so the little party arrived at Antioch, a Romanized city on the road to Rome, where was a large Jewish community. Here Paul and Barnabas attended the Sabbath service and, being visitors from afar, were invited to give any word of exhortation. The Greek word is paraklesis after the law and prophets had been read. The word means comfort or consolation. If you compare Luke chapter 2 verse 25, we have the word in the phrase, the consolation of Israel. It is also used to describe the exhortation given by a commanding officer to fill his troops with determination before sending them into battle. So Paul beckoned with his hand and addressed the men of Israel and ye that fear God, the latter phrase referring to Gentile proselytes in attendance. Acts chapter 13, verse 16 to 43, Paul's speech. Luke has previously given us examples of Peter's speeches. Now he gives us his first illustration of Paul's. Luke records it to show us how to make our preaching more effective so that God's word will not return unto him void. Though Paul's remarks were given without notice, the careful construction of his ideas shows that he had given much thought in how to present the gospel, so that he was ready as soon as opportunity presented. Indeed, it seems those most successful in introducing the gospel to others are successful because they have already prepared in their minds what they will say when opportunity arises. So let us summarise Paul's speech and see how to put a lecture together. Verses 16 to 22 are the promise of a king. And that can be subdivided, the promise of a king. Verse 17, the God of Israel brought the nation out of Egypt. Verses 18 to 20, in his love he nourished and protected them. Verses 21 to 22, he raised up David to be their king. So that's the promise of a king. Verses 23 to 31, the promised seed of David is Jesus. So verse 23, the seed of David is Jesus, the Saviour. In verse 24 to 25, John the Baptist witnessed to him. Verses 26 to 27, 
they should believe. The rulers at Jerusalem condemned him, for they did not know the prophets. Verses 28 to 29. Jesus was innocent. In crucifying him they fulfilled scripture. And verses 30 to 31. Eyewitnesses confirmed that God had raised Jesus from the dead. So there we have the outline of the promised seed of David being Jesus. Paul then moves in verses 32 to 37. The promise of Jesus' resurrection is confirmed by Scripture. So how do we see, verse 32 to 37, the promise of Jesus' resurrection confirmed by Scripture? Well, verses 32 to 35, death and resurrection of Jesus was predicted in Scripture. And verses 36 to 37, the prophecy could not apply to David but to his seed. Verses 38 to 41, appeal and warning of judgment to come. Yes, judgment is coming. It's an appeal and a warning. Verses 38 to 39, forgiveness and justification offered by faith in Jesus. Forgiveness, justification by faith in Jesus. Verse 40 to 41, Beware of coming judgment as foretold in the prophets. We should note that in his speech, although Paul said that the law of Moses could not justify from sins, he did not immediately attempt to turn Jews away from the law, but used it as a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by or through faith. Galatians 3 verse 24. Sadly, some did turn away to Judaism when teachers from the circumcision party arrived in Galatia, as we read in Galatians chapters 1 and 3. Though it cannot be definitely proved, it is thought that Paul based his remarks on the readings for the 44th Sabbath, which are Deuteronomy 1 and Isaiah chapter 1. These are the hafteras of rebuke that are read on the Sabbath that precedes the fast for the fall of Jerusalem. Paul begins by saying, God had exalted or lifted up his people when they were strangers in Egypt and brought them out of it. This statement is taken from the Septuagint of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. He suffered, bore them in the margin, that is, fed or nourished them. And he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan. He gave them their land for an inheritance. You might like to compare Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 31 and verse 38. History shows that God continually provided for his people, though they were ungrateful. God gave them judges. They asked for a king. But it was a mistake, Isaiah 1 verse 26. Their first king Saul, though ideal from a human standpoint, lacked faith and moral courage. So God refused their choice and chose David. God's choice is always best, although they consist consistently refuse it. Paul says, I have found David. This is from Psalm 89 verse 20. I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart. From 1 Samuel 13 verse 14 which shall fulfil all my will, Psalm 40, verse 8. Of this man's seed, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. 
no ordinary man could possibly save. Jesus, Yah, shall save, is the only Saviour. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. But of course, the Saviour God raised unto Israel must have a forerunner to prepare the people for his appearing. John, who preached the baptism of repentance, was that forerunner. He was the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, as Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 says. John was my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, we are told in Malachi 3 verse 1. All considered John to be a prophet, Matthew 21 verse 26. But Paul also adds that John fulfilled his course, Acts 13 verse 25. The Greek word dromos, translated course, is associated with running, as Elijah ran before Ahab, the first of Kings, chapter 18, verse 46. Paul continues by addressing his hearers as children of the stock of Abraham, because Abraham was the patriarch to whom the promise of the seed was given. When he says, Whosoever among you feareth God, he is addressing the Gentiles in the synagogue congregation. His words, to you is the word of this salvation sent, are a play on the name Jesus, salvation. But if Jesus is Messiah, the obvious question is, why then did the rulers in Jerusalem condemn him? To meet this objection, Paul says it was because they did not understand the prophets, even though their words are read every Sabbath day. Paul uses the word fulfilled twice as he reviews the testimony of the prophets concerning Jesus Christ and themselves. One of them, Isaiah, had written, Israel doth not know, my people doth not consider, our sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers and murderers. Isaiah wrote those words in chapter 1, verse 3 to 4, and verse 21. Jerusalem had condemned him to death despite the words of the prophets and the fact that they could find no cause of death in him. Even Pilate three times declared, I find no cause of death in him. But still they desired, asked for Pilate to slay him. Yet another mistake. Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified on a tree. Was it a single stake or a cross? Both words are used in the authorised version. A cross, a pagan symbol, is not inappropriate since he died unto sin once, Romans 6 verse 10. But the Gospels use the word storos, an upright stake. Acts of the Apostles uses the word zulon, a wood or tree. Vine, in his expository dictionary of New Testament words, says that the cross was not used in the church until the middle of the third century. We can conclude then that the Lord was crucified on a stake, not a cross. Paul uses the word zulon to draw attention to the law that said, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21 verse 23. How then could a crucified man, cursed by law, be Israel's king?
But crucifixion did not invalidate Christ's claim to be Messiah, because God raised him from the dead. Far from invalidating Jesus' claim, his death and resurrection confirmed it. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 69. Though his crucifixion is a stumbling block to the Jews' acceptance of him, that he was raised and seen of many witnesses proves that salvation must be in his name. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. In him God will fulfil his promise made to Abraham and his seed. The Greek text does not contain the word again in Acts 13, verse 33. Therefore, Brother John Carter, in his series of talks on the speeches in Acts, relates the verse to God raising up Jesus from birth, as in Psalm 2, verse 7, whereas verse 34, the next verse, is definitely raising him up from the dead in fulfilling the promise to David. The divine initiative in thus working out man's salvation is seen in both his birth and his rebirth from the tomb. Paul's use of the words of Isaiah 55, verse 3, I will give you the sure mercies of David, proves that the promise, which is an everlasting covenant, involves the death and resurrection of David's son. The second of Samuel 7, verses 15 to 16. Citing Psalm 16, verse 10, Paul continues, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption making the contrast with David, who did see corruption. For, as Paul says, his sepulchre is with us to this day, and as Peter taught at Pentecost. And now, turning to the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, the just shall live by his faith. Paul adds, Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and in him all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the Lord of Moses. To be justified is to be forgiven. The facts fit only with Jesus and no other. Further in saying, all that believe, Paul is inclusive of Jew and Gentile to be justified by faith. Finally, Paul cites Habakkuk again. His speech must have been included an exposition of Habakkuk, of which we have only the barest summary recorded by Luke. Then, seeing his audience growing restless, his final quotation repeats the prophet's warning of judgment to come in a dreadful day, when only the just shall live by his faith, while the unbelieving will be condemned in the overthrow of the nation. Habakkuk 1 verse 5. This overthrow was by the Chaldeans, but history repeated itself in AD 70 in the Roman invasion and will be repeated again when the northern confederacy of Russia and Europe will come like a wolf on the fold. Acts 13 verses 42 to 52 A light of the Gentiles The congregation broke up, but the Gentiles in his audience wanted to hear more during the week following. So Paul and Barnabas continued to speak to them and to many of the Jews, persuading them to continue in the grace, the Greek charis, favour, of God. Paul refers again to this grace, which is the forgiveness of sins, to the same Galatian audience later, Galatians 2 verse 21 and 5 verse 4. 
News of the teaching that a crucified man had been raised from the dead soon spread through the city, for the next Sabbath came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Seeing the multitudes, the Jews were filled with envy, opposing and even blaspheming against the words of Paul, just as the Jews of Jerusalem had against Christ. They had accused both Jesus and Stephen of blasphemy, but in reality it was they who were guilty. Even Paul himself had once been a blasphemer and a persecutor, as he says in the first of Timothy chapter 1 verse 13. Paul, being unable to continue, gave a sober warning and left. In his warning, Paul cited Isaiah 49 verse 6, which refers to the work of Israel's Messiah. But Paul extends its application to those also who teach in the name of Jesus Christ. After all, the Lord had said, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me. And he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Luke 10 verse 16. To the Corinthian Ecclesia Paul wrote, Now we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. In the second of Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20. Although Paul's principle was to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles, there was at Antioch a major change of emphasis from preaching to Jews to preaching to Gentiles, because Jews had judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. On hearing this, the Gentiles glorified the word of the Lord, and as many were appointed, King James Version, ordained, to eternal life, believed. Gentiles believed and were baptised, with the result that the word of God went throughout all the region. Here was another Antioch that had become the centre of preaching activity. Here is another example of how we ought to preach. First establish a centre from which to work, and then spread out into the surrounding region. The promise to Abraham that in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed had taken another step forward. But progress is always attended with difficulties. Envious Jews stirred up the devout and honourable women. Proselytes they were, to get at their husbands in the manner of the serpent to Eve. And the chief men, wealthy traders of the city, so that Paul and Barnabas were persecuted and expelled out of their coasts. The persecution, probably a beating, would be serious, if you refer to the second Timothy 3 verse 11. Nevertheless, they did bravely return when things had quietened down. We see in Acts 14, verse 22. So Paul and Barnabas left Antioch, shaking the dust of the city off their feet as the Lord had recommended as a witness against the people. That was in Matthew 10, verses 14 to 15. But they left behind a new ecclesia of disciples filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, Joy, because the Lord had said, Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Matthew 5, verse 10 to 12. Holy Spirit here referring not to power, but the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit was given to ordain elders when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Acts 14, verse 23. 
the newly baptized disciples had become followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction and with joy of Holy Spirit. The first of Thessalonians 1 verse 6. Would that we also, brethren and sisters, of the Apostles, chapter 14, preaching to the Galatians. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 to 7, at Iconium. The 80 miles, or 130 kilometre journey from Antioch to Iconium, would take several days. Iconium is a similar height above sea level as Antioch, about 1,100 metres, and therefore has a suitable climate for someone susceptible to malaria. This was Paul's thorn, Greek sharp stake, in the flesh. He mentions in 2nd of Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 7. Paul was now about 40 years of age. Once again, preaching commenced in the synagogue, presumably on a Sabbath. Initially, great success followed their preaching, for a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. But success led to Jewish opposition and jealousy once again, as it had in Acts 13 and verse 45. And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. Some Jews seem to have had considerable influence in the Roman world at that time. Because wives of the principal men of a city frequently became proselytes. Judaism was a much more desirable way of life than the gross immorality of idolatry, and therefore appealed to these women. These were the devout and honourable women, through whom Jewish influence could be all the more dangerous. Chapter 13, verse 15, and chapter 17, verse 4, and verse 12. They had both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sins all way. First of Thessalonians 2, verses 15 and 16. Nevertheless, Paul and Barnabas boldly continued giving testimony to the word of his grace for a long time, probably over several weeks. In answer to prayer, the Lord granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. These miracles confirmed the word of his grace and prevented any early outbreak of violence. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. Grace is opposite to law. This grace, the Greek word charis, is not a miraculous spirit gift, but salvation. For by grace, charis, are ye saved through faith? We see in Ephesians 20 verse 32 and Ephesians 2 verse 8. Interestingly, Paul and Barnabas are referred to as apostles, though they were not of the twelve. Sadly, the division provoked by the Jews eventually resulted in violence and an attempt by the Jews to stone them. As a result, it became necessary to flee from Iconium, not because of cowardice, but because of the prudence recommended by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 10, verse 23. 
They fled from the region of Pisidia to Lystra and Derbe in Lycaonia, and there they preached the gospel. Acts chapter 14, verse 7 to 20, at Lystra. Lystra was at the limits of Greek culture and influence. Paul did not normally preach beyond the point where some education made for easier understanding of God's word, and where Roman rule gave order and security. At Lystra there was no synagogue but a man impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked, had faith to be healed. Here Luke's threefold emphasis on the man's physical disability serves to highlight the nature of the healing when it came. Of course, the Lord had also healed an impotent man at the pool of Bethesda, who had not walked for thirty-eight years, in John 5. And Peter had healed a lame man who had never walked at the beautiful gate of the temple, in Acts chapter 3. As with this man at Lystra, their faith had been confirmed by their healing. This man also leaped and walked, even though, unlike us, he had never learned to walk. The power of the miracle could not be gainsaid, and the people knew it. In the speech of Lycaonia, which neither Paul nor Barnabas understood, they said, The gods are come down unto us in the likeness of men. They called Barnabas Jupiter, the father or chief of the gods, which is probably an indication of Barnabas' age. Paul they called Mercurius, the messenger of the gods, because he was the chief speaker. The revised version correctly uses the alternative names of Zeus and Hermes. Later Paul was to write to the Galatians and remind them, My temptation which was in my flesh ye despise not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, in Galatians 4 verse 14. There was probably a temple to Jupiter just outside the city where preparations began for sacrifices to be made. On realising what was happening, the two apostles rent their clothes in protest, something no god would do. Then Paul, no doubt using the gift of tongues, cried out, Sirs, why do ye such things? His words, turn from these vanities, was hardly tactful, but necessary under the circumstances. Straight to the point and perfectly scriptural. Deuteronomy 32 verse 21 we marvel at how the Apostle is able to turn an ugly incident into an opportunity to preach the Gospel. Luke faithfully records this as an example of how, if we are scripturally prepared, just about any event can be made into a springboard to launch into the Gospel. Since there were no scriptures held by the people that Paul could refer to, then he must preach without them. How could such a thing be done? In fact, Paul's argument was firmly based on the Old Testament, though no direct quotation or reference to Jewish history was possible under the circumstances. He appealed to the works of creation to prove the existence of a God higher than any they held in esteem. It is vanity to worship something less than oneself. Paul based his remarks on Psalm 146. Happy is he that hath the God of Israel for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, 
which made heaven and earth, the sea and all that therein is, which keepeth truth for ever. Psalm 146, verses 5 to 6. What is more, says Paul, he is the living God. Otherwise the benefits of rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness would have failed. And filling our hearts with food and gladness is certainly something evolution cannot do. In fact, the failure of evolution is evident in that increasingly it has to be supported by legislation, lest the logic of creation or intelligent design wins the debate. A summary of Paul's speech at Lystra. Paul and Barnabas were not gods, but men. The power to heal came from the living God, and with that we can compare Acts 3, verse 12 to 16. Their mission was to turn men from idolatry to serve the living God. He is the creator. He has allowed men to walk in their own ways, but now appeals to them to turn. None but he is to be worshipped. Evidence of the creator is seen in fruitful seasons, etc., as we read from Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And Psalm 104, verses 13 to 15, and so on. The people no doubt felt foolish and humiliated. Under the circumstances, it was easy for Jews arriving from Antioch and Iconium to persuade the people to stone Paul. These Jews had travelled a long way just to make trouble. It is an indication of the depth of their hatred that they were prepared to come to sea and land for such a purpose. Matthew 23, verse 15. Paul was cruelly stoned, a Jewish method of execution, dragged out of a city and left for dead. That Paul rose up, the Greek anistemi, to stand up before the disciples, not only indicates that progress had been made in preaching, for now there were disciples in Lystra, but that his amazing recovery was surely a miracle. It was a type of death and resurrection that probably made Paul feel a little better about his involvement in the death of Stephen, now that he could share the like suffering. He was later to write to them, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? In Galatians 3 verse 1. He wrote similarly to the Corinthian Ecclesia, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. In the second of Corinthians 4 verse 10, and he uses the phrase, in deaths oft, in the first of Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 23. Amongst those who believed and formed the new ecclesia were Timothy and his family. We have them mentioned in Acts 16, verses 1 to 2. Timothy was a highly thought of young brother who was to become my own son in the faith. To him Paul would write, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. In the first of Timothy chapter 1 verse 2 and the second of Timothy chapter 2 verse 3. And Timothy knew exactly what this meant from the very first because of Paul's own example. 
He also wrote to Timothy, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. But out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The second of Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 to 12. What courage, what faith, what love for the infant ecclesia it took for Paul to straightway go back into the city and then to return again shortly after. Paul's recovery from his injuries must have been a miracle for him to be able to leave the next day for Derby, even if the stoning did not actually kill him. At Derby he taught many, and yet another new ecclesia began. One member was Brother Gaius, who travelled later with Paul to Jerusalem, as we read in chapter 20, verse 4. But Paul and Barnabas had gone far enough. It was time to return to Antioch and report to the Ecclesia, lest worry about their safety became acute after such a long absence. They returned by the same route as their outward journey, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. In each of the young Ecclesias this happened. To return via Lystra, where Paul had been stoned, Iconium, where they had been assaulted, and Antioch in Pisidia, where they had been persecuted and expelled, was an extraordinarily brave act by the two faithful preachers. Through much tribulation. Life in the truth has its difficulties, though we're tending to settle for a more comfortable life today. But if we continue in the faith, then we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom. The Lord gave the same warning when he said, But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Even so, Paul adds, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Romans 8 verse 18 he wrote that no man should be moved by these afflictions in the first of Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, but rather rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. The first of Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 16. The redeemed will have come out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, Christ said in Revelation chapter 7. Our tribulations are generally subtler than in these last days when Perilous times have come, therefore, take heed, watch ye therefore, and pray always, Paul says in the second Timothy chapter three, verse two to four. It is necessary that we exhort one another to continue in the faith and support each other, for even the Lord learned obedience by the things that he suffered, Paul says in Hebrews five verse eight. We need each other. To isolate ourselves from the brethren will certainly lead to our failure. 
In Paul's time, the exhortation was necessary because the ecclesias were soon to be overwhelmed by Judaizers with their false teaching of circumcision and keeping of law, as we see in Galatians. Paul and Barnabas ordained elders in each ecclesia and prayed with fasting because the responsibility of the work in a hostile city would be great. And bear in mind that the Old Testament was not in general circulation and the New Testament had not then been completed. From Luke's brief comment, another insight is given into the structure of the early ecclesias. Elders appointed to have the oversight of an ecclesia must have a constitution to work to. There is precedent for this throughout Scripture. Samuel had written the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in a book, the first of Samuel 10, verse 25. David had enlarged Samuel's constitution in preparation for the addition of a temple, in the first of Chronicles chapter 9, verse 22. The first constitution of the Jerusalem Ecclesia, and no doubt all subsequent constitutions, was based on the principles of continuing steadfastly in the Apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers, we learn in Acts 2, verse 42. The Corinth Ecclesia was to keep the ordinances, as I delivered them to you, and Titus was sent to Crete to set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city. Titus chapter 1 verse 5. Interestingly, they came back to Perga on the coast where Paul had been sick. After passing through Pamphylia, Paul obviously was a lot better, for on this visit they stayed for a while to preach the word. Taking ship from Italia, the port of Perga, after two years, Paul and Barnabas finally arrived back in Antioch on the Orontes River about A.D. 48. Here they rehearsed all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. The apostles took no credit for the results of their labours. God gave the increase. We should give them credit, nevertheless, for their incessant labours under considerable hardship, labours from which we still are able to benefit. The work of our brethren and sisters should be acknowledged and appreciated by us, even though we know that they do the Lord's work. And it is he who blesses the work and gives the increase. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labour, for we are labourers together with God, Paul says in the first of Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6 to 9. In an age when very few travelled, the Ecclesia must have listened with amazement as they heard how remarkably the door of faith had been opened to the Gentiles. It had involved much suffering, for Paul could write without contradiction, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Galatians 6, verse 17 and 3, verse 1. Today, many around the world are able to read Paul's speeches in their Bibles, but very, very few see what he is really saying and believe in the way his first hearers did. The reason is that, unless the Lord opened the heart, they cannot understand. Acts 16, verse 14 is proof of that. How thankful then should we be to our Father that our ears and our hearts have been opened and we believe unto life eternal.
Apostles, chapter 15, the Jerusalem Conference. Acts 15, verses 1 to 5, Deputation to the Apostles. The work of consolidating the Ecclesia and preaching the truth continued at Antioch for some time, until a major problem arrived in the shape of certain men from Judea. Their point of contention was that all converts should be circumcised after the manner of Moses. Paul, the one-time Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, who once lived after the most traitor sect of our religion, as we read in Acts 23 verse 6, immediately saw the threat to the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ and refused to give place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Galatians 2, verse 2 to 5. The Antioch Ecclesia was unsure. Paul was very sure. His Lord had taught, He that believeth and is baptized, not circumcised, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. In fact, baptism is a token of the circumcision of the flesh, we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 12. So serious was the issue in Paul's mind that Luke does not even call these men brethren. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says they were false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Galatians 2, verse 3 to 5. These spies had come all the way to Antioch just to find out whether Gentile believers were being circumcised, and if they were not, to oppose Paul and Barnabas and demand that they were. They were Judaizers, legalists, who ate the heart out of the ecclesias. Even Paul, Barnabas, James and Peter couldn't overcome them because legalists lead a strict life with high standards that seem to be above reproach. They said, accept, basing their demand on Moses, not Abraham. In other words, the issue was law or grace, salvation by works or by Jesus Christ. They had a strong case since the law was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator at Sinai, as Paul admits in Galatians 3 verse 19. When there had been no small dissension, the word is a standing up or uproar, as in Acts 19 verse 40, so there was this uproar and disputation with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So with the blessing of the Ecclesia, the journey to Jerusalem began. This would be Paul's third visit to the city after his conversion. In Paul's epistle to the Galatians, there is no mention of this visit to Jerusalem, nor of the resolution that passed there, even though the epistle deals with the same matters of circumcision and law, the weak and beggarly elements, and grace. And therefore we conclude that this epistle was written from Antioch before the journey to Jerusalem. It is unlikely that the dissimulation or hypocrisy of Peter mentioned in Galatians 2, verse 11 to 17, 
would have occurred after the Jerusalem conference. For thankfully Peter's lapse was temporary and harmony was soon restored. Peter did not resent Paul's public reproach. For with great humility he was later to write of our beloved brother Paul in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 15. Visiting Ecclesias in Phoenicia, modern Lebanon, and Samaria on their journey, Paul and Barnabas caused great joy unto all the brethren. On arrival in Jerusalem, about A.D. 50, they were received by the Ecclesia, apostles and elders. Sadly, there was not the same joy in Jerusalem over the conversion of Gentiles. The question of justification by law, or grace, had started in Jerusalem, and it must be resolved there, as the truth is in Jesus was at stake. In reciting all things that God had done with them, the battle was joined. For God had not done anything with the legalists. Rising to the challenge, certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed rose up, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the Lord of Moses. Most issues in ecclesial life follow the same spirit of legalism, though not the same particulars. The circumcision party used the word needful because they considered circumcision to be compulsory. The question this time was not whether Gentiles could be saved, but how they could be saved. Was the observance of the law essential to their salvation? Could Moses be set aside? Is there another way to God? To the Pharisees this was unthinkable. Circumcision and the ceremonies of the law must atone for sin, or there would only be partial atonement. Ecclesial Organisation Before considering the Council itself, it might be appropriate to make a brief comment on ecclesial organisation, since Luke mentions apostles, elders and ecclesia. Elsewhere there is mention of bishops and deacons. How are all these offices related? Luke and Paul use the terms bishops and elders interchangeably. For example, in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28, where the terms elders and bishops refer to the same brethren. Verse 28 also makes clear that their appointment was by the Holy Spirit. It was imparted by the laying on of hands. The Holy Spirit, this way, constituted them the star angel of each ecclesia, as we read in Revelation 1 verse 20, so that each letter from Jesus Christ to the angel of each of the seven ecclesias was written to those brethren who had the oversight of each ecclesia. A letter to an immortal angel would be pointless. It is equally clear from Titus chapter 1 verses 5 to 7 that the terms elders and bishops are synonymous. These were over you in the Lord and admonish you, Paul says in the first of Thessalonians 5 verse 12. Their appointment would normally be made after consultation with the ecclesia so that they received ready acceptance. Moreover, amongst other qualifications, he must have a good report of them which are without. The second of Corinthians 8 verse 19. 
A brother appointed as a deacon, diakonos in Greek, a servant, but not a doulos, a slave, must also be first proved, the first of Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. An ecclesia is a called-out assembly, a self-governing body like a free Greek city. The word is applicable both to each local assembly and to the body of Christ as a whole, we find in Galatians 1 verse 13 and the first of Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. We might also notice in passing that it was James, not Peter, who chaired the Jerusalem Council and gave sentence against the observance of circumcision and the law of Moses. Therefore, the Roman Catholic Church's claim that Peter was the first pope is wrong. There is no such office in the Bible. The Church even teaches that Paul hijacked Christianity and changed it for something inferior. Similarly, the teaching of modern rabbis, that Christianity would have died out had not Paul deliberately removed the obstacles of circumcision and the law to make it easy to gain Gentile converts, just does not fit the facts. Where today can honest Bible readers be found? Acts chapter 15, verse 6 to 21, the Jerusalem Council. A special meeting of the leading brethren was called to consider the question. James presided because, as keeper of law, the Jewish brethren respected him. The ecclesia observed the proceedings. After much debate, during which Paul chose to remain silent rather than impose his apostolic authority, Peter began the final stages of the discussion. As the leading apostle, he finally made his position clear. The reception of the Holy Spirit by Gentile believers made obvious to the Ecclesia that God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Then why put the yoke of law upon Gentiles when we Jews were never able to keep it anyway? Here Peter used the argument Paul had used against him at Antioch. For by works of the law shall no flesh be justified. I do not frustrate the phrase of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. See Galatians 2 verses 14 to 21. Peter had been the first to speak to Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. God had purified their hearts by faith, not law a fact now true of Jewish believers also. To claim justification by Lord is to tempt God and put an impossible yoke on Gentiles. You see, verse 10, compare, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, as Paul, as Christ says in Matthew 11, verse 28 to 30. Jew and Gentile are saved by grace, through faith, not by circumcision. See Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The effect of Peter's reasoning was that all kept silence and listened attentively to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. The miracles could not be denied. 
All opposition was silenced. James began to sum up the council's discussion and make his recommendation. In this, James anticipated his advice written shortly after. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. This he writes in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. James reminds them of Peter's words that God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name an action foreshadowed by the prophets. In fact, God had visited Ur to take out Abram for his name, then Egypt to take out his people by the hand of Moses, and Egypt again to take out his only begotten son. And finally an angel visited Cornelius as a forerunner of many to follow from amongst the Gentiles, including ourselves. Abram became a Hebrew, a crosser over the river. Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea in a national baptism, and we too are baptised into the name, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. The name is that of the Father. I will be whom I will be, revealed to Moses at the bush in Exodus chapter 3. Everyone that is called by my name, Yahweh, he who, who will be. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. We read in Isaiah 43, verse 7. James cites the words of Jeremiah. I will return, and Amos, and will build again the tabernacle of David. We've got here Jeremiah 12, verse 15, and Amos 9, verse 11 and 12. Amos says, The remnant of Edom and of all the heathen. The Septuagint here says, The remnant of men, and of all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, as in Acts chapter 15, verse 17. So James is citing the Septuagint translation, which is significant in the context of calling Gentiles to the name. By saying after this, James is admitting that Gentiles will come to the name after the tabernacle of David is rebuilt. In that case, the words, the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, refers to the rebuilding, the resurrection of the Lord's body. Now proof of this is found in the words of Jesus himself. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he spake of the temple of his body. This in John chapter 2, verse 19 to 22. So the phrase, the tabernacle of David refers to David's promised seed, the second of Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 15, whose resurrection prepared the way of salvation, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. This wonderful promise by which we inherit the hope of Israel 
involves the restoration of the kingdom and system of worship first set in order by David the king, not by Moses. See Acts chapter 3 verse 21. Herod's temple, for all its grandeur, was empty. There was no ark and no glory in the most holy. But Isaiah promises, in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hastening righteousness. Isaiah 16 verse 5. The one to rebuild the tabernacle of David must also be destroyed, and in three days the temple of his body raised again. Words his disciples had not understood until after their Lord's resurrection, we find in John 2, verses 19 to 22. In the final application of Amos' prophecy, of course, the house of prayer for all nations shall be built by the great king at the beginning of the coming age of glory. We read of this in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. But citing Isaiah 45, verse 21, and you might like to see the Septuagint of that passage, James continues, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world or the age. Isaiah continues, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. God hath highly exalted him, and given him the name, Revised Version, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Yahweh in Isaiah, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see that in Philippians 2, verse 9 to 11, citing Isaiah 45, verse 21 to 23. With his amazing knowledge of Scripture, James is able to give wise judgment. Yet not his own judgment, but the Lord's. James' sentence was that Gentile believers are not required to observe the law, but that they are asked to abstain from pollutions of idols, that is, meats offered to idols, and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood so that no unnecessary offence is given to the Jews. Law-abiding Jews thought that if Gentile converts did not keep the law, then they must be sunk in the licentious ways of idolatry. They had to learn that there was middle ground in which Gentile believers neither kept the law of Moses nor indulged in meats offered to idols and fornication with temple virgins the first of Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, and verses 18 to 20. But it also says, nor things strangled and from blood, which were considered delicacies in the temple feasts, but forbidden by the law of Moses in Leviticus 17, verse 10 to 14. This prohibition does not apply to blood transfusions, of course, you might like to compare Mark 7, verses 18 to 23. Despite the seeming lawlessness, saints do not live without law to God, but are under law to Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 21. 
James' reason for this judgment, which involves some compromise with law, emphasized the very important principle of not giving offence to the weak, whose lack of faith leads them to extremes. Paul later made this principle a feature of his teaching concerning the weak and the strong in Romans chapter 14. He advised, Let your moderation be known unto all men, and give non-offence, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the Ecclesia of God even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 5 and 1 Corinthians 10 verse 32 to 11 verse 1. Even so, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that avoidance of meats offered to idols was not compulsory. We read that in the first of Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 to 13. Acts chapter 15, verse 22 to 35, decree of the council. The whole ecclesia endorsed James' judgment. The first great struggle for the truth as it is in Jesus was won. The law with its circumcision and sacrifices finally passed with the destruction of the Second Temple in A.D. 70, and with it, persecution of the Ecclesia by the Jews. From then on, the persecution would be by pagan Roman authorities, and subsequently, bitterest and cruelest of all, by the Christian Church, particularly Roman Catholicism. The law passed, but legalistic thinking remained. Legalism is a problem in every generation of believers because it is attractive to the fleshly mind and yet appears in the guise of true religion. Because legalism sets a high standard, it looks right. Therefore, at first, it is not easily recognised and is even harder to deal with. Legalists can accuse sound brethren of being liberal and often talk and behave in a most unchrist-like manner toward their brethren and sisters. They tend eventually to separate themselves into groups or their own isolationist ecclesias. They justify such behaviour on the basis that their brethren are unworthy. But the Lord in Matthew 7 verse 1 to 5 said, Judge not that ye be not judged. God be praised that we have a righteous judge in the heavens. The Jerusalem Ecclesia decided to communicate their decision to Ecclesias in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia by letter sent with Barnabas, Paul, Judas surnamed Barsabbas and Silas, chief among the brethren. We know nothing of Judas except that he had hazarded his life for the name of Jesus Christ, had the gift of prophecy and returned later to Jerusalem, as we see in Acts 15, verses 26 and verse 32 to 33. Silas, or Silvanus, the first of Thessalonians 1, verse 1, was a Jew with Roman citizenship who became a companion of Paul. We find that in the next chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. These brethren had hazarded their lives, especially Paul, the second of Corinthians chapter 11 verse 22 to 28 is an illustration of that. 
hazarded their lives. That was more than the Judaizers did. Paul got to the root of the matter when he said, They constrain you to be circumcised only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. In Galatians 6 verse 12. The apostles and elders not only said that the decision against law was endorsed by the Holy Spirit, and a decision by the Spirit cannot be criticised, but in their letter they also said, To whom we gave no such commandment, thereby disclaiming any responsibility for the tyranny of those brethren from Jerusalem. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes, the law is holy, and therefore makes men guilty before God, he says in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20 of Romans. It was weak through the flesh, Romans chapter 8, verse 3, but was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3, verse 19 to 26. And so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, in Romans 10, verse 4. On receiving the good news, Antioch rejoiced for the consolation. Judas and Silas exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them, which is the opposite to subverting them, the which we have in verse 24. Judas returned to Jerusalem, Silas decided to stay. Acts 15, verse 36 to 41. Separation of Paul and Barnabas. After several days, Paul suggested to Barnabas that they revisit our brethren in every city where they had established Ecclesius. Barnabas agreed, but determined to take John Mark with them. Paul thought this was not a good idea, considering John had departed from them, the Diaglot uses the word deserted at a critical point in their first journey. Although the contention was so sharp that these two faithful friends separated, Paul still respected Barnabas, we find in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 6. Meanwhile, Mark had become older and wiser and was ready to have another go at mission work. In time, he was vindicated and managed to rehabilitate himself with the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life wrote, Take Mark, and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. That last passage was taken from the second of Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Unfortunately, first impressions can last a long time. We do not always allow for changes in brethren and sisters as they grow and mature in the Lord. Barnabas took Mark with him to continue the work in Cyprus. Paul chose Silas, and being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God, he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the Ecclesias. That Paul chose Silas implies that others offered to accompany him. But wisely the team was kept small, though during this second journey Timothy, Titus and Luke subsequently joined the party.
Apostles chapter 17 at Thessalonica, Berea and Athens. Acts chapter 17 verses 1 to 4, preaching at Thessalonica. The small party left Philippi with Paul and Silas in considerable pain and very tired after a sleepless night, though their time in Philippi had its compensations. Painfully they made their way west along the Ignatian Way, a military road connecting Illyria, Macedonia and Thrace through mountain passes. Their journey would take them nearly 37 miles, 60 kilometres, to Amphipolis, 23 miles or 37 kilometres further to Apollonia, and then a further 40 miles, 64 kilometres, to Thessalonica. Here was a synagogue of the Jews where, at a safe distance from Philippi, they began preaching again. Thessalonica was the strategic region for the province, and from here the word travelled throughout the region, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. Thessalonica, founded in 315 BC by Cassander, was named after his wife, the half-sister of Alexander the Great. It was the seat of the Roman governor and capital and main port of Macedonia. It was a free city ruled by seven politarchs or chief magistrates. Once criticised for his inaccuracy in using this title, Luke's reliability has since been confirmed by numerous inscriptions found at Thessalonica, which show that Luke uses the precise title used by the Thessalonians themselves. The city worshipped Zeus, Asclepius, Aphrodite and Demeter, as well as the Egyptian deities Serapis and Isis. The people also revered the Roman rulers as divine. It didn't seem a promising place to preach the truth, but as usual, Paul began at the synagogue on his principle of the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For three Sabbath days Paul reasoned with them out of the scriptures. We should notice here that Paul's preaching does not rely upon emotional appeals, nor does he address the social issues of the day. Acts tells us what to preach and how to preach it. The gospel should be taught by continually proving doctrine and behaviour through an appeal to scripture, as in Paul's case, to Old Testament scripture. There was no flattery or guile, just a straightforward setting forth of the word of God, that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 to 5. Paul's approach to preaching. Paul refers to his approach to preaching in his letters to Thessalonica when he writes in chapter 1 of the first of Thessalonians, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. 
as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. And that's in the first of Thessalonians chapter 2. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For we remember, brethren, our labour and travail, for labouring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And then in the second of Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 7 to 9, For ye yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labour and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. Paul didn't play on their sympathy for his sufferings, though some did to try to malign his character. Despite these sufferings, Paul still boldly taught the gospel and acted as a father and mother to them. He was affectionate even to the point where he was ready to lay down his life for them, working day and night to spare them expense. Since he was speaking primarily to Jews in the synagogue, his main thrust there was that Messiah must suffer death and be raised again from the dead, opening the scriptures and alleging that Jesus is Messiah. In other words, proving that salvation is by Jesus Christ and not by law. Similar phrases had been used by Luke in his Gospel when he wrote, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us by the way, and while he opened unto us the Scriptures? Luke 24, verse 32. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Again, Luke 24, this time verse 45. Now it was the turn of some of the Thessalonian Jews, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few, for their heart to burn within them. Though not stated, it is surely implied that these, believing, were baptised. Acts chapter 17, verse 5 to 9. Opposition at Thessalonica. We can assume that there is a time gap after verse 4. Paul was allowed to teach for only three Sabbaths in the synagogue before it was closed to him. But it would take a longer time to develop the amazing success that attended this effort. Probably they were about two months, for there was time for them to receive a gift sent by the Philippians. Philippians 4 verse 16. As usual, success led to growing jealousy and opposition until the Jews, moved with envy, took unto themselves certain lewd fellows, literally vile or bad market boys. These were the toughs of the town, used by self-righteous Jews for their own ends. These were of the baser sort and set to the city on an uproar. This was just as had been done to Jesus Christ in Mark 15, verse 10 to 13. The mob assaulted the house of Jason. That name is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name Joshua. Paul's kinsman, Romans 16, verse 21. 
We do not know whether Paul, Silas and Timothy had been warned of what was happening and hid themselves, but they were not found. This would be most unusual, for theirs was a public ministry where they would be recognised on sight. So powerful and widespread had been their preaching that even their enemies had to admit to the politarchs that they had turned their world upside down. Because the Roman Caesars issued decrees forbidding anyone to predict a change of rulership over the empire, some cities swore oaths of allegiance to the emperor. To say that there was another king, Jesus, was against these decrees. The rulers and people of Thessalonica were troubled. Pilate had faced the same difficulty when the Lord was before him, until he realised that Jesus was no threat to Caesar, in John 18, verse 33 to 38. At Thessalonica, the charge was dropped, probably because the apostles, being Romans, the rulers realised that the charge would have to be heard in Rome. So they took security of Jason, what is called today a good behaviour bond, and let them go. It was this action that caused the brethren to send Paul to Berea immediately and by night, and prevented his return just when things were progressing. Not long after, Paul wrote to the new ecclesia, saying, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with greater desire, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan, the adversary, hindered us. He wrote this in the first of Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. By the word Satan, Paul is obviously referring to the Jews and polytarchs of the city. Maintenance of the truth by the brethren living under these conditions would be very difficult. Some even lost their lives because of it, in the first of Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. Acts chapter 17, verse 10 to 15, opposition at Berea. Berea was about 50 miles, that is, 80 kilometres away. Once again, quite courageously, Paul began preaching in the synagogue. Thankfully, the Jews at Berea were not so prejudiced. These were more noble, it says, than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Therefore many of them believed, also of honourable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. Here is an example to us of open-minded searching scripture daily that our lives may not be directed by preconceived ideas or our likes and dislikes, but by the word of God alone. Some have described Paul as being bigoted and anti-feminist. That cannot be so. For it is women who so often responded first, women like Lydia and those in Thessalonica, Berea and Athens. Paul taught freedom in Christ to women as well as to men. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus, though, of course, there are respective roles to be observed. Too soon, bitter Jews arrived from Thessalonica and stirred up, the same word as shaken in the second of Thessalonians 2 verse 2. These Jews stirred up the people. To save Paul, the brethren sent him away to Athens. They took him to the coast where, presumably, 
they would catch a boat sailing to Piraeus, the port of Athens, and leave no trace as to where Paul had gone. Silas and Timothy stayed on in Berea. Paul had probably been in Berea only about one month, but he does gain a new companion from there named Sopater, in Acts 20, verse 4. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. The word conducted is the Greek kathistemi. It is significant. It implies that Paul is now under the control of the brethren, the inference being that Paul is too exhausted to continue. After a savage beating at Philippi, followed by abuse at Thessalonica and Berea, he can take no more. He is probably on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Our mortal bodies can only take so much. We are not yet immortal. He himself says, When we could no longer forbear, we thought it good to be left at Athens alone. In the first of Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 1. So Paul was left on his own at Athens to recover, but leaving instructions for Silas and Timotheus for to come to him with all speed. It is difficult to be definite about the moves of Paul's companions on the limited information Paul gives us here. But most likely Timothy had been sent back to Thessalonica from Berea because of Paul's deep concern for the new converts there. We read this in 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 2. Only on his return from there were Silas and Timothy able to continue their journey. However, they did not catch up with Paul until they reached Corinth as we see in Acts 18, verse 5. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34, opposition in Athens. Paul's spirit was stirred or provoked within him as he walked about Athens and saw it as a city wholly given to idolatry. Athens was a large city with a wall about six miles or ten kilometres long around it. Even to this day, the ruins of its impressive architecture causes awe in the visitor. Mars Hill, now Mars was the Roman god of war, Mars Hill was also known as Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the Greek god of war. It is a rocky eminence about 394 feet, 120 metres high. Paul stood on this hill when he defended himself from the charge of setting forth strange gods. He made his defence, with above and behind him, the impressive backdrop of the Acropolis crowned with the great Parthenon dedicated to Athena Polias, and other lesser temples to the various gods of Athens. The Parthenon measured 228 feet 69 metres by 110 feet 33 metres. Numerous pillars over 30 feet 10 metres high supported its roof each with a diameter at the base of six feet, nearly two metres. Here was worshipped Athena, patris, patron goddess of Athens, Athena Nike, Athena who brings victory, Zeus, Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Asclepius, Castor and Pollux, Dionysius, Eros, Hermes, Pan, Poseidon, Cybele from Asia Minor and Roma, and the cult of the Caesars from Rome, amongst many others. Athens was a free city, although under the Roman Empire. It was the centre of Greek civilization, philosophy and culture, and had the foremost university in the empire. Athens, however, was not totally in spiritual darkness. 
There was a synagogue of the Jews and also a number of devout persons who had forsaken their idols for the God of Israel. In Athens, Paul, being on his own, rested and did not at first preach the gospel. It was whilst walking about this beautiful and fascinating city that his spirit was stirred and, despite his ennui and depression brought on by his recent experiences, Paul began to dispute with the Jews in the synagogue and speak to Gentiles in the Agora. It was in the Agora that he met philosophers of the Epicureans and Stoics. Epicureans, named after their founder Epicurus, believed in living in accordance with nature by reasoning. They said that the world was formed by chance from atoms acting by natural laws. Gods exist in space, but do not involve themselves in human affairs. Therefore there is no prayer or providence. There is no sin. But their idea of pleasure was not to license, for it involved a disciplined and orderly lifestyle. To the Epicurean, pleasure is freedom from pain in body and mind. They didn't believe in life after death. Their ideal was to achieve serenity by detachment from worldly affairs. It was a philosophy that appealed to the wealthy and educated. On the other hand, Stoics named themselves after Stoa Poikari, the painted colonnade in the Greek Agora. The founder of this influential school of thought was Zeno from the island of Cyprus. His teaching focused on moral earnestness. He taught that the world was made out of fire. From the fire came air, water and earth. These were balanced by Logos, their god of reason. There is no sin. Virtue is the supreme good. They were proud of their achievements. It was a philosophy of pride. They believed in blind fate and an immortal soul that would eventually merge with the elements and disappear. They had no saviour. To these, Paul was nothing but a babbler, that is, a spermologos, a person who picked up scraps around the market. The word is used here for someone who picks up scraps of learning from here and there. These accused Paul of teaching strange gods, the Greek word demons, a lower order of gods equivalent to church saints. Despite their politeness, when they arrested Paul and brought him to the Areopagus, the High Court of Athens, this was a serious charge. You turn back and see the commentary on chapter 16, verse 21. Socrates had been put to death in Athens 400 years earlier for teaching new gods. Democracy had advanced from that time, and it is considered to be unlikely that Paul's life was in danger. Luke explains that the Athenian philosophers delighted to tell or to hear some new things. But if he was not careful, Paul's answers could easily lead to a more serious charge. This superficial curiosity, all talk but no performance, or knowledge for its own sake, can easily become a problem in ecclesial life also. There could be no appeal to scripture and prophecy to these philosophers. Paul's answer is nevertheless full of Old Testament allusions. He gives us a model of how to address a hostile audience. Paul's opening statement, 
that in all things ye are too superstitious, sounds to us like an insult. The Greek, however, means literally, ye are devoted to demon worship. The Revised Standard Version says, very religious. An observation they would probably see as a compliment. Paul was interested in people and their manner of life. He used the knowledge so gained to devise ways of introducing the truth so that he was ready when opportunity presented. Lord of heaven and earth. Having stated that his stay in Athens was only temporary, he continues that while beholding their devotions, he had noticed an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. After all, if a God was ignored, it might have fearful consequences. No altar bearing this description has been found by archaeologists, but several ancient writers do mention that altars to unknown gods were to be seen in Athens in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. Starting with their confession of ignorance, Paul explains to them not a new God, but the true God, in saying, Him declare I unto you. Paul is proving that he is not a babbler, but a messenger of God. He does not say the true God is the God of Israel, which would provoke a negative reaction, but that the true God is the Creator, the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul does not pour scorn on the gods of Athens, but establishes that as Creator, he is the source of life and therefore must be greater than all other gods. In so saying, Paul begins to answer the Epicureans, who did not believe in divine creation. By continuing that this Lord of heaven and earth dwelleth not in temples made with hands, but he giveth to all life and breath and all things, he begins to answer the Stoics who believed in irresistible fate. He is a personal God, very much concerned about his creation. Worship means to do service to. The truth is, our life is dependent upon him, not his life upon us. Psalm 50 verse 8 to 15 and Micah 6 verse 6 to 8. We might compare also, They that make a graven image are all of them vanity. He feedeth on ashes, a deceived heart hath turned him aside. From Isaiah 44 verses 9 to 20. This God is, verse 24, was, verse 25 to 26, and is to come, verse 31, and as we have it in Revelation 1, verse 8, and 4, verse 8. In saying he dwelleth not in temples made with hands, verse 24, Paul is remembering again the words of Stephen's defence, quoted from the words of Solomon at the dedication of the temple, and Isaiah. All nations are of one, we omit the word blood, that is, from Adam. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. The God who made men also scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, Genesis 11, verse 8. This God hath determined the times, the Greek kairos, fixed time or season determine the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, citing Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 and Jeremiah 27 verse 5. 
for he changeth the times and the seasons. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things, as Daniel advised King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 and chapter 4 of Daniel. Then, turning to the Stoics and Epicureans, Paul pointedly said that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. Sin is the problem. That is why we are separated from our Creator. Isaiah says it in chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Men are alienated from God by wicked works, and also alienated from the life of God through ignorance. Colossians 1 verse 21 and Ephesians 4 verse 18. Nevertheless, if thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. 1 Chronicles 28 verse 9 and 2 Chronicles 15 verse 2. To Jeremiah he says, I am a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? And that's in Jeremiah 23, verse 23 to 24. Paul's comments are a biting criticism of idolatry, as well as a refutation of the superiority of his critics. We who believe do not feel after him, groping like blind men. He has revealed himself unto us. As certain also of your own poets have said. In proof, Paul cites their own poets, showing his education and extraordinary breadth of knowledge. We're reminded of Brother John Thomas's similar erudition. His first quotation is from a poem of Epimenides about 600 BC. He wrote, They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one, the Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being. Paul's citation of this pagan concept of God, also, by the way, cited in Titus 1 verse 12, reinforces his refutation of idols that cannot move, see or hear, because they're not alive. Psalm 115, verse 3 to 8. Paul's next quotation is from a Stoic philosopher named Aratus, originally from Soli, not far from Tarsus in Cilicia. In his poem Phenomena, he writes of Zeus, the father of the gods. Let us begin with Zeus. In every way we have all to do with Zeus for we are truly his offspring. Paul agrees with these pagan philosophers up to a point. He does not agree with blind chance, as do Epicureans. We are made in the image and likeness of God. If we are his offspring, then God is not inanimate like wood, stone, silver or gold. Paul uses these two quotations to refute idolatry, not support it. Rounding off his defence, 
Paul comes back to their tacit admission in verse 23 that they are ignorant, saying, And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. This was quite a challenge to learned Athenians, and yet it is not a challenge. It is a command. God, who has formerly overlooked the ignorance of Gentiles, now offers salvation to all men, not just Jews, on the basis of faithful obedience, as we have it in Acts 9, verse 15 and 15, verse 14. Now it is not Paul who is on trial. It is his judges. He is no babbler, but has the authority of the unknown God of heaven. Epicureans and Stokes rejected judgment. The guarantee that judgment will indeed come is that the judge has been raised from the dead. This is the central pivot of the truth, and it will not be men's judgment such as Paul suffered, but he will judge the world in righteousness for a thousand years, beginning with the removal of the wicked. And in this he cites several of the Psalms, Psalms 9, 96, and 98. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Psalm 96, verse 4 and 5. Reaction to Paul's speech. As is only to be expected, some mocked. These were probably the Epicureans who believed in this life only. Others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. These were probably the Stoics who believed in a Godhead and an immortal soul. Paul said no more. He knew it was casting pearls before swine, as Christ said in Matthew 7, verse 6. He didn't soften the gospel as we might. That doesn't work. The fact is, men will be judged for their idolatry. He departed without stopping for individual discussion. Undoubtedly, given the circumstances, this was the most brilliant of Paul's talks. It had a dramatic impact, for certain men claved to him and believed, including Dionysius, one of his judges, and a woman named Damaris, who tradition says was Dionysius' wife, and others. Damaris must have become notable among the Ecclesias to be named by Luke, but we know nothing of her. Amongst the others would be Stephanus, the first fruit of Achaia, baptised by Paul because he was alone with none to assist. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 16 and chapter 16 verse 15 and 17. Paul's words to Corinth also sum up the men of Athens. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And that's in the first of Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 29, chapter 2, verse 5, and chapter 3, verses 18 to 21. And now, in this book, there follows a table which gives a list of most of the Old Testament passages alluded to by Paul in his remarkable speech. But we won't recite the table at this time. Chapter 18, Opposition and Success at Corinth. Return to Antioch. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 17, Opposition and Success at Corinth. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth. No court decision had been made on his case in Athens. It was left for each individual to make up his or her own mind about Paul's teaching. There never would be many converts in Athens. It was too rich and full of that worldly wisdom, which is foolishness with God. To reach Corinth today, one must cross the Corinth Canal that runs across the Isthmus, dividing the Saronic Gulf from the Aegean Sea. It runs through a very deep and spectacular rock cutting. Nero had tried to build the canal, but failed. Its construction was beyond the ability of builders in ancient times. At the eastern end of the canal is Sencria. Phoebe was a member of the ecclesia there, and she's mentioned in Romans 16, verse 1 and 2. The Romans had destroyed the original Corinth in 146 BC. It was rebuilt by Julius Caesar and established as a Roman colony in 44 BC. It became the seat of the Roman government for the province of Achaia. Paul stayed for 18 months in this large and important city of up to 100,000 inhabitants. But Corinth was also a highly immoral city. The usual pantheon of Greek gods were worshipped, especially Aphrodite, Venus we know her as. The first centurion historian Strabo recorded that more than 1,000 prostitutes served in the temple of Aphrodite. Life was expensive in this rich city, but sailors spent so freely on its pleasures that first century historian Strabo said, Not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Even to this day the Greeks have a saying, Not everyone can afford to go to Corinth. So horrified were the Jewish legalists that Paul had established an ecclesia in such a licentious city that Corinth became a test case for Gentile inclusion in the truth. 
Those who promoted the law found it hard to accept that there could be any genuine converts in such a place. And there is no doubt that the ecclesia did have its problems, as Paul's letters to Corinth reveal. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, he wrote? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. But the gospel did have a greater effect in Corinth than in proud and conceited Athens. Still, it was not the best place for the apostle to be alone. However, Paul soon met Aquila and Priscilla, the diminutive form is Prisca, who had come from Rome. Aquila was originally from Pontus on the Black Sea. The Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 49. Suetonius wrote a biography of Claudius in which he said, Because the Jews at Rome caused continuous disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from the city. Crestus here is probably Christ. If this is so, then it was the Jews' violent opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ that had caused the disturbances. Claudius didn't rule for long, and Jews were soon back in Rome again, as we find in Acts 28 and verse 17. This married Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, formed a lasting friendship with Paul and became his helpers, we find in Romans 16 verse 3. Like Paul, they were tent-makers, which in those days involved working with leather. Paul must have met them in the synagogue, where he reasoned with the Jews every Sabbath, and sought to persuade the Greek Jews and the Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was Christ, or Messiah. The good news of the faithfulness of the Macedonian brethren, despite opposition and a gift of money brought from Philippi to support the work, must have considerably relieved Paul's mind and given him much-needed encouragement. He writes of this in Philippians 4 verse 10 and 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9. He wrote to the Thessalonians, But now when Timotheus came from you unto us, and brought us good tidings of your faith and love, and that you have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our afflictions and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. See the first of Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Paul's epistles, written to Thessalonica from Corinth, are the first of the letters to seven ecclesias that are such a benefit to us, as are also our Lord's letters to seven ecclesias written later, recorded in Revelation 2 and 3. When Silas and Timotheus were come, 
The presence of his companions gave Paul the encouragement he needed to speak openly of Jesus again after his despondency. It seems that until support arrived, Paul just did not have the strength to present Jesus as Messiah, for he was a sick man when he arrived in Corinth. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He wrote this in the first of Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Even the greatest men need support and encouragement to continue the work. And what a difference it can make. Paul would later remind the Corinthians of his preaching on his this first visit, saying, But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. The second of Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Jewish Opposition Again Predictably, the Jews again opposed and blasphemed against Jesus Christ. So Paul shook his raiment and said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Echoing the language of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33 verses 3 to 6. The symbol of shaking one's garment to express rejection of sinful and rebellious people is found in Nehemiah's similar action and in Christ's words. When ye part out of that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet, said Christ in Matthew 10 verse 14. That their blood would be upon their own heads was just. For had the Jews not said to Pilate, His blood be upon us and our children? Next door to the synagogue lived Justus, who believed. Despite the difficulty of both groups passing each other in the street outside, there the new ecclesia met, and the preaching continued unabated. There was probably a move later to the house of Gaius, for Paul, when writing to Rome from Corinth, says, Gaius, who had been baptized by Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 14, Gaius, mine host, and of the whole ecclesia, saluteth you. Romans 16 verse 23. It has been suggested that Gaius and Justus are two names of the same person, but proof is wanting. At this point Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, who surely spearheaded the opposition to Paul's teaching, bowed to reasoning from the scriptures and believed with all his house. Many Corinthians also believed and were baptised, perhaps encouraged by Crispus' example. We should note the order of their conversion as described by Luke. Hearing, belief, and then baptism. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. 
But believe what? That Jesus is Messiah, that is, both King and Saviour, Acts 18, verse 5. I have much people in this city. At this time, stress and illness once again overtook Paul. Consequently, the Lord spoke to him in a night vision, saying, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. Due to intense opposition, it had been necessary for the Lord to similarly encourage Jeremiah, saying, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee. In Jeremiah 1, verse 7 to 8. Like Jeremiah, Paul was delivered. But the threat was real enough in both cases. On his third journey, the Jews of Greece plotted to assassinate Paul, but he escaped, we're told, in Acts 20, verse 3. The Lord had said, I have much people in this city. What? In licentious Corinth? Yes, for the word of God has power. And from here the word spread throughout the region during Paul's eighteen months in the city. In Acts 18 verse 11 the word continued means to sit. That is, Paul sat as a rabbi or teacher. During this long stay in Corinth, Timothy went back to Thessalonica with the first letter to the ecclesia there. On his reporting back, the second letter was sent, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 3 to 4. Though Paul was still sick and weak, spirit power confirmed many, we are told. Brought before Gallio. Eventually, Jewish hatred boiled over. The Jews made insurrection, the revised version, rose up against, and dragged Paul before the judgment seat, or beamer. Here Gallio sat in judgment. Gallio was the brother of Nero's tutor, the famous Stoic philosopher Seneca, who spoke of him very highly. Later Nero was to force the suicide of Seneca and Gallio. High office never sits comfortably in this world. Being the Roman proconsul for the province of Achaia, any decision Gallio made would have effect over a wide area and have even wider implications. In fact, a ban on preaching could result in the death penalty if disobeyed. An inscription found at Delphi enables us to date Gallio's proconsulship accurately to AD 51. So we know that Paul was in Corinth from AD 51 to AD 53. The Jews probably counted on Gallio's inexperience in office at Corinth and brought a charge of breaking their law, a fact confirmed in verse 15, where names would refer to the name of Jesus. Even Pilate had said, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. John 18, verse 31. And this man was more astute than Pilate. Up until this point, the followers of Jesus were considered by Rome to be a branch of Judaism, and therefore a legal religion under Roman protection. If the Jews could get to the followers of Jesus recognized as a separate movement, then Roman law would not protect them. 
How Gallio would react would decisively affect the future of the body of Christ. Gallio refused to hear the case and drove them from the judgment seat. Not only did this action give the believers legal protection for preaching until later in Nero's reign, but also the anti-Semitic Greeks took Sosthenes, the new chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the bema. And Gallio cared for none of these things. The Jews had lost. But wonder of wonders, Sosthenes had learned a great lesson. We next read of him as a brother in Christ who had left Corinth and joins with Paul in sending greetings to the Ecclesia, the first of Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. So Acts 18, verses 18 to 23, to Ephesus, Jerusalem, and Antioch. Finally, in AD 53, presumably leaving Silas and Timothy behind, Paul left Corinth and sailed from the port of Sencrea to Syria taking with him Priscilla and Aquila. While with the Ecclesia in Sincrea, Paul had shaved his head, having made a Nazarite vow. Numbers 6, verse 18. Why would he do this? Most likely it was in thankfulness for his recovery from fear and sickness, for he mentions in Romans that Phoebe had succoured him at Sencrea, nursing him during a bout of his recurrent sickness, Romans 16, verse 1 and 2. Perhaps the freedom given by Gallio to preach the gospel without hindrance was also why Paul undertook his vow. Either way, the vow would be completed at the feast, the feast of Pentecost, by burning his hair in the temple as an offering. It might seem strange that Paul, the advocate of grace, would make a vow under the law. But, of course, we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do mind that nature the things contained in the law, these having not the Lord are a law unto themselves which show the work of the law written in their hearts, he writes in Romans 2, verse 14. They sailed across the Aegean to Ephesus, where Paul entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. According to Josephus, the Jews' religion was authorized in Corinth by the Roman authorities, and their youth exempt from military service. This is in Josephus Antiquities 10. Uh, fourteen ten fourteen. His visit was brief, although the Jews in the synagogue asked him to stay longer. Paul had determined to be in Jerusalem for the feast, but he did promise that he would return to Ephesus, if God will. Since the Jews in Ephesus seemed to be more receptive to the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila there when he sailed on to Caesarea. Their first convert was the well-beloved Eponetus, who was the first fruit of Asia, Romans 16, verse 5. Landing at Caesarea, Paul went up to Jerusalem and saluted, or greeted, the Ecclesia. This was his fourth visit to the city since his conversion. Here Paul saw the ravages of a severe famine, for the relief of which he began a collection for the saints on his third journey. Then, after an absence of three years in A.D. 54, 
he went down to Antioch in Syria, his second journey completed. Acts 18, verses 23 to 21, verse 17, Paul's third missionary journey. This third journey began in AD 54 and ended in Jerusalem in AD 58. Paul was then about 48 to 52 years old. His journey began in the year that Nero became emperor, and Nero ruled until AD 68. Paul's journey took him through the famous Cilician Gates, a narrow pass in the Taurus Mountains. He strengthened the disciples in Galatia, and then moved west into Phrygia for the same purpose. This is less exciting than preaching Christ where he has not been named, but it is what Bible mission work is mostly about. Another object of Paul's journey was to cement the fellowship of Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ, for many Jews were still not happy about Gentile inclusion in the Ecclesia, especially when these Gentile believers did not uphold the law. This Paul did by arranging a collection from the Gentile ecclesias for the poor saints suffering from serious famine in Jerusalem and Judea. Being followers of Jesus Christ, these saints were denied assistance from the Levitical distribution of tithes to the poor. That was a range we see under the law in Deuteronomy 14 and Deuteronomy 26. Acts chapter 18 verses 24 to 28. Apollos mighty in the Scriptures. Apollos, Apollonius in full, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, the Greek logios meaning learned as well as trained in rhetoric, mighty in the Scriptures. Being from Alexandria, where the Scriptures had been translated from Hebrew to the Greek Septuagint, this was probably the version that Apollos knew. Alexandria, on the Egyptian coast founded by Alexander the Great, was capital of Egypt and the second city of the Roman Empire, with a population of over half a million. A centre of learning that rivalled Athens, it is famous for its lighthouse, said to have been more than 440 feet, 135 metres high. Different authorities give varying heights. It guarded the entrance into two artificial harbours, and is considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Alexandria had a very large Jewish community and many synagogues. The truth must have arrived in the city shortly after Pentecost, Acts 2 verse 10. The earliest papyrus fragments of the New Testament have been found in Egypt. Apollos was instructed in the way of the Lord, and, being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. Jesus, in the Diaglot and Revised Version, based on the Vatican manuscript, is probably wrong here. Apollos knew only the baptism of John. The expression fervent in the Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit, but that he boiled with enthusiasm. His teaching in Ephesus would have helped prepare the synagogue for Paul's teaching when he arrived from Galatia and Phrygia. When Aquila and Priscilla heard Apollos speak in the synagogue, realising that he only knew the baptism of John, 
They took him home with them and taught him that the one to come of whom John had spoken was Jesus of Nazareth. John did no miracle, he was just a voice. But his effect upon Apollos and many others confirms the Lord's observation that he was the greatest of the prophets. John chapter 1 verse 23, 27 to 29 and so on. Scripture testimony says that Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures, but he was not too proud to learn. Aquila and Priscilla told Apollos of the exciting developments in Corinth and Achaia and the opposition of the Jews there. As a result, Apollos decided to go to Achaia and see what he could do to convince the Jews. So Apollos was given a letter of introduction to the brethren, this letter of introduction was then, and still is, a necessary document for those who travel to confirm their genuineness and reliability to brethren and ecclesias where they meet with on their travels. The second of Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3. This first century practice ought to be followed today to give confidence and to avoid possible confusion and embarrassment. Apollos was a considerable help to those who had believed through grace that was in the Apostle Paul. His object was achieved, for he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the Scriptures that Jesus is Messiah. Apollos watered where Paul had sown, but God gave the increase. There is no jealousy or rivalry between them. Paul always spoke warmly of Apollos. And when the Corinthians formed factions, though Paul wanted Apollos to revisit Corinth, he refused to do so, lest his visit encourage their schisms, as we see in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12 and 16 verse Chapter 19, Third Missionary Journey, Preaching and Riot at Ephesus. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 12, Preaching at Ephesus. In the beginning, Jerusalem had been the centre of preaching, but then the focal point moved to Antioch. In this chapter of Luke's history, Ephesus becomes the hub of activity for the three years that Paul stayed there. Ephesus was a remarkable city with a population of about 250,000. It was the most prosperous commercial centre of Asia. Inscriptions describe it as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. There were up to 50 gods and goddesses worshipped in the city. 
Here was the enormous temple to Diana, the Roman goddess of chastity, but in the Greek text, Artemis, the Greek goddess of love. Ishta or Easter, the mother of the gods, equivalent to Our Lady of the Catholic Church. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The two goddesses merged in the ancient fertility cults. The image of Artemis of the Ephesians was said to have fallen from Jupiter. Verse 35 in the ESV version says, the sacred stone that fell from the sky. But of course, the workmen made it, therefore it is not God, Hosea says in chapter 8, verse 6. It certainly wasn't God. There were hundreds of immoral priestesses that made the temple a great attraction for sailors and visitors with money. Ephesus had an important port, which is now silted up, though the outline of it can still be seen. It was the seat of the Roman government for Asia Minor. Even today, the ruins of the city, with its agora, library of Celsius, and enormous theatre, capable of seating 24,500 people, are most impressive. The temple itself has gone, though the ornamental base of one of its 173 pillars is on display in the British Museum. At Ephesus, Paul would again have stayed with Aquila and Priscilla in the house where later the Ecclesia met. We find this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. Also present with him were Titus, Timothy and Erastus, Gaius and Aristarchus. Certain Disciples Paul soon found a small group of about twelve disciples who had been baptised into John's baptism. These had not heard of the Holy Spirit, although John had spoken of it, Luke 3, verse 16. We can assume, then, that they had been baptised by Apollos, who had not received the Spirit either. He had been instructed by Aquila and Priscilla, who, not being apostles, were unable to impart it to him. Two points stand out here. One is that possession of the Holy Spirit is not necessary for belief. The other is that John's baptism was not sufficient for salvation. His was a baptism of repentance, not a baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Their not knowing about the Holy Spirit reveals that they did not know of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, nor that salvation is in his name. They were deficient in knowledge because so had been Apollos their teacher. Similarly, the true baptism into the name of Jesus Christ is dependent upon a fuller knowledge of the way than is taught by Christendom. Anyone baptised without true understanding must be immersed into the fullness of the name on coming to a knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus. After their baptism into the name of Jesus Christ, we are baptised into the name, water is but the medium, Paul laid his hands on them to impart a gift of the Spirit to each one. Since there are only nine gifts, some gifts must have been duplicated, so that all received one. <clears throat> Normally a brother or sister only had one gift. Possession of this gift constituted them part of the star eldership of the Ecclesias, Revelation chapter 1 verse 20. These twelve became the spirituals, 
as we have it in the first of Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. The spirituals, they became the foundation and eldership of the Ephesus Ecclesia, to whom Paul sounded a serious warning on his return journey three years later, in Acts 20, verse 17, and verses 29 to 32. Notably, these men were given two gifts, tongues, that is, known languages, as at Pentecost, and prophecy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul contrasts these two gifts, showing that the gift of prophecy is greater. <clears throat> For he that speaketh in a tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, unless, of course, he is a visitor speaking in a region where that language is the common tongue. Howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2 to 3. These twelve men became the foundation of the ecclesia, bearing the responsibility for its shepherding, as we have it in chapter 20, verse 28 to 35. Paul was obviously encouraged. As was his custom, he started in the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But some were hardened and believed not. See Romans 11, verse 25. Paul, who knew all about hardened hearts by bitter experience, counsels us to harden not your hearts, and continues, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 3, verses 6, 7 to 16. These spake evil of that way before the multitude. This was no private discussion. It was a public rejection and mocking of the kingdom of God. The expression, the way, had been used before in chapter 9, verse 2. It was not uncommon to refer to the truth by this expression. For the Lord himself had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, in John 14, verse 6. Archaeologists have not yet found ruins of a synagogue at Ephesus, but two inscriptions have been uncovered that refer to one. Josephus also tells us they were Jews at Ephesus and that they were granted citizenship there. They were even granted special exemptions from some duties so that they could observe the Sabbath. All who dwelt in Asia heard the word. Paul, undeterred by their opposition, removed to the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus, a tyrant, seems an appropriate name for a teacher of those times, when by today's standards, School was impossibly strict and corporal punishment common. The words departed and separated indicate that bounds were set and the believers irrevocably separated from the law. They went forth unto him without the camp bearing his reproach, as Paul puts it in Hebrews 13 verse 13. The following two years of daily disputation must have been a most intense and exhausting period in Paul's ministry. A tradition from the Western text of Acts has it that Paul taught from the fifth hour to the tenth, that is, from eleven o'clock in the morning until four o'clock in the afternoon, that is, after school had finished. If so, Paul probably did his leather work tent-making in the morning 
Acts 18 verse 3, and then taught throughout what would normally be the rest period of the day. As a result, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Many would visit Ephesus, the metropolis and commercial centre of Asia, and carry the gospel back to their hometowns, so that ecclesias were established in Troas, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. Amongst these would be Epaphras from Colossae, for an ecclesia became established there, even though Paul never actually visited the city, we find from Colossians 2 verse 1 and chapter 4 verse 12 to 13. It was an exciting period, for God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Many sick folk were healed, even at a distance, by contact with handkerchiefs, a face cloth, and aprons that had touched Paul's body. What is more, the most difficult cases of mental illness were also healed, for evil spirits went out of them, to use the terminology of those times. This had all the appearance of magic, but any false ideas of this sort were soon to be corrected. Acts chapter 19, verse 13 to 20. Exorcism exorcised. Jewish magic was well known in the first century, and Ephesus was a centre for these wandering charlatans. These Jews were considered to be able to control evil spirits. Their tools in trade included amulets and incantations. Even today there are some who wear a Star of David, not because they are friends of Israel, but as a good luck charm. More commonly, Christians wear a cross, although it is a pagan symbol which did not come into use in the church until the 10th century. Reference to God's intense dislike of the wearing of this kind of magic charm is found in Ezekiel, who wrote, Woe to the women who sew magic charms upon all their wrists, as we read in Ezekiel 13, verse 18 and verse 20 in the NIV. According to Josephus, in his Antiquities 8-5, pages 41-49, to Jewish power over demons was derived from the wisdom given to Solomon. Continuing over the centuries, Jewish involvement in magic arts and incantations is recorded in Kabbalistic and Hechloth texts. One incantation that has been preserved from ancient times is that of Pibichis, a magician from Egypt which invokes Egyptian and other deities, including the name of Jesus Christ. It contains the words, I conjure you by the God of the Hebrews, Jesus, and so it continues. And this is uh, in the Greek magical papyri and translation from the University of Chicago Press. Another from the 3rd century AD says, Hail, spirit of Abraham! Hail, spirit of Isaac! Hail, spirit of Jacob! Jesus the Christ, the Holy One, the Spirit, drive forth the devil from this man, until this demon of Satan shall flee before thee. I adjure thee, O demon, whosoever thou art. Well, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest or priestly member of the Sanhedrin of Ephesus synagogue, were exorcists who used the name of Jesus and Paul, no doubt because they knew that both had successfully cast out devils. 
The mentally deranged man leapt upon the seven so furiously that they fled wounded and naked. Revised version says both of them, which though that's probably incorrect since they were seven sons. The populace, who were fearful of demons, took it very seriously. These Jews had taken the name in vain. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Evidently some believers had not completely forsaken magic when they were converted, but were now anxious to do so. Others, who had retained their books on magic and their good luck charms, publicly burned these in final and total rejection of such foolishness. Some took the trouble to add up the value of the things burned and found them to be worth 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was then the equivalent of a day's wage. These could have been sold for an advantageous profit, but no. Their rejection of magic and sorcery was complete. They could not allow the scrolls to continue to be in circulation. For a people who had grown up in a culture of a variety of potent gods and magic spells, etc., this would have been a very difficult thing to do. And not all could do it, so suddenly and completely. For Paul, writing to the Colossians, says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels. The use of the word angels, messengers here, may in its broadest sense include the demons of paganism. Their eradication of all semblances of pagan ideas and church foolishness continues as an abiding lesson to us, for we do not always see the issues so clearly as the disciples did then. We do not want to be shamed before him at his coming. It would be good if the concluding words of this incident applied equally to us, as it says, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. A clear objective. Despite this triumphant end when exorcism was exercised, trouble was brewing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, But I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. He wrote this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8 and 9. Paul was often tearful, sick, persecuted, even driven to despair. Yet his objective remained clear. He would continue to preach the gospel. We can identify with Paul's difficulties in the midst of our own. Similarly, our objective must remain clear. We must also preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, Paul says to the second of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2. This is not the time to cease lectures, and so on, because of lack of response, but to redouble our efforts. Soon there will be time no longer, and we will be called to account for our use of the talents given us by the Master. Woe in that day to those who hide their talent in the earth and produce no increase. At least today, since the Pope lost his temporal power in 1870, we do not have to preach at the risk of our lives. Acts chapter 19, verse 21 to 41, Opposition from the Silversmiths After these things, Paul purposed in the Spirit 
to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, and then go up to Jerusalem. He determined that from there he would visit Rome, the capital of the empire, and the seat of the emperor, for he knew he had still to bear the Lord's name before that king of kings, as we learn from Acts 9 verse 15. Writing a few years later, Paul remarked that Christ was exalted far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, Ephesians 1 verse 21. To prepare for his visit to Rome, Paul wrote a letter from Ephesus to introduce himself to the Ecclesia there, Romans 15 verse 24 to 28. In the meantime, Paul sent Erastus and Timothy into Macedonia while he continued in Asia for a season. In fact, he stayed until the Feast of Pentecost in May, when there would be a festival in Ephesus to Artemis, which included games. The first of Corinthians 16, verse 8. The success of the festival was threatened, however, when the sale of shrines to Artemis fell off as a result of Paul's preaching. There was no small stir about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius gathered together the other silversmiths, who then determined upon a stratagem by which the preaching of the gospel would be hindered. An inscription has been found in Ephesus that honours temple wardens. One of those mentioned is Demetrius, son of Menophilos, and grandson of Tryphon, or Tryphon. Whilst it is possible that this mid-first century inscription does refer to the Demetrius mentioned by Luke, we cannot be certain of it, for Demetrius was a popular name. Archaeologists have found small shrines to the goddess Aphrodite that show her sitting upon her throne in the temple. Although no shrines made of silver have been unearthed, one tomb inscription does mention that the tomb belongs to a silversmith and shrine maker. Other inscriptions reveal that a number of trade guilds existed in Ephesus, including a guild of the silversmiths. We even know that the silversmiths were located in the street that runs from the theatre. The Romans knew Artemis as Diana of the Ephesians. The goddess was popular throughout the Mediterranean area and worshipped more widely than any other deity. She was the great mother goddess and related to Cybele, the great mother of Asia Minor. Her temple became rich, being the banking and financial centre for the region. She was known as first among thrones, saviour, lord, queen of the world, and the heavenly goddess. When the Roman Empire became Christian, her worship was replaced by that of the Virgin Mary. Statues of the goddess were as common as those of the Virgin Mary are today. Statues of Artemis show the signs of the zodiac upon her chest, since her powers were said to extend to the stars, which, in paganism, controlled a person's fate. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. Luke records that Demetrius's real concern was not for Artemis, but for his own wealth. He must have heard Paul preach, for he quotes Paul as saying, They be no gods which are made with hands, which in itself is a quotation from Psalm 115, verses 4 to 6. The logic of this statement had turned a lot of people away from idol worship throughout Asia. 
The Temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it couldn't compete with the gospel. We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other god but one. If you see 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 to 6. It is amazing what preaching is able to accomplish with the divine blessing. This is an inspiring example. Let us not flag in our preaching, but vigorously continue to do so, even though we may feel despondent at the lack of response. Remember, God can only bless what we do, not what we don't do. Meanwhile, probably in the Agora, the silversmiths began crying out, Great is out the Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. They caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia and Paul's companions, and with one accord rushed them into the enormous theatre that dominates the city. You might like to compare the Jews' reactions to Stephen's defence in chapter 7 of Acts and verse 57. As often happens in a riot, there was confusion as to what the uproar was about, and therefore some cried one thing and others another. Reason was the first casualty of the pandemonium. The lives of Gaius and Aristarchus were obviously in danger, and Paul, a brave and courageous man ever mindful of others, sought to enter the theatre to defend the two brethren. He had to be restrained lest he be torn limb from limb by the mob. Even certain of the chiefs of Asia, which were his friends, sent to advise Paul not to take the risk. These Asiarchs, literally Asia rulers, were wealthy Roman citizens who held high provincial Roman office. Inscriptions show that these men, often benefactors assisting financially in public works, had considerable influence. That some were friends of Paul, the record does not say that they were brethren, shows that they respected Paul's honesty and integrity. He was widely known, not only for his preaching, but also for his law-abiding and industrious habits. Here is the example of one who could write without a trace of hypocrisy, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Let no man despise thee. And that's in Titus 2, verses 10 to 15. And then in Romans 13, verses 3 to 5, Paul said, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. The town clerk appeased the people. Since at that time the brethren were held to be a branch of Judaism, and that therefore the Jews would also suffer because of this uproar, the Jews put forward Alexander as their spokesman. This only aggravated the situation, and the multitude cried out for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Alexander hurriedly made his escape. Then bravely the town clerk, the Greek word is Grammatius, the elected head of the town council, something like a mayor, he stepped forward. 
This man quietened the people and wisely advised them not to be rash and therefore invite trouble from the Roman authorities. After all, everyone knew that Ephesus was the temple keeper, as the authorised version margin says, of the great goddess Artemis, whose image fell down from Jupiter. Seeing then that these things cannot be spoken against, he ought to be quiet and to do nothing rashly. He continues, These men, which are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess, this is verse 37 in the Revised Version, this he said because temples were used as bank vaults for money and valuables. But how interesting that Paul's preaching was a positive message that did not blaspheme against the false gods of the people. This says a lot about how we ought to preach, for it does not help to malign other religions and thereby alienate those we are appealing to. Of course, in putting Bible doctrine before the public, we must refute error, but that is not the same thing as mocking or blaspheming, as others see it, the Christian churches and religions against whom we must witness if we are in love with God's way. So Demetrius and the craftsmen, if they had just cause, should have taken the matter to law before the proconsuls, the authorised version, deputies, in, said the town clerk, a lawful assembly, or the word is ecclesia. By using the word implied in verse 38, the town clerk gives an implied threat that the disciples might well take them to court. In any case, they were in danger to be called in question by the Roman authorities, for these were known to be very severe on writing. In so saying, the town clerk diffused the situation and dismissed the assembly or ecclesia. In confirming the doctrine of the resurrection to the Corinthians, Paul referred to this dangerous incident. He wrote, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? If the dead rise not. And again, giving no offence in anything, that the minister be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings. The second of Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 3 to 20. Macedonia, Homeward via Troas and Ephesus. Acts chapter 20 verses 1 to 6. Macedonia and Greece. Paul spent nearly three years in Ephesus, during which time the gospel had gone into all Asia. 
Aquila and Priscilla had returned to Rome, as we find in Romans 16, verse 3 and 4, where Paul also had to go after he had visited Jerusalem. And so, straight after Pentecost, he embraced the disciples and left for Macedonia. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. At some time during his stay at Ephesus, Paul had made a brief visit to Corinth, where he had not been well received. After leaving, Paul wrote to them a tearful letter which he was not sure they would act upon, and therefore the letter was followed up by a visit from Titus. We do not have a copy of this letter, only a reference to it in the second of Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 to 9. Paul was sick with worry for the ecclesia he had established. Though he did gain comfort through prayer, prayer that was answered when Titus finally arrived from Corinth with good news, as we read in the second of Corinthians 1 verse 4 and 7 verses 5 to 7. Paul journeyed via Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me, he says, of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. The second of Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It is probably during this period that Paul visited the west coast and taught the gospel in Illyricum. Romans 15, verse 19. From Macedonia he wrote his second epistle to Corinth, actually his fourth. Then, having given the brethren in Macedonia much exhortation, Paul continued on to Greece, where he stayed three months in Corinth with Gaius. Romans 16, verse 23. During that time he wrote his epistle to the Ecclesia in Rome, a remarkable dissertation upon the divine scheme of reconciliation, in which he states that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The epistle was written to introduce himself to the Ecclesia in anticipation of his forthcoming visit, since he was personally unknown there. And because the Jews everywhere opposed the doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ, as we read in Romans 1, verses 9 to 17. Sister Phoebe of St. Crea took the letter to Rome on Paul's behalf, Romans 16, verse 1 and 2. In visiting the Ecclesias, Paul took pains to encourage the brethren and sisters to collect for the poor saints in Jerusalem, thereby not only providing much-needed relief, but importantly to weld Jew and Gentile believers together as one in Christ. Meanwhile, the collection of Thessalonica had been completed, we read in the second of Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 5. By this practical measure, Paul sought to overcome Jewish scruples to the benefit of the gospel. When he was about to sail into Syria, news of a plot to assassinate him reached Paul, who then changed his plans and returned through Philippi to Macedonia. Why did the Jews plot to ambush Paul? Certainly they hated his teaching that Jesus is Messiah, and were very envious at his success in making converts even of the Gentiles, but were probably hoping too that they could steal the large amount of money he would be carrying to Jerusalem. 
How easily the command, thou shalt not kill, can be got around by justifying the unjustifiable. After all, it worked well against Jesus of Nazareth and Stephen. This attitude that anything is justifiable if it serves the purpose of religion, or politics, is not unique to Jews. It excused the far more excessive cruelty of the Catholic Church throughout its long history, and today is continued by those Muslims who are prepared to commit any atrocity for the sake of Allah. On this homeward journey, Paul's companions were the delegates of Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and of Asia. Interestingly, there was no delegate from Corinth. This was not because the collection was never completed, but because Paul had finally won their confidence again, and he himself was their delegate. After the accusations made against him that he coveted silver, gold, and apparel, that he was not an apostle, and that he used the word of God deceitfully, it was a measure of their new trust in him that the Corinthians entrusted him with their money. Such accusations must have deeply hurt Paul, coming from those he loved. But he didn't give up. He persevered, knowing that one day his Lord, who himself had been falsely maligned, would vindicate him. Even so, it became necessary for him to attempt to clear his name that the work of completing the collection at Corinth should continue unabated and to prove the sincerity of their love. The second of Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 to 11. Those brethren accompanying Paul tarried for him at Troas. We know little of most of these brethren, such as Sopater of Berea, possibly Sosipater in Romans 16 verse 21, and Secundus of Thessalonica. Aristarchus joined Paul at Ephesus, as did Gaius of Derby. Aristarchus also saw Paul when Paul was in prison in Caesarea, and accompanied him on his journey to Rome. There Aristarchus was imprisoned with Paul, and though released, was still with him when Paul wrote to Philemon. Colossians 4 verse 10 and Philemon verse 24. Timothy, of course, we know. Then there are Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia, Tychicus was from Ephesus and later was a faithful minister with Paul in Rome. He took Paul's letters to the Ephesians and to Colossae. In the first month of the Jewish spiritual year, A.D. 57, and after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we, it says we, sailed away from Philippi, Acts 20, verse 6, and in five days arrived at Troas. Luke had evidently rejoined the party, having been left at Philippi following Paul's first visit there, chapter 16, verse 40. Chapter 20 of Acts, verses 7 to 12, Miracle at Troas. Paul had not preached at Troas on his first visit, being called away to Macedonia. But while he was absent in Macedonia, Anacclesia had commenced there presumably by teachers from Ephesus. Paul takes the opportunity to visit and to strengthen the new ecclesia and speaks for some considerable time at the breaking of bread, even until midnight. Then, after taking the emblems, continued until break of day. Originally, the disciples were busy preaching in the temple and the synagogues on the Sabbath day, 
Their memorial meeting was therefore kept on the first day of the week in the evening, when slaves would be free from their duties. It would also, appropriately, correspond to the time when the Lord had been raised, Matthew 29, verse 1. The first day of the week is confirmed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. The day and time upon which we hold the breaking of bread is set by custom, not by law. For the Lord had said, as oft as ye do this, in remembrance of me. So that in the beginning the disciples broke bread from house to house, as we've seen in Acts 2, verse 46. Nevertheless, the wise practice was developed of breaking bread every first day of the week, not too often to become meaningless, and not too infrequently to lose its continual impact. The essential thing is to not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as the manner of some is but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, Paul says in Hebrews 10, verse 25. Of the manner in which the memorials were kept, the ancient writer Justin Martyr wrote, And upon the day which is called Sunday, all that live either in city or country meet together at the same place where the writings of the apostles and prophets are read, as long as time permits. When the reader has done, the president gives verbal instruction and invitation to the imitation of the good things. At the conclusion of the discourse, we all rise up together and pray. Before partaking of the bread and wine, the president offers up prayers and thanksgiving with all fervency he is able, and the people conclude all with a joyful acclamation of Amen. Then, the bread and wine, are distributed to and partaken of by all that are present. Meanwhile, the ecclesia had gathered in an upper room where there were many lamps burning which would contribute to eye fatigue. As the dark time drew on towards midnight and Paul was still speaking, Luke observed across the room that a young man named Eutychus, his name means fortunate, had fallen into a deep sleep, and because he was sitting in a window, was about to fall further, from the third loft. Before warning could be given, Eutychus fell and was taken up dead. Paul was informed of the tragedy and going down, following the examples of Elijah and Elisha, uh, fell on him and embraced him, saying to the brethren, Trouble not yourselves, for his life is in him. And so it was truly a fortunate young man. Here was another death and resurrection to show the power of the Spirit to remove any possible lingering doubt that our God can raise the dead. The words, and were not a little comforted, is surely an understatement. Even this event did not halt the proceedings for long. Paul continued to the break of day when the party of nine brethren, for Luke is now included, left to continue their journey to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 16, journey to Ephesus. The party, with the exception of Paul, who took the opportunity to meditate and pray whilst walking the shorter overland route, sailed to Assos, where the philosopher Aristotle had lived. Assos is 20 miles, 32 kilometres, to the south of Troas. 
From here they sailed another 30 miles, 48 kilometres, to Mytilene, the capital of the island of Lesbos. The next day they passed through the 5 miles, 8 kilometres wide channel opposite the island of Chios, and the following day, having bypassed Ephesus, arrived at Samos Island, which is only a mile from the mainland, and tarried at Tregillium. Another 20 miles or 32 kilometres brought them to Miletus, with its three harbours, since silted up. Once again, we're impressed by the local knowledge of Luke, who obviously wrote first-hand of this voyage. Miletus, where was a large Jewish presence, is 30 miles, 48 kilometres south of Ephesus. It was an important city with a theatre capable of holding 15,000 people. It would take three or four days for a messenger to go to Ephesus and the elders of the ecclesia to return. Paul was in a hurry. He wanted to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost, which would be a good time to distribute the proceeds of the fund. For Pentecost was the feast when two wave loaves baked with leaven were offered. These represented the first fruits of Jew and Gentile believers in Christ. Leviticus 23 verse 17. Acts chapter 20 verses 17 to 38. To the elders of Ephesus. It was now A.D. 57. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus and could not miss the opportunity to once more appeal to the elders, the Presbyteros, verse 17, the elders of the Ecclesia, despite his hurry. Elders and overseers, or bishops, episcopos, verse 28, are synonymous terms. The word elder indicates a spiritual maturity and experience. The word overseer, or bishop, indicates the nature of their service in the Ecclesia. This is the only speech that Luke has so far recorded in Acts at which he is actually present, and the only one that is addressed to brethren. It is therefore very different from the other speeches in Acts, and is more akin to the epistles. Once again, Luke's record is a precy of a much longer talk, summarised as follows. Verses 18 to 27, Paul a faithful witness. Verses 28 to 35, charge and warning. Verses 36 to 38, prayer and departure. Acts chapter 20, verse 18 to 27, a faithful witness. They well knew Paul's manner of life, which was an example to them and continues to be for us. Like his Lord, he was a faithful witness. Though not naturally humble, he has changed in Christ and can claim humility without any hypocrisy. Philippians 3 verse 4 to 7. I don't think we can make the same claim so easily. It is better to leave such claims to the judge of all the earth to decide. He knows what is in man and knows our hearts better than we do ourselves. But Paul was human too. He had his fears and temptations, just as we do. Though we do not have the Jews or any other man lying in wait for us as he did. Of these plots against him we have no record other than at Sencria in verse 3, though the brethren of Ephesus were obviously aware of other attempts on Paul's life. 
he had kept back nothing that was profitable for them to know. In this, the truth is so different to the mysteries of paganism and Masonic lodges, etc. In Christ, there are no hidden mysteries, but an appeal to all to be fully wise unto salvation through prayerfully reading God's word. Paul had not only taught in the school of Tyrannus, but also from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God. Even unbelieving Jews had that. And faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are obviously two keynote words essential in preaching. Paul continues, And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there. He is going in chains in the Spirit to Jerusalem. It was his conviction that, as with his Lord, Matthew 4, verse 1, the Spirit was driving him on this course. The warnings given in every city by brethren and sisters through the Holy Spirit that bonds and afflictions wait for him in Jerusalem did not deflect him from his purpose any more than it deflected the Lord from his. He intended to unite Jew and Gentile believers in one body, whatever the cost to himself. This was more important than his own safety. We read in chapter 21, verse 4 and verses 11 to 14. His concern was to finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul did not change the gospel as some claim, but was instructed by the risen Lord himself, and he mentions this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. That Paul's course will be finished with joy is certain, for he, under inspiration, was able to write, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. We read that in the second of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8. John the Baptist, though cruelly beheaded as a young age, also fulfilled his course in chapter 13, verse 25. It now remains for us to fulfill ours. The singular call of Saul of Tarsus is more fully stated later when, defending himself before Agrippa, he says of his mission to the Gentiles to turn them from the power of Satan, the adversary, unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them that are sanctified by faith that is in me. See chapter 26, verses 16 to 18. Surely the Lord Jesus was his inspiration in this endeavour, as he should also be in ours. The Lord taught, the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark 1, verse 15. This Paul had also done. It is the hub of the gospel. All our preaching should focus upon it. The gospel is the name and the kingdom, in Acts 8, verse 12. In preaching this, Paul was pure from the blood of all men, for he had not shunned to declare unto them all the counsel of God. If we don't preach, 
we are guilty for other men's lives. Chapter 8, 18, verse 16. Each one must be a faithful witness. Verses 28 to 35. Charge and warning. In Ezekiel 34, the Lord had given a strong warning to the shepherds of Judah. Leading brethren are shepherds, and the more responsible to God for that. To whom much is given, much will be required. Luke 12, verse 48. Overseers were originally those to whom a gift of the Spirit had been given by the laying on of the apostles' hands. These should shepherd the ecclesia of God, which he, Jesus, had purchased with his own blood. Literally, this is blood of his own. It is the precious blood of Christ, as Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 19. No trinity is inferred here. For God is spirit and has no blood, nor can he die. This oversight, first given to Peter, John 21, verses 15 to 17, should be taken not by constraint, but willingly, not for money or advantage, but with a ready mind. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. At Ephesus, twelve men were given the Spirit. It was never given to all. These twelve, there may have been a few more by this time, were implored to take heed unto themselves. The Lord made the same request to take heed to yourselves of all his disciples, as Paul did to Timothy. That's in Luke 17, verse 3, and the first of Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and 16. Paul's phrase, grievous wolves, in Acts 20, verse 29, has a strong foundation in the word. Firstly, Ezekiel said of the rulers of Jerusalem, her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey. Ezekiel 22, verse 27. Then Zephaniah says of Jerusalem, Her princes within her are roaring lions, her judges are evening wolves, they gnaw not the bones till the morrow. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. That's Zephaniah 3, verse 3 and 4. Christ had warned, Beware of false prophets which come unto you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Matthew 7, verse 15. These are Paul's false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. False apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan, the adversary himself, is transformed into an angel of light in perils amongst false brethren. Galatians 2, verse 4 to 5, and the second of Corinthians, chapter 11. These are the grievous wolves entering among you, not sparing the flock. Less than ten years later, it was necessary for Timothy to be sent to Ephesus to deal with problems caused by these wolves. You find that in the first epistle of Timothy and the second epistle. John, by tradition then at Ephesus, had to deal with similar problems especially docetism. 1 John 2 verse 19 and the second epistle of John verse 7. The word grievous means a heavy weight. These were generally impressive men with strong personalities. How else could they make an impact upon the brethren? 
but by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of, and through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. Peter says in his second epistle, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Given the weight of scripture testimony on this matter, it is hardly surprising that the same grievous wolves and deceitful workers can be met with today. This is another prophecy that has been fulfilled to the letter. Paul has warned of those who come from outside the ecclesia entering in. Next, he warns of those who come from within the household, such as Hymenius and Alexander, who speak perverse things to draw away disciples after them. And here we note that Paul's words are addressed to spirit-gifted elders. In other words, possession of a gift does not prevent one from going astray, because the gift is under the control of the recipient. The spirits of the prophets are subject unto the prophets, Paul says in the first in Corinthians chapter 14. Even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. Therefore we should try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. John writes these words in 1 John 2, verse 18 to 19, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. That the Ephesians succeeded in opposing these is certain. For the Lord was able to write to them in about A.D. 96, I know thy works, and thy labour, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. Revelation 2, verse 2. Watch, be on your guard as a good shepherd, says Paul. The Lord also warned his disciples to watch. Mark 13, verse 34 to 37. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus, warning everyone night and day with tears, as distressing news came in from other ecclesias. This statement not only records Paul's emotional feelings for his brethren and sisters, but also how serious the danger really is of teachers perverting the gospel and seeking to lead factions. He therefore commends the brethren to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. The truth is God-centred. True, the elders that rule well are worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. But none can stand in the place of the head of the body, which is Christ. To do so is to be an antichrist. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17. The word of his grace, referred to by Paul, cannot be a reference to law. Men who seek a following inevitably introduce legalism in one form or another. The expression would seem to indicate that even then the New Testament was being compiled and circulated. What is certain is that Paul commended them to the Word, not to the Spirit. The inspired Word of God is the only sure foundation for belief and action. Some of the Spirit's activities, such as speaking in tongues, are too easily counterfeited to be relied upon. Only the word can edify and open our eyes, and to turn us 
from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in Jesus. Acts 26 verse 18. Paul continues in Acts 20 by saying that he had coveted no man's silver, gold or clothing, which is vanity. In this he reminds us of Samuel's integrity when the people desired a king, in the first of Samuel chapter 12. Paul always supported himself when not in prison, though he did benefit from the occasional gift. The Philippians were foremost in this. In this, he was also an example in that he supported not just himself, but the weak also we find in the first of Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 14. For it is more blessed to give than to receive, says Paul. This is a statement of the Lord, not elsewhere recorded, but is no doubt a key to Paul's generosity, which he enjoins upon all, Ephesians 4, verse 28. The weak were those unable to support themselves, such as widows indeed. The second of Thessalonians 3, verse 6 to 15, and the first of Timothy, chapter 5, verse 3 to 10. Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38. Prayer and Departure Jews generally stood to pray, and still do. Once there is nothing wrong in this, Paul, like Daniel, knelt in humility, Daniel 6 verse 10 and Ephesians 3 verse 14. As David penned in the Psalms, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, Psalm 95 verse 6. On hearing Paul's words that they would see his face no more, they fell on his neck and kissed him. Paul, despised by so many, was regarded with overflowing affection by those who believed. They sorrowed most, not for his warning, but that they would not again see his face which they held so dear in their hearts. In fact, it is likely that after his release from his first imprisonment in Rome, he did see them one more time. In all this, the Apostle to the Gentiles is a wonderful example to us of the total dedication to Jesus Christ and to the brethren and sisters. Journey to Caesarea, Jerusalem and Paul's Arrest Acts 21 verses 1 to 14, Journey to Jerusalem After a tearful parting, Paul and his eight companions sailed away from Miletus. 
Once again, Luke's account of the voyage and the ports of call shows his familiarity with the route. A familiarity and accuracy that could only be known by one who had actually made the journey. The so-called higher critics, which so severely criticised Luke, do look rather foolish today. With advancing knowledge of the area by travel and archaeology, Luke and the Bible are completely vindicated. Sailing along the coast, the boat arrived at the small island of Coos, less than five miles, eight kilometres off the mainland, at its nearest. Coos, or Kos, was the home of the school of medicine founded by Hippocrates in the 5th century BC. After spending the night there, the next day they sailed 60 miles, 96 kilometres, to the island of Rhodes, which is about 20 miles, 32 kilometres, off the mainland and the largest island of the Sparades group. Rhodes was known for the Colossus, a statue of the sun god Helios, about 100 feet, 30 metres high, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had, however, been destroyed by an earthquake in the 3rd century BC. Patara is situated on the mainland. It was the seat of the Roman proconsul and an important port for the Roman grain fleet from North Africa. Here the brethren transferred to a cargo ship that would take them directly the 400 miles, 640 kilometres, to Tyre in Phoenicia. They passed Cyprus, where Paul and Barnabas had gone on their first journey, on their left or port side. That is, they sailed south of the island and arrived at Tyre in probably four or five days. There the ship was to unload. The Tyre Ecclesia was unknown to any in Paul's party, so it was necessary for them to search for the Ecclesia. It had probably been started by brethren from Jerusalem fleeing persecution after the death of Stephen. But times had changed, and Paul was well received of the brethren. So he stayed with them seven days, despite his hurry to get to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit it was revealed to these brethren how Paul must suffer in Jerusalem. Their concern for the safety of their one-time persecutor caused them to beg him not to go. It was the Spirit that drove Paul's journey, however, and once again he would not be dissuaded. So when they had accomplished those days, they departed. The whole ecclesia, including the children, saw them out of the city. On the shore they kneeled down and prayed, an example for us in our private prayers. Taking their leave, the party boarded their ship again and soon came to Ptolemais. Here they saluted the brethren and, after staying only one night, continued their journey. Ptolemais is referred to as Acho in Judges, that is Judges 1 verse 31. Today it is known in English as Acre. Ptolemy Philadelphus gave his own name to the city, though by Luke's time it came under the Roman proconsul of Syria. The Emperor Claudius rebuilt the port and settled many veteran soldiers there. Under Nero it became a Roman colony. Jews were disliked there, and Josephus tells us that, at the outbreak of the Jewish war, its Gentile inhabitants massacred 2,000 Jews of the city. 
Another thirty miles, forty-eight kilometers, brought Paul and his companions the next day to the port of Caesarea. Beautiful Caesarea Maritima, with a population of fifty thousand, was home to the Roman governor of Judea. In Caesarea, Caesarea, about sixty-two miles, one hundred kilometers from Jerusalem had been built by Herod the Great, starting in 23 BC. It had the world's first artificial harbour using a kind of concrete that set under water. Caesarea contained temples, the largest being dedicated to Caesar, a great palace, an open-air theatre still in use today, and a hippodrome that could seat 30,000. Four yearly games were held there in honour of Caesar, See chapter 12, verse 21 to 23. Water was brought to the city from spring, six miles, ten kilometres to the north, via a tunnel bored through a sandstone ridge, and a large arched aqueduct, the ruins of which are much photographed by modern tourists. Amongst many rich finds, archaeologists have discovered a stone from the theatre that mentions Pontius Pilate, and in the synagogue, a fragment of an Hebrew inscription that lists the twenty-four courses of the priests and the capital of a pillar that is decorated with a menorah. At the beginning of the Jewish war in AD 66, the citizens of the city slew nearly the entire population of the Jews in Caesarea. The party stayed with Philip the Evangelist and his four daughters, who must have had quite a large home to accommodate everyone. No doubt Philip is called the evangelist, that is, one who announces good tidings, because of his earlier preaching to Samaritans in chapter 8, verse 4 to 25, and the Ethiopian eunuch in chapter 8, verse 26 to 40. The ecclesia at Caesarea probably started as a result of Philip's preaching. His four daughters, who also prophesied, were apparently unmarried, so that they could serve the Lord without distraction. The first of Corinthians 7 verse 34 speaks of this. That they had the gift of prophecy confirms Peter's quotation from Joel when he said at Pentecost, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Here Paul stayed for many days, during which time Philip may have been the source of much of Luke's information about the early days of the Jerusalem Ecclesia. These many days, referred to in Acts 21 verse 10, were to be Paul's last days of freedom for more than four years. Of this impending imprisonment, the prophet Agabus, his name means locust, see chapter 11 verse 28, Agabus, who arrived from Jerusalem, gave graphic warning. Agabus took Paul's girdle from him and bound his own hands and feet in illustration of the fate that awaited Paul at the hands of the Jews, who would then deliver him to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ had been similarly bound and delivered into the hands of men, we find in Luke 9 verse 44 and Luke 24 verse 7. In fact, it wasn't the Jews who bound Paul, but it was certainly the Jews who were responsible for Paul being bound by the Romans, both at Jerusalem and in Caesarea, where the prophecy was given. Look at chapter 26, verse 29. 
Peter was to be similarly bound, John 21, verse 18. In this, Paul and Peter both fellowshipped the sufferings of Christ and left us an example of what it can mean to take up his cross, as we have it in Philippians 3, verse 10. Something that we're unlikely to have to endure since the loss of papal dominion in 1870. The will of the Lord be done. The pleas and tears of the disciples made it so much harder for him to follow what he knew to be the Spirit's guidance. He responded with the words, What mean you to weep and to break mine heart? The word break, son thrupto, was sometimes used for women washing clothes by pounding them with stones. So the disciples ceased trying to persuade Paul not to go to Jerusalem, resigning themselves, as had the Lord in Gethsemane, by saying, The will of the Lord be done. In like manner we ought to say, If the Lord will, as James says in James 4 verse 15. Paul's zeal for God is an example to us all. In the second of Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4 to 10, we read of this, where we read, In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed. Like his Lord, Paul was ready to die at Jerusalem for the name, and even take pleasure in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I'm, I am weak, then am I strong. For it was then that the power of Christ rested upon him, as he says in the second of Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. The disciples wept because of their love for Paul. However, like John, Paul knew that whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? The first of John, chapter 5, verse 4 to 5. Acts 21, verses 15 to 26, at Jerusalem. The travellers got ready for the final stage of their journey. It may be that horses were used for the steep ascent from Caesarea to Jerusalem, for the Greek word aposkiuso was sometimes used for saddling and packing horses. Several of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied the party, escorting them to the house of Nason, probably a shortened and Greekized form of Manasseh, who, like Barnabas, was a Jew of Cyprus and an early disciple. Accommodation in Jerusalem would be difficult to find at Pentecost, unless it had been booked in advance, especially for a party of nine. Nason was evidently prepared to suffer the reproach of his law-keeping Jewish brethren for generously entertaining Gentile brethren in his home. This was Paul's fifth visit to the Holy City, but the first for his Gentile companions. For them it must have been a moving experience that would make so much of the law and the prophets come alive. And compared to his first visit to the Jerusalem Ecclesia, it was also different for Paul, 
for this time the brethren received him gladly. As it turned out, the apostles were absent, probably on preaching to us, but James and the elders were present. Paul and the brethren saluted them, no doubt, with an holy kiss. See the first of Thessalonians 5 verse 26. To these brethren Paul declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. There was no glory to the apostle. For God gave the increase, as all recognized, and mentioned in the first of Corinthians 3 verse 7. James, the Lord's half-brother, had become the most prominent brother in the Ecclesia in Peter's absence. Once concerned that Jesus was out of his mind, Mark chapter 3 verse 21 in the ESV, he was converted when Jesus appeared to him after his resurrection, the first of Corinthians 15 verse 27. Josephus refers to James as James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. Sadly, the gift received from Paul, given by so many Gentile ecclesias, and intended to unify the body of Christ, was overshadowed by a rumour that Paul taught Jews living amongst Gentiles to forsake, Greek, apostasia, Moses and the law, and not to circumcise their children. This rumour had been spread among the thousands, the Greek myriads, ten thousand, but can mean a myriad of Jews who, though believers in Christ, were still zealous of the law. In fact, they had been catechised about Paul's apostasy. The authorised version word informed in verses 21 to 24. Our schoolmaster. Paul explained his attitude to law when he said, but as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all ecclesias. Is any man called being circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is any called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called of God. Thus Paul writes in the first of Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 to 20. The law is holy. The law is good if a man use it lawfully. The Lord is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith, we read in Romans, Timothy and Galatians. The elders agreed with Paul, but what was to be done to maintain the peace? For the multitude would insist on a public examination of Paul. As it happened, there were four brethren who had taken upon themselves a Nazarite vow, as had Paul himself, we find in Acts 18, verse 18. A Nazarite made a vow to consecrate himself wholly to the Lord as if he were a priest for a set period of time. At Jerusalem, his mission completed, would be the obvious place to conclude his vow. So Paul would conclude his vow with the four brethren and help pay their charges. Numbers chapter 6 required animal and meal and drink offerings to be made at the conclusion of the vow. These offerings included two lambs and a ram, 
which for all five of them would be quite expensive. Participating in this act would effectively silence any criticism. On reflection, it seems most unlikely that the four with a vow believed in justification by law, or surely Paul would not confirm them in their error by joining with them. For by works of the law shall no flesh be justified, Paul had written in Galatians 2 verse 16. Though he knew that by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, he made a concession for the sake of his Jewish brethren. He did not insist upon his rights. He wrote, Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Where did Paul get the money from to pay for the sacrifices? Certainly not from the collection for the poor. It seems that his sister's family living in Jerusalem had money and may have helped, or the generosity of his Gentile brethren may have met the need. It has even been suggested that he may have received an inheritance by this time. Bonds awaited Paul. He did everything he could to propitiate the Jews, but to no avail. As far as Gentile believers were concerned, James and the elders confirmed the decision of the Jerusalem Council made seven years before, that they need not observe circumcision and the law, but to keep themselves from all the observances of idolatry. Over the intervening years, these elders must have been under considerable pressure from the circumcision party to change their stand on this matter. But they had held fast. A bridging period. The next day Paul entered into the temple with his four brethren for the seven days required to complete their vows. The purification involved would also prepare him for the feast. Uh, John 11 verse 55 in comparison. Many Jews from other countries would also be purifying themselves ready for the feast, and it is not surprising that some would recognize Paul. The authorities in their cities had prevented them from killing Paul. But here in the temple they had him at their mercy. Here there could be no protection. It took time for Jewish brethren in Christ to forsake the temple. There was an overlap of 40 years between the ministry of Christ and the overthrow of the temple. It was a bridging period necessary for them to adjust to the changed circumstances of their redemption, a period in which some compromise was necessary until they came to the full realisation that the true temple is the body of Christ. So Paul taught in the first of Corinthians chapter 3 verses 16 to 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Gentile believers have no such hurdle to overcome. Our separation from idolatry must be immediate and complete, as the Apostle says. What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. 
As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. This from the second of Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 17. Acts 21, verse 27 to 40, Paul's arrest. When the seven days' purification were almost ended, it was Jews of Asia, probably from Ephesus and not of Jerusalem, verse 29, that stirred up the people and laying hands on him cried out, Men of Israel, help! They made four complaints against Paul. That of teaching against the people would be an allusion to his bringing Gentiles into the covenant and saying that they are no Jews that are only Jews outwardly and not of the heart, which you find in Romans 2 verse 28 to 29. The second complaint was that he taught against the law and the third that he spoke against this place. These were the same charges that had been brought against Stephen in Acts chapter 6, verse 13. History was being repeated. The fourth charge was, as they supposed, of bringing Gentiles into the temple. They had seen Paul in the city with Trophimus, an Ephesian, and assumed that Paul had brought him with other Gentiles into the temple. This was an exaggerated claim for which there was no evidence. But such an emotive charge was sure to succeed with the volatile Jews. The truth was, of course, that Greeks were being brought not into that temple, but into the true. The middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile had been broken down in Christ, as we read in Ephesians 2 verses 14 and 15. The outer court of Herod's temple was known as the court of the Gentiles. This court was divided from the inner courts by a middle wall of partition. In his Wars of the Jews, Josephus writes that warning signs were placed at intervals along this wall that prohibited Gentiles from entering any further, even if they were proselytes. Two of these notices have been found. That found by Clermont Gano in 1871 states, no man of another nation to enter within the fence and enclosure round the temple. And whosoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death ensues. Josephus also adds, And above these titles there hung a fourth title in these characters, announcing that Jesus the King did not reign, but was crucified by the Jews because he prophesied the destruction of the city and the devastation of the temple. This is reminiscent of the account of Jeremiah and the murder of Urijah, Jeremiah 26, verse 10 to 24. Luke records in Acts 21, verse 30, that Paul was seized and dragged out into the court of the Gentiles by the angry mob, and the doors of the beautiful gate immediately closed, closed against the apostle to the Gentiles, who taught that the way into the holiest of all was now open by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 20. In fact, these Jews shut themselves out of the way of their own salvation. 
Here, Paul would have been beaten to death, but for news of the opera reaching the Roman commander, the Chiliarch, Claudius Lysias, Acts 23, verse 26. He immediately took a large number of the soldiers and centurions down into the melee. Paul had been accused of polluting the temple. Hadn't the Lord made a scourge of small cords and cleansed the temple, so polluted by their money-making that he had described it as a den of thieves? And wouldn't the temple have been further polluted by murder if the soldiers had not intervened? Away with such a fellow! At the sight of the soldiers, the people stopped beating Paul, who was then bound with two chains. Chaining him to two soldiers was entirely unnecessary and prevented Paul from moving when the crowd made a rush upon him and knocked him off his feet. It was an ugly moment. The soldiers were unable to draw their swords in the crush and violence of the people. It was only with great difficulty that the soldiers managed to carry their prisoner up the stairs that led into the fortress of Antonia that overlooked the temple precincts on the north, being 60 feet, 18 metres high, with four higher towers. Meanwhile, the angry mob was shouting, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Meaning, as they had shouted before Pilate, Away with him, crucify him, crucify him. Yet for all this violence, some in the mob cried one thing and some another, showing that they really didn't know what it was all about. Such is mob rule. At the entrance to the fortress at the top of the stairs, Paul asked the chief captain in Greek if he might speak to him. That Paul could speak fluently in the Greek language surprised the commander, who had assumed that Paul was the Egyptian rebel leader of the Sicarii, or Dagomen. These violent murderers, from Sicarios terrorists, killed at random amongst crowds and then melted away. The high priest Jonathan was the first to have his throat cut in this way. Many more were murdered every day, causing great fear. Josephus described this Egyptian messiah in detail. A greater blow than this was inflicted on the Jews by the Egyptian false prophet. Arriving in the country, this man, a fraud who posed as a seer, collected about 30,000 dupes led them round to the Mount of Olives, and from there was ready to force an entry into Jerusalem, overwhelm the Roman garrison, and seize supreme power with his fellow raiders as bodyguard. But Felix anticipated his attempt by meeting him with the Roman heavy infantry, the whole population rallying to the defence, so that when the clash occurred, the Egyptian fled with a handful of men, and most of his followers were killed or captured. The rest of the mob scattered and stole away to their respective homes. This by Josephus from his Wars of the Jews. Josephus tended to exaggerate numbers. Luke's 4,000 would be correct. This occurred during the procuratorship of Judea by Felix from AD 52 to 59. Now, Paul was not the Egyptian. He was from Tarsus, a citizen of no mean, that is, no ordinary, city. This in itself gave Paul status enough for the commander to accede to Paul's request to speak to the people. 
when a great silence had been made, he, as had Stephen, addressed the people in Hebrew, the language of the prophets, and used only by strict Jews. His use of Hebrew made an immediate impression. After all, Paul was an Hebrew of the Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3 verse 5. But he had come a long way since he was consenting unto his, Stephen's, death, and led a great persecution against the Ecclesia in Acts 8 verse 1. Through it all, Paul, in all good conscience, could say, I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 9 verses 1 to 3. Similarly, we Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, and therefore our duty is also to minister to them in carnal things. Romans 15 verse 27 before the Jews at this point it may pay us to review Paul's progress in preaching the truth for it would soon lead him to preach in Rome also after all the last seven chapters of Acts covers in considerable detail Paul's arrest and subsequent doings which would finish in his being set free in Rome this must be a very important sequence, essential to his gaining toleration for the preaching that would eventually so affect the empire that it would become Christian. It was this preaching by the arrowless bowman riding the white horse of peace that went forth conquering and to conquer, that caused idolatry to lose favour in the empire because of its want of reason and its grossly immoral practices. Revelation 6 verse 2 in the beginning of this record, Luke has informed us that, beginning at Jerusalem and Judea, the gospel must be spread into all the world. Early Jewish doctrinal opposition, despite a degree of political toleration for a while, because of Gamaliel's counsel, contributed to the spreading of the gospel and to a separation from Judaism. The Apostle Paul endorsed this separation when he wrote of the need to leave law and temple before the coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem in AD 70. His words mark the final call to separation from the Lord of Moses. He writes in Hebrews, We, we Jews, have an altar whereof they, the priests, have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp on the Day of Atonement. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Hebrews 13, verse 10 to 14. This is a remarkable change effected in Saul of Tarsus by Stephen's reasoning from the Scriptures and the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in glory on the road to Damascus. Through this man the gospel was sent into all the world. Peter's use of the key to understanding entrusted to him by the Lord in preaching to Cornelius, his household and his friends 
led the way to inclusion of Gentiles to the faith. Matthew 16, verse 19. Paul, as he became, was now free to pursue his God-given calling of preaching to the Gentiles. Though it became necessary to reconcile his conversion of Gentiles without the observance of circumcision and the law, with the law-abiding brethren in Jerusalem and Judea, as we find in Acts chapter 15. For this venture to be successful throughout the empire, Roman toleration and protection must be gained. This the Jews vigorously opposed, continually stirring up the people and even the mob. Paul was imprisoned, stoned, beaten, but never subdued. Generally, the Roman authorities were favourable to Paul. At Corinth, sense prevailed when the proconsul Gallio rightly saw that the opposition was based on Jewish, not Roman law, and drove the Jews from the judgment seat. Gallio's decision had far-reaching consequences as far as permission to preach without hindrance was concerned. Yet his was only a regional permission. To be universally effective, permission must come from the emperor in Rome itself. But who could petition the emperor? Who would even dare to do so? Only one. The man chosen of God to bear Jesus' name before kings we find in Acts 9 verse 15. By Acts chapter 22, the time had come. Even so, Paul was an Hebrew of the Hebrews, as he says in Philippians 3 verse 5, and his speaking in Hebrew, Greek, Hebraeus dialectos, caused the crowd to give him their full attention. Paul, though born in Tarsus, had spent his school years in Jerusalem, where his sister resided. We read that in Acts 23 verse 16. He probably spoke Greek in Tarsus and then Hebrew and Aramaic in Jerusalem. As a Roman citizen, he probably also knew some Latin. In the same way that Stephen opened his defence, Paul began, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defence which I now make unto you. Stephen continued with Abraham's history. Paul continued with his own history, emphasising his Jewishness and zeal in the law. He was a member of the covenant people, had been taught by the greatest teacher of his day, and was zealous toward God. Note that he does not say, zealous for the law, but lifts his argument onto higher ground. What is more, he had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, that is, as Saul, he had sat in the front row of the class immediately before his teacher as the star pupil. He was thoroughly versed in the scriptures and in scribal tradition. His zeal, the word carries the implication that he was prepared to use violence to defend the Torah, his zeal led to his bitter and violent persecution of the followers of this way. Compare John 14, verse 6, even unto death. He bound men and women, delivering them to prison. What did he care for their unfortunate children now abandoned, in many cases orphaned? This was the same man who would later write to the Thessalonians, But we are gentle among you, 
even as a nurse cherisheth her children. And to Timothy, the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. What had made Saul of Tarsus change? How is it that he could later write, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, in Romans 10 verse 2, a position Paul understood well. The dramatic change came as he approached Damascus about noon. Paul never forgot his responsibility for murder. He says, For I am the least of all the apostles, that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the ecclesia of God, in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9. Though like David he chastened himself throughout his life, his sin was forgiven and therefore will not be remembered at the judgment seat. Our sins, once forgiven, are forgotten by our God. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us, we read in Psalm 103, verse 12. It was the appearance of Jesus Christ to him that led to Paul's divine commission. The law had been given through Moses. How much more profitable was it then that a revelation should be given through one who had risen from the dead and was exalted to his father's right hand? Paul is implying that his preaching and practice was not opposed to divine law, but actuated by a further revelation from God. The listening crowd of worshippers raised no objection to this idea. Their obedience to the law rested on the fact that God had given it. Their duty now was to examine Paul's claims to a further revelation, his obedience to which had changed his life so dramatically. All the council and the high priest could testify to Paul's persecuting zeal. His companions on the journey to Damascus could testify to the bright light, far brighter than even the midday sun, though they heard, but did not understand, the voice of him that spake, saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth, literally, Jesus the Nazarene, used only on three occasions, whom thou persecutest. The Lord confirms the principle that, inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me, Matthew 25 verse 40, and compare verse 45. Similarly, Paul wrote, When ye sin so against the brethren, ye sin against Christ. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12. In retelling the story of his conversion, Paul describes Ananias as a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt at Damascus. The Jews cannot take exception to anything that Paul says as he emphasises the unimpeachable characters of Ananias and those involved with Jesus Christ. And God must have been with Ananias, for he miraculously restored brother Saul's sight. As Peter had truly said to the elders, 
We are his witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, which God hath given to them that obey him, in Acts 5, verse 32. The truth was, God had chosen Paul to know his will and to see that a just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. Saul did not choose to be what he was of his own volition, any more than we do. He was chosen by the God of our fathers. A phrase again emphasizing the idea of continuing the divine revelation over the centuries, and thereby denying that he had apostatized, but remained faithful to the one true God of his fathers. It would not be until completion of the apocalypse that this revelation would be complete. Church claims of additional revelation are false, as are those of various sects and non-Christian religions, despite their so-called holy books. The Bible is the word of God, and there is no other. In referring to Jesus as the just one, Paul takes us back to Peter's statement, the holy one and the just, made before the council in Acts 3 verse 14. Though Paul would really have in mind Stephen's words, Acts 7 verse 52, just, righteous, or right conduct is here applied to Christ. He is the Holy One of Psalm 16, who is not suffered to see corruption. The prophet Isaiah says he is a just God and a Saviour in chapter 45 verse 21. In the future, this is his name whereby he shall be called. Yahweh, our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Therefore the word just or righteous is also used of the saints whose sins are repented of and forgiven. Paul not only heard the voice of his mouth on the road to Damascus, but also in subsequent visions he mentions, and probably when in Arabia, Galatians 1, verse 17 and 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, his Lord had been a faithful witness, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, and Paul would continue the same witness before kings. But first he must arise and be baptised to wash away his sins. Forgiveness is not only conditional on baptism, but also on calling on the name of the Lord in prayerful confession of sin in the spirit of Psalm 116. I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and will call upon the name of the Lord. Depart far hence unto the Gentiles. Far from being opposed to the temple and its worship, Paul had actually gone there to pray. Whilst in a trance he had a vision of the Lord warning him to flee quickly out of Jerusalem. Paul did not see the need to flee, knowing that the people were well aware of his part in the death of the martyr, Greek martyrs, a witness, the martyr Stephen, and the ensuing persecution of the saints. He reasoned that his previous opposition would make his testimony all the more powerful and compelling. The Lord, of course, knew better. And Paul bowed to the divine will that he should go far hence unto the Gentiles. The phrase here reminds us of Peter's statement in the temple at Pentecost. 
that the promise of salvation should be extended to Gentiles afar off, in fulfilment of the Lord's command that they should be witnesses to him unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 2 verse 39 and Acts 1 verse 8. The point is, however, that Paul's divine commission as ambassador to the Gentiles was received in the temple itself. Ephesians 6 verse 20. Despite this, Paul's mention of Gentiles was too much for the angry mob. It seemed to confirm their suspicion that he had taken a Gentile into the temple. They cast off their clothes, threw dust in the air and shouted, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. It was almost a case of crucify him, crucify him. They were moved to jealousy by the inclusion of Gentiles in the hope of Israel, as Moses had foreshadowed in Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. Nothing more could be said in the face of such a passion of rage. The Roman soldiers took the bruised and battered Paul, still bound with two chains, into the fortress of Antonia. There he was bound with thongs so that they could examine him by scourging. A free-born Roman. There being no purpose to be served by further suffering, Paul raised the matter of the illegality of scourging an uncondemned Roman. Hearing this, the centurion went and warned the chief captain, the Chiliarchos, ruler of the thousand, Claudius Lysias. He then came himself to interview Paul, for the Porcian and Julian laws not only prohibited such a flogging of a Roman, that prescribed severe penalties for any who dared to do so. Was Paul a Roman? Yes, and freeborn. The chief captain had only achieved his citizenship by paying a large bribe to an official. He was probably a freed slave who received his citizenship during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. Lysias' first name, Claudius, indicates that he received his citizenship under that emperor, it being common to use the emperor's name under such circumstances. For Paul to be a freeborn Roman, Paul's father must be Roman. To be a Jew in Old Testament times, one had to have a Jewish father. An example of this is Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, born to his Egyptian wife. But times were changing and Jewish descent was beginning to be counted from the mother also. Timothy, for example, had a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. Saul of Tarsus may have been born of a mixed marriage, but more likely, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, both parents were Jews. He was the son of a Pharisee, he says in chapter 23, verse 6. His father had dual citizenship. Being a Roman, his name would have been recorded on a register in Rome, as well as the citizen registry at Tarsus. His citizenship status exempted Paul from emperor worship and participation in official Roman cults, such as the worship of Roma. To settle the matter quickly, Claudius Lysias summoned the Sanhedrin to appear before him the next day, so that he might better understand the charges against his prisoner. This was not to be a trial. As a Roman, his trial must be before the Roman procurator Felix. 
Paul's defence before the Sanhedrin, sent to Caesarea. How strange that Paul, like his Lord, was acquitted by Rome, but condemned by his own people. Like his Lord, he was also struck on the face contrary to the law. This hearing was to ascertain what charges the Jews were laying against Paul. Because he is Roman, his case will be heard before Felix, when a charge has been formulated and evidence recorded. Paul was taken down from the fortress of Antonia to the place where the council met. Paul commenced by saying he had lived in all good conscience before God until this day. This statement does not imply that he was without fault, only that his actions were in accordance with his conscience. Yes, he had been wrong in persecuting the Ecclesia, but at the time he sincerely believed it to be the right thing to do. Conscience is no guide to right behaviour if the word of God does not direct it. Sincerity and truth are important. And so, for Paul, as for us, baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God, because it is for the forgiveness of our sins. And Peter says this in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 21. So Paul addresses the council that had commissioned him to persecute the followers of Jesus some 22 years earlier. But this is AD 58, and Paul is now about 52 years old and describes himself as Paul the Aged in Philemon, verse 9. The high priest is Ananias, son of Nebedeus. He served as high priest from AD 47 to 59, and then, at the outbreak of the Jewish war in AD 66, he went into hiding until he and his brother Hezekiah were found by Jewish revolutionaries and killed because of their collaboration with Rome. Josephus tells us that Ananias was very popular, but extremely wealthy because of his corruption. His servants took the tithes, beating those who refused to pay, so that some of the older priests, who depended on the tithes for support, actually starved to death. Since this hearing was before the Roman authority, the high priest did not wear his robes of office, with the consequence that Paul did not know whom it was who commanded him to be struck on the mouth, contrary to the law. Paul responded with the words, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall. And he did, a few years later. The Lord had used a similar expression, a whited sepulchre of the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, verse 27. The whole incident, including the high priest hiding from vengeance, is a replay of the record of Micaiah the prophet, which we have in the first of Kings chapter 22, verses 24 to 25. Paul, who had not known that it was the high priest whom he had accused, responded to that accusation by citing Thou shalt not revile the gods, that is, Elohim, mighty ones, nor curse the ruler of thy people, Exodus 22, verse 28. Paul was not against the law, though charged with being so. You might like to look at chapter 21, verse 28. Paul's cry that he was a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, literally 
a son of Pharisees, that is, from a line of Pharisees. So Paul was the son of a Pharisee who believed in the hope and resurrection of the dead. Is said by most commentators to have been a cunning and unworthy ploy to divide his accusers, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Such a ploy would have been completely out of character. The Lord had promised that when arraigned before the authorities, the spirit of your father will speak in you, in Matthew 10, verse 19 to 20. Therefore we can be certain that what Paul had said was of the Holy Spirit. Rome had given legal protection to Judaism because of the Jews' claim that their religion had been given by divine revelation. Paul claimed that he should also receive the protection of Rome because his teaching was based on the same divine revelation. It is also interesting to note that Paul said, I am a Pharisee, not I once was. By this, Paul implies that he still holds to the Pharisees' respect for Scripture, their zeal for God, and their doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. This latter doctrine was, of course, the national hope, as Paul emphasises later in Acts 24, 26 and 28. We find no evil in this man. And so began no small dissension among Paul's accusers. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit. That is not to say that they thought there are no angels. For the five books of Moses that the Sadducees accepted made frequent reference to them. Rather, Luke's comment is that because the Sadducees denied any resurrection, they also denied that there is any future for the faithful by God making them either equal unto the angels or immortal souls. It should be noted that the Greek idea of an immortal soul was gr becoming gradually accepted in Judah at to this time. Hence the parable of the rich man and Lazarus we find in Luke 16, verse 22 and 23. After heated debate, the Pharisees said, We find no evil in this man unconsciously repeating almost the same words of Pilate, who three times declared Jesus to be without fault. Paul, similarly, was three times declared to have done nothing worthy of death or bonds. We find this in Acts 23, verse 29, chapter 25, verse 25, and chapter 26, verse 31. At the same time, the Pharisees admitted the possibility of further revelation, saying, If a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, and then repeated the advice of Gamaliel, Let us not fight against God. But in this admission, they did not agree with Paul's testimony that it was Jesus Christ who had spoken to him. The Pharisees would never admit that Jesus might have been raised from the dead, in that, at least, they were in agreement with the Sadducees. The ensuing argument led to a scuffle that threatened Paul's safety, so the chief captain gave orders for his soldiers to go down and rescue Paul. This they did by force, and brought him into the fortress for his security. It would have been a most frightening experience for Paul, who must have realised that there could be no escape for him, from their determined malice. 
to encourage the apostle, he had another vision of his Lord. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, or courage. Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The word must is imperative. You might like to compare chapter 19, verse 21. When the time came for the words of the Lord to be fulfilled, even in Rome, Paul still followed his practice of preaching to the Jew first. In speaking of the Comforter, the Lord had promised, He that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself unto him. This from John 14, verse 21. This vision is another illustration of the work of the Lord, who, by his Spirit, is the Comforter. Acts 23, verse 12 to 22, a plot to kill Paul. Next morning, more than 40 Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, literally cursed themselves with a curse, that they would not eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. This type of curse is well illustrated in the Jewish Mishnah. But with Moses' command, Thou shalt not kill. How could they do this? How could the apparently righteous chief priests and elders of the nation sanction such a criminal act? Because jealousy and hatred override all other considerations, and for two thousand years the Jews themselves have experienced this jealousy in widespread anti-Semitism. This is a repeat of their earlier crimes in condemning Jesus when they said, His blood be on us and on our children. Matthew 27 verse 25 Beware of blind hatred and jealousy. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only God who searched the heart and tries the reins. Let us not be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 to 10, and Hebrews 3, verse 13. The word curse, or oath, is the Greek anathematizo, which in the Septuagint translate the Old Testament kerem. Kerem is used of Jericho and of the Canaanites generally. You'll see this in Joshua 6, verse 17 to 18, and Deuteronomy 20, verse 17. What happened to the men after Paul had escaped their plot to murder him? Apparently the vow could be annulled if it became impossible to carry it out. For the Talmud says, Let him go to the wise men, and they shall loose him from his vow. As it is written, The tongue of the wise is health. Proverbs 12, verse 18. Nevertheless, a great curse did come upon them all in those terrible years, A.D. 66-70. to 70. The plot was to kill Paul on the short journey from the fortress to Zistos, as Josephus calls it, where the Sanhedrin met. This would also mean killing most of his Roman guard too, of course. It is impossible that forty men could keep such a secret, and not one of them boast of what was intended. No doubt Paul's sister was married to a Pharisee she, since she was of such a family herself. 
Soon news of the plot was whispered to her. She in turn told her young son, young man, verse 17, but young enough to be taken by the hand, verse 19. She told her son, her young son, to go to the army barracks and forewarn Paul. This he did. It would be natural enough for the prisoner's young nephew to visit him without being suspected of betraying the plot. Being a Roman and not yet charged with an offence, Paul evidently was free to receive visitors. On hearing of the plot to kill him, Paul sent for a centurion who took the young man to the tribune and the commander of a Roman cohort. He, realising that this was an important message, took the boy aside and listened to what he had to say. Then, enjoining secrecy lest the boy be killed if it got out that he had warned the garrison, sent the young man home. The tribune protected himself by protecting a Roman whom he had wronged. Now he is determined to save his prisoner and make amends. Sent to Caesarea. The plot was not only a serious threat to Paul, but also to his escort. And knowing the volatility of the Jews, Claudius Lysias realised that the whole thing could easily get out of hand. So he wisely decided to send Paul immediately to Caesarea under heavy guard. Two hundred soldiers, seventy cavalry, and two hundred spearmen sat out in the dark at about nine o'clock in the evening, with horses for Paul, and Luke, possibly, to bring them to the governor. Imagine the soldiers walking and their prisoner riding. How extraordinary! No wonder Paul would shortly be writing to Hebrew believers the words, For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Hebrews 13 verses 5 to 6 The two centurions in command took with them a letter from Claudius Lysias, explaining what it was all about. In writing the letter, Lysias puts his actions into a better light by bending the truth, saying he had res rescued the prisoner because he was a Roman. He did not mention his order to have Paul scourged. Note, too, how that the letter does not mention that some who claim that Paul had brought the Gentile Trophimus into the temple caused the riot. This had not been referred to in the hearing before the Sanhedrin. How did Luke know what was in the letter? The word used to pos, Acts 23 verse 25, is a technical term, suggesting that Luke has the exact text of the letter in his possession. Undoubtedly Luke travelled with Paul as compa his companion on that night ride. That night they reached Antipatris on the plain of Chiron, about 35 miles, 56 kilometres, northwest of Jerusalem on the road to Caesarea. This was the ancient Ephek, whose king was slain by Joshua, Joshua 12, verse 18. It was renamed Antipatris by Herod the Great after his father Antipater. The next day the 400 soldiers returned to Jerusalem, while the cavalry escorted Paul the next 27 miles, 43 kilometres, to Caesarea, as if he were some important dignitary. And so they arrived at Caesarea, where Agabus had foretold Paul 
that he would be bound at Jerusalem. Here was the seat of the Roman proconsul and the administrative and judicial centre for Judea. See chapter 10, verse 1. The governor, the Greek hegemon, or procurator, was Felix, who had been appointed in A.D. 52. He and his brother Pallas had been slaves of Antonia, the mother of Claudius, but freed by Claudius. This was the first time that the office of procurator was held by a freed slave, and not someone of wealth and status. His reign over Judea, Galilee, Samaria and Perea caused so much unrest that it eventually led to the Jewish revolt. Tacitus comments, Practising every kind of cruelty and lust, he wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave. That's Tacitus in his Historiae 5.9. Tacitus also states that Felix stimulated outbreaks of Jewish unrest by injudicious disciplinary measures. And that's in 12.54 of Tacitus. He executed or crucified Jewish zealots nearly every day, and even conspired to put to death the high priest Jonathan. Nero removed him from office after he had badly handled an uprising in Caesarea by ordering his soldiers to kill large numbers of Jews and plundering their property. This mentioned by Josephus in his Wars of the Jews to 13.7. These frightening events actually occurred while Paul was held in custody there. Felix read Lysias' letter and asked what province the prisoner was from to see if the case fell within his jurisdiction. The province of Cilicia was the answer. Cilicia came under the authority of the Roman legate of Syria, to which Felix reported. Felix must, therefore, hear the case. Paul, meanwhile, was kept under guard in Herod's palace, the Greek Praetorion, built on a rocky promontory into the sea. This site has been excavated. It contained a pool measuring 115 feet long and 59 feet wide. That is 38 times 18 metres. It stood in the centre of the complex. The pool was filled with fresh water through channels. Of course, chapter 24 Paul's defense before Felix Acts 24 verses 1 to 9 accusation by Tertullus five days after Paul's imprisonment at Caesarea the high priests and the elders made their descent from Jerusalem to Caesarea to oppose Paul showing the importance in their minds of this test case for the gospel of Jesus Christ the Jews, not trusting to their own debating skills, had even employed a notable orator to speak on their behalf to make sure that they secured a conviction. This action increased the pressure on the apostle who was up against the highest power of the Jewish state. Procurator Felix, who had been appointed in AD 52, served as judge and heard both the accuser's case and that of the defendant. At the end of the hearing, however, no decision was made because one important witness was missing. 
the Roman commander in Jerusalem. Felix would wait for his testimony before making a decision. Tertullus began the case for the prosecution. He was a, a rhetor, a professional public speaker and advocate with a Latin name. He began by heaping the most outrageous flattery on the evil Felix. No doubt Tertullus had the measure of his man and was well aware that hated and mean-minded Felix would respond favourably to his obsequiousness. This freed slave had married Drusilla, who did exceed all other women in beauty. She was one of three daughters of Agrippa I and sister to Berenice. Felix used a magician from Cyprus to help him entice her away from her husband, King Azizus of Emesa, to become Felix's third wife when she was only 14 or 15 years old, according to Josephus in his Antiquities 19.9.1, 27.1 and 2. Their son, also named Agrippa, was killed with his wife during the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 AD. Tertullus, tongue-in-cheek, said, By thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. The Greek, pronoia, forethought. The only way Felix tried to bring peace was by killing all those Jews, Sicarii, who opposed him. In fact, Felix did more to disrupt peace than any other governor. This man accuses Paul of one, being a pestilent fellow, literally a plague or pestilence, used as a metaphor for a dangerous man like a carrier of disease. Which was a vague accusation indeed. The same word is used of Eli's sons in the Septuagint of 1 Samuel 2 verse 12, because they knew not the Lord. But in their case it had a definite foundation in their immoral behaviour. 2. Being a mover of sedition, literally, insurrection, among all the Jews throughout the world. This was a serious charge, given that Rome was always trying to maintain the peace, and it had some foundation, as we have already seen, in the reaction to Paul's preaching across the ancient world. 3. Being a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. This is the first use of this term to describe the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. From the Greek word herensis, sect, is derived the English word heresy, see verse 14 and also chapter 28 verse 22. Though the word itself implies a division, or in Tertullus' speech, a corrupt form of Judaism. And fourthly, being a profaner of the temple by taking, as was supposed, Trophimus into the inner court. Without Jews from Asia Minor being present as witnesses, this charge could not be pressed. The temple, including sacrifices made to God on behalf of Caesar, was permitted by Rome, and therefore Roman power should be used to suppress Paul's activities. Tertullus adds that the Jews, with sweet reasonableness, would have taken Paul and judged him by their own law, if the chief captain Lysias had not used great violence to wrest the prisoner out of their hands. Instead, he blames Lysias for the melee. In other words, let Felix hand back the prisoner to the Jews, and they would try him.
The Jews present assented with their equivalent to hear, hear. With a gesture, Felix gave Paul his opportunity to reply. Acts 24, verses 10 to 23, Paul's defence. Paul's reply was brief, sincere, and recognised that the Jews were always difficult. Paul acknowledges Felix was qualified to judge his case because the governor had been a judge of the nation for many years. Therefore, he would cheerfully answer for himself. Paul required no skilled defence counsel. The spirit of the Father would speak in him and guide his defence such that it could not be gainsaid. Matthew 10, 17-20 In answer to the charge of being a pestilent fellow, Paul replies that in the twelve days in which he had been in Jerusalem, he had not entered into argument with anyone, including the five days in held in custody in Caesarea. It was still only seventeen days since he had arrived in Jerusalem, as shown below. Day one, Paul arrived in Jerusalem. Day two, he met with the Ecclesia's leaders, chapter 21, verse 18. Days three to nine, he spent seven days in purification to complete his vow, chapter 21, verse 27. Day nine, he was arrested, chapter 21, verse 33. Day 10, he appeared before the Sanhedrin, chapter 22, verse 30. Day 11, the plot against Paul's life was discovered, chapter 23, verses 12 to 16. Day 12, he is taken to Caesarea, chapter 23, verses 1 to 33. And days 13 to 17, in custody, awaiting trial, chapter 24, verse 1. Twelve days was hardly enough to provoke insurrection or riot especially since he had been arrested on the ninth day. He was innocent of this charge. In answer to the second charge of sedition, Paul replies that no one had found him raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city. And since there were no witnesses to any of the charges, they could not be proved. At this point, Paul's defence changes tack as he takes the opportunity to preach the gospel as particularly of resurrection and judgment before the governor. To intensify their attention to what he was saying, Paul starts by saying, This I confess unto thee. Everyone would lean forward in expectation. But though the Jews called Paul's gospel heresy, in fact he worshipped the God of the fathers of Israel and believed all that was written in the law and the prophets. In other words, Though Paul was a Nazarene, he was no heretic. He should therefore receive the protection of Roman law, not its condemnation. Being a Pharisee, he had the same hope of the resurrection as his accusers. In fact, it was the Sadducees who were the real heretics. They didn't believe in the resurrection. What is more, that coming resurrection must lead to judgment since it involved both just and unjust. The foundation for this belief is in the prophets. Daniel, for example, had written, Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, verse 2. The Lord spoke similarly when he said, For the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life 
and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of condemnation. John 5 verses 28 to 29. Paul himself had written to the Corinthians, For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, this in the second of Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 and 11. As Paul continued talking to Felix of judgment to come, the governor began to feel that terror of the Lord. At a later hearing, the governor could no longer control the trembling of his body. We read this in Acts 24, verse 25. The effect that Paul's words had upon him became obvious to all. In verse 14, Paul had mentioned the way. The way is not just doctrinal, it is moral. For in it, Paul exercised himself to have always a conscience void of offence toward God and toward men. Neither his accusers nor the judge could claim to have a conscience void of offence. This claim is a restatement of what Paul had earlier declared to the council in chapter 23, verse 1. What is more, after an absence from Jerusalem of about five years, in chapter 18, verse 22, he had come to bring alms to his nation and offerings, prosphorus, sacrificial offerings, chapter 21, verse 26, for his and his brethren's purification. A bringer of alms is not a pestilent and seditious fellow, these are not the actions of a man who was the enemy of his people. To be purified in the temple is not to profane it. These are the actions of a man who respected the law and attended the temple for worship. His original complainants were certain Jews of Asia, probably Ephesus. Where were they? Why were they not present to witness against him? The Roman law was very strong against accusers who abandoned their charges. Sherwin White, in his book Roman Law, 52. There was no case to answer. There were no witnesses. Note that Paul stops short of making a counter-accusation. He is interested in saving men, not in alienating them. An important lesson for any preacher to learn. We might notice in passing that this is Luke's only reference in Acts to the collection for the poor mentioned in the epistles. It is, in fact, the second time that Paul has brought aid to the people. The first time had been twelve years before, in Acts 11, 27-30, when Peter, James and John had requested Paul to remember the poor. And like his Lord, he always did. Turning again to his challenge on the resurrection before the council, Paul almost apologises for his statement. Touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. He said this not because the statement was out of place, but because of the contention that followed between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Is belief in resurrection heretical? No. Therefore the contention had not been Paul's fault. The fault lay with the unbelieving Sadducees. Felix, who had a more perfect knowledge of the way, now deferred judgment until Lysias, commander of the Jerusalem garrison, should arrive in Caesarea and give his report on the arrest of the prisoner. 
Consequently, the Jews abandoned the case for the time being, and a centurion was commanded to keep Paul, but to let him have his liberty, that is, remain unchanged. That a centurion was detailed to keep the prisoner indicates something of the respect with which Felix regarded Paul. This man was no ordinary prisoner. Even his acquaintances were allowed to minister to him and visit him. Luke and Aristarchus were with Paul. And surely Philip the Evangelist and others of the Ecclesia at Caesarea were not ashamed to give their support. Acts 24 verses 24 to 27 Paul preaches to Felix. After certain days, Felix, with Drusilla, his Jewish wife, who was now nineteen years old, sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. That faith has at its centre the death and resurrection of Jesus, followed by his ascent to the right hand of his Father, where he makes intercession for the saints. There is no hope of eternal life without knowing and having faith in the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. John 17, verse 3. Perhaps Felix had an interest in, and a more perfect knowledge of, the way, because his wife was a Jewess, and because Philip led an active ecclesia in Caesarea, where Felix resided, Acts 21, verse 8. Paul's preaching on this occasion was not a defence, but a powerful declaration of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Righteousness can only be by forgiveness of sins through baptism into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whilst it is true that we have no inherent righteousness, true righteousness is not by forgiveness alone, but by living a godly and temperate life. In Christ it is not true to say we have no righteousness of our own, or that our righteousness is as filthy rags, a phrase used in Isaiah 64, verse 6, of unpardoned but repentant Israel, not of faithful saints. It was Abraham's faith that is counted for righteousness, but that faith was confirmed by Abraham's subsequent obedience. Brother Thomas wrote, As a sinner he, that is Abraham, was justified from his past sins when his faith was counted to him for righteousness. And as a saint, he was justified by works when he offered up Isaac. This from Elpis Israel, page 278 in the 15th edition. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered up his son upon the altar? By works was faith made perfect. James 2, verses 20 to 22. As Brother Thomas wrote in Anastasis, If a saint have no righteousness of his own, Jesus Christ will refuse to be righteousness for him at the judgment. Temperance or self-control is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, against which there is no law, Galatians 5, verse 22. It is also a quality to be added to faith and knowledge, Peter says in his second epistle of Peter, chapter 1, verse 5 to 6, and without which one cannot be an overseer or elder in an ecclesia, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. The root of the Greek word translated temperance is kratos, meaning strength, 
for self-control does require strength of will. This strength is not natural to sinful flesh, which cannot fight against itself. It can only be derived from the word of God and prayer. Felix and Drusilla processed neither of these qualities of righteousness and temperance, nor did they intend to do so. But Felix knew that Paul spoke words of soberness and truth, especially when he spoke of judgment to come. As Saul of Tarsus, Paul had persecuted the Ecclesia and would have had much to fear had he not found forgiveness in Jesus Christ. As it was, Paul was able to say before the council, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Acts 23 verse 1 Consequently, he had nothing to fear. There is laid up for him a crown of righteousness, which will also be given to all them also that love his appearing, he says in the second of Timothy 4 verse 8. Paul surely repeated to the governor his earlier words to the Athenians. God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Acts 17, 30-31. Or, as he had written to the brethren in Rome, But unto them that are contentious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first, Drusilla, and also of the Gentile, Felix. Romans 2, verse 8 and 9. Felix visibly trembled. Notwithstanding his fear, Felix heard Paul again and again, but he hardened himself against the power of the word. Being exceedingly covetous, Felix hoped that Paul would pay him a bribe to obtain his freedom. Perhaps it was the mention of arms that made Felix hopeful. But Paul would never misuse the money collected for the poor saints for his own ends. Felix realised that Paul had many friends who would spend and be spent for him. Such ungrust greed was of no avail, and Felix, after his resurrection, will tremble again before the judgment seat of the Son of Man. And so two years passed. But they weren't wasted years of idleness. Paul wrote his letter to the Hebrew ecclesias in Jerusalem and Judea to encourage them to finally make a complete break with the law and the temple, before Jerusalem was destroyed, writing, For here we have no continuing city. In his series of contrasts that show the superiority of Christ over the institutions of the law, Paul reminds his Jewish brethren that we Jews have in the temple an altar that is powerless to save. Not even the priests that minister can partake of the sin offerings, for the bodies of those sacrifices are burned without the camp. So Paul makes the point, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Hebrews 13 verses 10 to 15. 
Apostles, chapter 25, Paul's defense before Festus. Acts 25, verses 1 to 27, Paul before Festus and Agrippa. After two years, in AD 59, Porcius Festus replaced Felix, who was heavily fined and banished because of his cruel and inept handling of violence that broke out between the Jews and Syrian inhabitants in Caesarea, concerning whose city it was. Felix had sent his soldiers into the marketplace and killed a large number of Jews whose property was then plundered. This is mentioned by Josephus in his Jewish Wars. Paul was safely a prisoner in Caesarea during this terrible time. Following the disturbances, some Jewish leaders of Caesarea went to Rome to accuse Felix before Nero. It was only the appeal of Felix's brother Pallas, a favourite with Nero, which saved Felix from a worse fate. Felix realised that if Paul was released into the hands of the Sanhedrin, it would result in the death of a Roman citizen with further complications. Under the circumstances, it is understandable that Felix left Paul bound in an attempt to appease the Jews. We wonder if Paul thought of Joseph during his two-year captivity. Joseph had asked Pharaoh's butler to mention him to Pharaoh so that he might be released. The butler forgot. It was another two years before Pharaoh dreamed a dream and Joseph was delivered, we find in Genesis 40 and 41. Even so, without trace of resentment against God, it was during this unjust imprisonment that Paul wrote, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister, in Hebrews 6, verse 10. He knew he was not forgotten, but that all things work together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, as he writes in Romans 8, verse 28. Acts 25, verses 1 to 12, Paul before Felix. It was but three days after Festus came into the province that he ascended up to Jerusalem. There the high priest and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul. What sort of man was Festus, who started his new duties so diligently, and before whom Paul would have to answer this time? He was appointed by Nero in AD 59, and continued in office until his early death in AD 62. We know nothing of his background, but Josephus commends him as an honourable and capable leader who tried hard but faced a series of insurmountable crises. The Sicarii increased in number and cruelty, murdering many and robbing and destroying whole villages. Law and order broke down despite Festus's attempts to deal with it by destroying a great many of the Sicarii. Albinus succeeded Festus as procurator in AD 62. He was totally corrupt, and the slide into the Jewish revolt began. In AD 64, Albinus was replaced by Gessius Florius, who was worse. He was so full of deceit and wickedness that the incoming tide of war could not be turned. 
Four years after the death of Festus, the Jewish war began. So Josephus tells us. Festus was informed about Paul by the high priest Ishmael ben Fiabi, together with former high priests and the chief men of the Jews. That this should occur immediately upon Festus taking office shows the importance that the priests placed upon winning a conviction against Paul and removing Roman protection for the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to which a great company of the priests had defected, we're told in Acts 6 verse 7. Presuming upon Festus's natural desire for their goodwill after the bungles Felix had made, and while as yet he was unacquainted with their guile, their strategy was to ask Festus to convey Paul to Jerusalem to be tried. The journey would be an opportunity for them to have Paul murdered on the risky part of the journey through the Judean hills. But Festus was no fool. He saw through the murderous scheming of the priests and commanded Paul to be kept out of harm's way at Caesarea. Festus would return there in a few days. Let Paul's accusers return with him and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. It seems that the high priests had already overplayed their hand. Festus was not sympathetic to their cause. After about ten days, Festus returned to Caesarea and heard Paul's case the very next day. Certainly Festus was a man of energy and determination. On this occasion, the priests did not employ an advocate, but accused the prisoner themselves with many and grievous complaints, which they could not prove. But then, hatred finds its own reason. Reproached for the name of Christ. Paul answered for himself, Neither against the Lord of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. His answer shows that the basic charge was one of sedition, a serious charge under Roman law that would incur the death penalty. Tetelus had similarly charged that Paul was a troublemaker in chapter 24 verse 15. Paul's answer is a wonderful example of how a brother or sister in Christ should conduct themselves at all times. We read in the first of Peter chapter 4, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth on you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Like his Lord, Paul increased in wisdom and stature, and increased in favour with God and man. He should have been set free. But in the providence of God, his continuing captivity probably saved him from being murdered. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. We read in Acts 15 verse 18. So Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, asked Paul whether or not he was willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried there. Being Roman, 
Paul had the right to insist on a Roman trial. Knowing that a trial in Jerusalem would be a certain death sentence, Paul not only refused to go, but, ever with his eye on preaching before kings and especially in Rome, appealed to Caesar. No doubt Paul had expected the charges against him to be dropped, which they should have been. After two years, the case was going nowhere. In fact, it was getting more dangerous with a suggestion that the trials should be heard in Jerusalem. With the activities of the Sicarii and the previous plot to kill him on the road, he knew that it would be most unlikely he would ever reach the city. It was every Roman's citizen's right to appeal to Caesar, and at this juncture it was the most logical thing to do. He knew he would never get a fair trial in Jerusalem, or indeed anywhere in Judea. In Rome, he would have the opportunity to present the gospel before the emperor. We find this in chapter 23, verse 11. Nero had been emperor for five years, and, still under the influence of Seneca, his tutor, remained stable. It would be another five years after the fire of Rome, before Nero would begin to commit ghastly atrocities against the brethren of Christ. Paul admits he is prepared to die if, he's, if he is an offender. He was definitely not a coward. But we are not permitted to throw away our lives. We have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The first of Corinthians 6, verse 29. Festus conferred with his Roman advisers, and then decided Paul's appeal to Caesar must stand. Acts 25, verses 13 to 27. Paul before Agrippa. Marcus Julius Agrippa, that is Herod Agrippa II, was the only son of Agrippa I who died in AD 44, smitten of worms, and we read of that in Acts 12, verse 23. His son was then seventeen years old and in Rome. The Emperor Claudius favoured the younger Agrippa and gradually advanced him. He became king of Palestine, but not of the Jews, although he was given the important right to appoint the high priests in Jerusalem. Agrippa preferred the title king, and was even referred to as the Great King. He remained loyal to Rome throughout the Jewish war, and afterwards the Emperor Vespasian confirmed his rulership of his kingdom. It seems he never married or had children. After certain days, Agrippa II came with his sister Bernice to greet Festus and pay his respects to the new governor. Bernice, the sister of Drusilla, was so intensely jealous of her sister's beauty that they hated each other. Bernice was older than Drusilla, and now about thirty-one years of age. She had been married twice, but because of rumours of an incestuous relationship with her brother, eventually married for the third time. This was to King Polymon of Cilicia in AD 64. The marriage did not last, and she returned to her brother. She later fell in love with and became the mistress of Titus, the conqueror of Jerusalem. At the outbreak of the Jewish war, she risked her life by interceding with Gessius Florius on behalf of the Jews. 
Festus took the opportunity to ask for Agrippa's advice concerning Paul's appeal to Rome. This was an informal inquiry to find out more about Jewish affairs from an expert. After all, he must send Paul with a charge made against him, but Festus didn't have one. Paul was innocent. Just how Luke knew what was said we don't know, though it is possible that there was a brother employed at court that acted as Luke's informant. Festus explains that Roman law did not allow a man to be put to death before he had opportunity to answer his charges before witnesses. But there were none. Appian states, The law requires, members of the council, that a man who is on trial should hear the accusation and speak in his own defence before judgment is passed upon him. God's law through Moses made similar provisions. In the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If you see Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 and 19 verse 15. These were very enlightened provisions in law for their time. British law did not allow the accused to have a defence counsel, give evidence on oath or cross-examine witnesses until some time after the Civil War in the 17th century. This from Geoffrey Robertson in his book The Turanicide Brief, page 151. In giving Agrippa the background to, to Paul's case, Festus mentions that the Jews had certain questions of their own superstition and of one Jesus which was dead, but Paul affirmed to be alive. This word, superstition, deicidemonia, also in chapter 17, verse 21, is not the usual Greek word for religion. It can mean great fear or dread of a god or of demons. Festus's comment, therefore, mocked Paul's belief in the Lord's resurrection. Agrippa was a lax Jew who understood the law and beliefs of the Jews, which Festus did not. Festus, in telling Agrippa that he had asked Paul if he would go to Jerusalem to be judged there, like Lysias before him, put himself in a more favourable light by bending the facts. He omitted to mention that he should have let the prisoner go, there being no case against him, nor did he say that he continued to imprison an innocent Roman because he was willing to do the Jews a pleasure. Agrippa responded, I also would hear the man myself. Perhaps, like Herod, he had heard of the prisoner and had wanted to see him for some time, possibly hoping to see some miracle performed by him. That's from Luke 23, verse 8. So the next day, with the great pomp that befits a king, Agrippa, Bernice, the chief captains, and the principal men of the city gathered in the place of hearing, and Paul was led in before the august company. Agrippa, clothed in royal purple and wearing his crown, sat. Paul in chains stood. Chapter 26, verse 29. According to Josephus, five chief captains, Chiliarchos, commanders of cohorts like Lysias in Jerusalem, were stationed at Caesarea. Paul must have appeared a pathetic figure after two years in prison in Caesarea, where Herod, the father of Agrippa and Bernice, 
had been spitted of worms because he gave not God the glory. Chapter 12, verse 21 to 23. But once again, though brought without warning or preparation, Paul was not overawed. Had not his Lord said, He shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles? Matthew 10, verse 18. Was it not his specific calling to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel? In Acts 9, verse 15. Festus began the proceedings by announcing to Agrippa and the court that this was the man against whom the Sanhedrin and the chief priests had dealt, the word means petitioned or made intercession, as in Romans 8, verse 27, had dealt with me on behalf of the nation, saying that he ought not to live any longer. And although Festus had found nothing worthy of death in the prisoner, Paul had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar therefore he must go. But with what offence should he be charged? A charge must be sent with the prisoner, but Festus was unable to give one that formed an offence under Roman law. I have no certain thing to write unto my lord, the Greek word lord, curios, a title also used in Egyptian papyri of Augustus, Claudius and Nero. One ancient writer declared, After an appeal has been made, records must be provided by the one with whom the appeal has been filed to the person who will adjudicate the appeal. Could King Agrippa help? Chapter 26, Paul's Defence Before Agrippa Acts 26, verses 1 to 3, Paul's Answers Before Agrippa There being none of Paul's accusers present to present their case first, Agrippa gave Paul leave to speak before the august company. His audience, with the exception of Festus, were familiar with the Jews' beliefs. This is now the third occasion that Luke records the details of Paul's extraordinary conversion. See chapter 9 verse 1 and chapter 22 verses 3 to 21. Paul begins his testimony. Paul, stretching forth his hands with the bonds apparent to all, began by saying that he was happy to answer for himself before one who was an expert in Jewish customs and questions. Aware that his answer would be at some length, 
Luke only gives us a precy of what was said. Paul asks for a patient hearing. He adopted the wise counsel of Proverbs. By long forbearing is a king persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Proverbs 25 verse 15. Indeed, when Paul has finished, Agrippa does respond. Almost thou dost persuade me to be a Christian. So persuasive was Paul's direct appeal. Paul begins his account from his early years as a youth in Jerusalem. He had been brought up as a strict Pharisee in Jerusalem, as all those Jews who knew him from the beginning could confirm if they would testify. Far from being a heretic, he still believed and taught the hope of the promise made unto the fathers of his nation. His hope was the national hope of Israel, taught in the Jewish scriptures and obtained by a resurrection. Paul does not mention until later that he believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. The issue is not so much the meaning but the application of the Old Testament scriptures. With the same hope as Paul, the twelve tribes served earnestly, the authorised version says instantly, in the temple night and day, as the authorised version margin has it. Though theirs was not a service acceptable to God because they had rejected their king from heaven. Paul was not a heretic, but entitled to Roman protection just as much as the Jews, for he taught the same things based on the law and the prophets. His statement alludes to the evening and morning sacrifice, and twice daily burning of incense at the time of prayer, Exodus 30 verses 7 and 8. How could the Jews accuse Paul of heresy when he was a Pharisee who believed in the hope of the resurrection? In fact, it is this hope that is the focal point of these four chapters, Acts 23 to 26. Resurrection, the main issue. Why should the resurrection of Jesus be such a stumbling block to them? Why should Agrippa find the idea of the resurrection of dead ones, the fathers and Jesus Christ, so incredible? Here we come to the crux of the whole matter. The doctrine of the resurrection was a subject of intense debate among the Jews of that era. In recounting first century debate on this topic, Martin Goodman wrote, By the first century of the Christian era, a belief in some sort of afterlife after death had become widespread amongst Jews. At least in Judea, despite lack of agreement even on the basic questions, that by Martin Goodman in his book Rome and Jerusalem, page 256. The debate continued. In the 3rd century AD it is recorded, All Israel have a share in the world to come, and these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says there is no resurrection of the dead, quoted by Martin Goodman as above. The Lord's resurrection is at the very centre of the only true hope. One of the first things Paul taught was how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Without the resurrection of our Lord, your faith is vain, ye are yet in your sins. This he says in the first of Corinthians chapter 15. 
Brother L.G. Sargent wrote of the resurrection of the Lord, Such a centre of faith can be like the hub of a wheel. The whole life can revolve around it and keep in balance. This in his book, A Sound Mind, page 94. Extending this thought, let the wheel of our lives turn about to the hub. Christ, crucified and raised again, is the centre from which radiates the spokes of that faith which overcomes the world and gives us the victory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ must dominate our lives as it did the life of our Apostle who wrote, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, literally out of dead ones. Philippians 3 verse 10 to 11. Saul's persecution of the saints. Paul admits to Agrippa that he once did many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ, even going so far as to shut up many of the saints in prison. We note that Paul's description of the brotherhood is not as Christians, but as saints or sanctified ones by forgiveness. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, neither is there salvation in any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, Peter says in Acts 4, verse 10 to 12. When the saints were put to death, he gave his voice against them. The phrase literally means, I laid down a pebble. By metonymy, the word signifies a vote, as in the revised version. Compare Revelation 2, verse 17. In so saying, Paul indicates that as Saul of Tarsus, he was once a member of the Sanhedrin. This would explain why the high priest had entrusted to Saul his authority and commissioned him to arrest the Lord's disciples in Damascus and bring them bound unto Jerusalem. Lesser cases were dealt with in local synagogues, where the usual 39 stripes could be administered. Those who would not recant were bound imprisoned, and put to death. In his fierce anger against the saints, Saul persecuted them into foreign cities, he says. From the Greek, the word persecute has the meaning of causing flight to other cities. His campaign to force the saints to blaspheme by renouncing Jesus Christ would meet with little success. This failure only served to aggravate him further, until he determined to apprehend the saints at Damascus, where probably not a few had fled. Saul's Conversion Against this background, the dramatic conversion of Saul is all the more remarkable and compelling. The only possible explanation for such a change in direction is that his story of being struck down at midday by great light far brighter than the sun as his party approached Damascus is true. What is also therefore true is that his conversion was by divine calling, his teaching was by divine revelation, and his words were spoken as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. It is not to be wondered at then that Peter described the Apostle Paul's writings as Scripture, in the second of Peter, chapter 3, verse 16. 
The Roman Catholic Church claims that it decided the canon of Scripture. Not so. It was the Spirit in the Apostles that guided the complete Word of God, so that if any man should add or take away from it, he commits a serious offence that will add the plagues written in the Apocalypse upon his head, or take away his part from the Tree of Life, as we have it in Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. All Saul's companions on the road to Damascus fell down at the bright light and heard the voice. But only Saul looked up and saw the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. He alone understood the word, Arise, and the Lord's instructions spoken in the Hebrew language that had been written over the cross. The Hebraisti of Acts 9, verse 6 and 7. Yes, it had been hard for Saul to kick against the pricks, like an ox kicking against the goad that drove him on. This simile is proverbial in classical Greek for a man who fights against his destiny. In some measure we all experience the same pricks, though perhaps not so acutely, for the words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd, we read in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. Saul's conscience had been greatly troubled. Unable to refute the teaching of those he regarded as uneducated men, his response had been to suppress his conscience with extreme hatred and anger. Whenever we see this kind of reaction, we can be sure that deep down, the extremist knows he is wrong. As Brother Sargent wrote in his book A Sound Mind, page 10, Fury of zeal may betray a hidden insecurity, the friction of a divided mind. And so may we never be guilty of the same. Rise up and stand. Saul continued by recounting to Agrippa how he was told to rise and stand. He had, in a figure, undergone a death and resurrection in gaining a li lively hope, in much of the same way as Daniel and Ezekiel, in Daniel 10 and Ezekiel 2. And like Ezekiel, as a minister and a witness, he was sent to a rebellious people that hath rebelled against me. His perseverance in the face of adversity came from his Lord's words, delivering thee from the people, and from the Gentiles, unto whom I now send, Greek apostello, thee. Therefore, like Jeremiah, Paul had total confidence in his eventual acquittal. Saul had been appointed a servant, literally an under-rower, the authorised version minister, by none other than Jesus Christ. This idea takes us back to the servant prophecies of Isaiah, where of the servant of the Lord it is written, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 42, verse 6. No wonder that Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, felt able to apply to himself several servant passages that foretell the work of Christ, as he continued in the work the Lord had called him to. You might like to compare Isaiah 49, verse 6, and Acts 13, verse 47, and a number of passages similarly. In his recounting his experience with the risen Lord to Agrippa, 
Paul gives a fuller account of his Lord's words than has previously been recorded. He is to open the eyes of understanding of the Jews and to turn Gentiles from darkness to light in part fulfillment of several passages in Isaiah. To the Ephesian saints, he wrote, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Thus they were enabled themselves to be light in the Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light, revised version, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, as we read in Ephesians 1 and 5. The gospel of Christ will deliver us from the power of Satan unto God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. The Satan, or adversary, was the power of sin both in the rulers of Judea and the Gentile world of idolatry, whose priests presented themselves as an angel of light. These sought to either corrupt the truth or stamp it out. In Christ, and in him alone, is the forgiveness of sins, and inheritance of the promises to the faithful who are, like Abraham, the father of the faithful. Romans 4, verse 13 to 16. We have seen earlier that Peter taught the same message at Pentecost when he said, Repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, to inherit the promise of salvation and the gift of eternal life. This gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16. Consequently, Paul had testified both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, as we read in Colossians 1 verses 13 to 14. Preaching to Gentiles Continuing his defence, Paul says he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but began preaching the gospel of Christ immediately at Damascus, Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and then the Gentile world. It was because he taught Gentiles to repent and turn to God that the Jews caught him in the temple and set about to kill him. Jews had become so exclusive that they opposed to the death the inclusion of Gentiles in the inheritance, even though God's promise to Abraham had said, In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. By the help God had provided through Claudius Lysias and his soldiers, however, he continued unto this day. Despite more or less continuous persecution, God worked in him mightily, he says in Colossians 1 verse 29. He was able to say, I can do all things through Christ, some text, read him, that is God, which strengtheneth me. Philippians 4 verse 13. How strange that inclusion of Gentiles was the cause of Jewish hatred. Yet those same Jews expected to be protected by the Gentile authorities. 
How remarkable their opposition when Paul only taught those things which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer and that he should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. The Old Testament contains the gospel. The New Testament is a commentary on the Old, not a replacement of it. It is therefore essential for us to read and understand both. Messiah's suffering is particularly to be found in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, but not exclusively so. As Jesus himself explained to Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, verses 25 to 27. Acts 26, verse 24 to 32. Response of Festus and Agrippa. Paul was now in full flight, earnestly presenting the scriptures. But Festus had heard enough. He loudly interrupted, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. As if the dead could ever live again. Festus would have been briefed on the Jews' hope for a Messiah on taking office. And there had been false messiahs who were a threat to Roman rule. But a messiah who must suffer and die was senseless. This reaction was only to be expected, for Isaiah had prophesied that it would be so. Isaiah 52 verse 15. Also Paul had written to Corinth a few years earlier, We preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23. Festus thought Paul had thrown away his life for a dream. It was obvious to Festus that Paul was no threat to anyone. His much learning had mentally unbalanced him. The same accusation of madness had been made to Jesus also in Mark 3 verse 21 and other places. Festus' phrase, much learning, is a testimony to Paul's knowledge of the word and skill in debate. Paul, unflustered by the interruption, answered quietly and soberly, he was an ambassador in bonds for the king of heaven, and as such was at ease in King Agrippa's company. He spoke freely and confidently, as I ought to speak, he says in Ephesians 6, verse 19 to 20. No, it wasn't madness. His words were of truth and reason. The very opposite of madness, the Greek mania. King Agrippa, before whom Paul spoke so freely or boldly, knew of these things. The ministry, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus had not been done in a corner, but publicly in Jerusalem. It had involved the priests, the council, the crowd who cried crucify him, and the Roman governor. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Paul could easily establish the sufferings of Christ, his resurrection, the forgiveness of sins under the new covenant, and the coming resurrection from among the dead, from the writings of the prophets. But Agrippa wasn't going to give him the chance. Paul's words, like his letters, were weighty and powerful, and Agrippa knew it. His conscience would not be easy to live with if he gave Paul a hearing. Agrippa replied, almost, literally, in a little, I in few words, thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
His phrase is perhaps a play on Paul's change of name as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul responded, I would to God, both in a little and in much, not only thou, but also all these hearing me this day should become such as I am, except these bonds. Agrippa was caught between his standing and reputation with the Roman authorities and his profession of their religion to the Jews. The embarrassed Agrippa suddenly realised that Paul had turned the tables on him. Now it was he who was on trial. The hope of Israel was so real to the Apostle Paul that his mind was lifted up above his surroundings. In his mind, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Second of Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. Conclusion of the Review The king rose up to conclude his review of Paul's case. The governor, Bernice, and the rest of the court also rose. Festus and Agrippa, probably with Bernice, went aside to discuss what might be done, what charge might be formulated to send with the prisoner to Nero. They decided that this man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds, confirming the conclusion of Lysias in Acts 23 verse 29. Later, Nero too would conclude that the Jews did not have a case. No doubt Festus' report to Caesar would include his recommendation that the prisoner should be acquitted. Probably the centurion Julius courteously treated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends to refresh himself, because he knew this, Acts 27 verse 3. How significant that both Festus and Agrippa recognised that Paul was innocent of the charges made against him. The gospel of Christ was not illegal under Roman law. It was the Jews' violent opposition that was illegal. In fact, the prisoner might have been set free had he not appealed unto Caesar. But it's too late now for that. Festus might offend the emperor if he set Paul free. As one writer put it, No sensible man with hopes of promotion would dream of short-circuiting the appeal to Caesar unless he had specific authority to do so and that by Sherwin White in his book Roman Law, page 65. Luke's account of the proceedings is so detailed that he may well have been in court with Paul. But how did he know what had been said by Festus and Agrippa when they went aside to discuss the case privately? Was someone present converted by Paul's answer before King Agrippa? It seems most likely, but Luke doesn't say. At Corinth, Gallio had given a charter of freedom to preach until a higher court might rescind his decision. Eventually, the test case would go all the way to the emperor himself, from whom Paul won freedom to worship and preach without interference. It is true that Nero's attitude would change later, as Peter implies, but by that time it was too late to stop the progress of the truth. It was already too far spread to be stamped out. The first of Peter 4, verse 16. Without Luke's account in Acts, we would have no knowledge of these first vitally important 40 years 
leading to the overthrow of Jerusalem and the temple that effectively removed all Jewish opposition and even the Lord itself. Chapter 27, Voyage to Rome, Shipwreck on Malta Voyage to Rome, A.D. 60 Psalm 107, verse 23 to 31 says, They that go down to the sea in ships, that do business in great waters, these see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commandeth, and raiseth the stormy wind, which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to heaven, they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro like a drunken man, and are at their wits' end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they be quiet. So he bringeth them unto their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness, and for his wonderful works to the children of men. All this was Paul's own experience, for he wrote, Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Was he washed overboard in a storm? In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils in the sea. This he wrote in the second of Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 25 to 26. And since Paul's second epistle to Corinth was written from Macedonia about AD 57, he had actually suffered four shipwrecks by the time he reached Rome. Acts 27, verses 1 to 13, Sailing Against the Wind. Three great lessons come out of Paul's experiences on this disastrous voyage to Rome where everything seemed to be against Paul, despite the fact that his Lord had said that he must testify in Rome. These lessons are of providence, faith and allegory. But let us first look at Luke's remarkable account of their adventures. It was determined that we should sail into Italy, Luke says. Prisoners, and there were a number on board, were not allowed to be accompanied by family or friends. There is one famous case where even the wife of a Roman noble was not allowed to accompany her husband, and she had to hire a boat to follow him. Sir William Ramsay mentions this in Pictures of the Apostolic Church. It is probable that Julius, a centurion of the Sebastos, 
authorised version Augustus band, had been present at Paul's hearing and was aware of his innocence and of his Roman citizenship. He and his band of soldiers may well have been the escort for Porcius Festus, who were now returning to Rome. It is also possible that Luke records Julius' name because he later became a brother in Christ. Refer to Philippians 1, verses 12 to 14. Certainly Paul was treated quite differently to the other prisoners, who were almost certainly criminals destined to be killed in the Roman arena for the amusement of the populace. Luke most likely travelled as Paul's slave or as ship's doctor. There was also Aristarchus of Thessalonica with them. Aristarchus had been rushed into the theatre in Ephesus and was one of the delegates who had travelled to Jerusalem with Paul, mentioned in Acts 19 verse 29 and 20 verse 4. He had stayed on for two years that Paul had been imprisoned and travelled either as a passenger on this ship or perhaps registered as Paul's slave for up to two slaves were permitted to accompany important Roman prisoners. In Rome, Aristarchus was to be imprisoned for the gospel. We find this in Colossians 4 verse 10 and Philemon verse 24. These brethren gave their lives to Paul as he to Christ. They also are wonderful examples to us of unselfish and loving dedication. Festus had probably reached Judea in early summer. It was now autumn, and the sailing season for long open sea voyages would soon be closed because of the winter storms, which would make it too dangerous. The non-sailing period, due to fogs and winter storms, lasted from about November the 10th until March the 5th, but sailing across the Mediterranean was considered to be risky from mid-September. Since the prevailing winds were westerlies, sailing to the east was swift. The difficulty came on the return journey, which required tacking against the wind and was consequently very slow. The alternative was the more arduous overland route, which Centurion Julius preferred to avoid. So, probably at Ptolemais, the party boarded a cargo ship from Adramitium, meaning House of Death, on the west coast of Asia Minor, possibly intending to finish the journey from Asia by the overland route for it was now towards the end of August, A.D. 60. As the ship sailed, Paul saw the promised land that he loved for the last time. It would have been an emotional parting for him as he sailed away into an unknown future. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, he wrote. Our roots are not here, they're in the kingdom. The next day they touched at Sidon, 70 miles, 112 kilometres, north of Caesarea, where Julius, out of kindness, Greek philanthropia, to Paul, allowed him liberty to be refreshed, to receive attention in the Revised Version margin, with his friends. Paul suffered constant infirmity. After two years in prison, he would be in very poor condition, and so, as a trusted prisoner, Paul was not changed. The voyage on Paul's first day out of prison was just too much for him. His friends would include some from the preaching in Sidon brought about by scattering of the disciples to Phoenicia when persecution first broke out in Jerusalem. 
Paul had met them before as he passed through Sidon on his visits to Jerusalem. At that time of the year, southerlies could be expected, but they encountered unseasonable northwest winds. Consequently, the voyage continued under Cyprus, that is, they sailed with the island to port, the left side, so that the mountainous island broke the force of the wind. Though necessary under the prevailing conditions, this route lengthened their journey. Though some assistance would be gained from the northerly current that prevails at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. Paul surely wondered why God would delay his journey until the most dangerous time of the year for sailing. Had God got another purpose in store for him? A ship of Alexandria. And so, sailing over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, Tacking along the coast, they arrived in about fifteen days, according to tradition, at Myra, one of the key cities of Lycia in southern Asia Minor. The city itself was three and a half miles, 5.6 kilometres, inland. Its port of Andreas was an important stopping point for grain ships journeying from Egypt to Rome. Myra is where St Nicholas lived at the end of the third century, and the beginning of the fourth. Legends grew up about him that led to him being venerated in the Netherlands as Santa Claus. In America, he became known as Santa Claus. At Myra, Julius found a grain ship from Alexandria in Egypt, ready to depart for Puteoli in Italy. There was a regular fleet of large grain ships sailing to and from Egypt, to supply the more than one million inhabitants of Rome who were completely reliant on imported wheat. These ships were sometimes as much as 200 feet long and 40 feet wide, with a draft of perhaps 30 feet. That is 60 times 12 times 9 metres. They had a large, almost square mainsail and rigged with topsails on a mast situated about the centre of the boat. An artemon, or small sail at the bow, steadied the ship, which was steered by two sweeps on each side of the stern. This vessel had evidently been delayed, but it gave the centurion an opportunity to more easily and speedily get to Rome than by continuing on foot. How strange that the apostle, who carried the true bread of life, should travel on such a ship. The winds being contrary, the journey took many days. They reached Clydus on the southwesterly point of Asia Minor, but then were forced to sail south to the island of Crete. Rounding the promontory of Salmone, a Phoenician name meaning a refuge from the wind, known today as Cape Sidoros, rounding with difficulty because of the northwest wind, they continued south of Crete and put into fair havens near the city of Lacia. Beyond this bay was Cape Matala. Had they rounded it, they would not have been able to reach the secure port of Phoenix, but rather would be driven out to sea by the full force of the wind. Crete. Crete is the fifth largest of the Mediterranean islands and stretches about 162 miles, 259 kilometres, from east to west. It has a mountain chain that reaches to over 8,000 feet, some 2,442 metres, at Mount Ida. 
It was part of a Roman province with Cyrene in North Africa and had a resident Jewish community. After his release from Roman captivity, Paul visited Crete and left Titus there to set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city, he says in Titus 1 verse 5. Fairer Havens was not a secure harbour. Furthermore, it lacked entertainment for the soldiers and sailors, so that boredom might be fatal to discipline if they stayed there through the winter months. Yet, due to the delays, sailing was now becoming dangerous. The fast of the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in early October that year, was already passed. What was to be done? It says a lot for the respect according to the Apostle that he was privy to the discussion and even allowed to put forward his opinion. He was by now, of course, an experienced traveller, and his perception that the voyage would be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship but also of our lives, was sound, though, as it turned out, their lives would be spared. Paul evidently made his observation from experience and without direction from the Spirit on this occasion. The master, that is the pilot, steersman or captain, and the owner of the ship were prepared to take the risk, and so the centurion decided to continue another 50 miles, 80 kilometres or so, to Phoenix, and there to winter as soon as a fair wind gave them opportunity. The centurion had his way because he was on government service. Moreover, Suetonius reported that, because of regular grain shortages in Rome, the Emperor Claudius took all possible steps to import grain even during the winter months, ensuring merchants against the loss of their ships in stormy weather, which guaranteed them a good return on their ventures. When the south wind blew softly, the sail was set and the anchor weighed. But a south wind was another danger. While it blew softly, they crept along the coast inshore. If the wind increased, they would be dashed onto the rocks. The tension grew as Paul, Luke and all on deck anxiously watched the all-too-close and dangerous shoreline until Cape Matala was passed and they could steer northward. Euryclidon Suddenly the sea rippled and the ship heeled to port as a violent wind that sailors called Euroquillo burst upon them. This wind swept down the mountains to the northeast. The ship could not maintain course. It had come too suddenly for the sail to be taken in. There was nothing else that could be done other than run before the wind and hope for the best. It was a case of when they shall say peace and safety. Sudden destruction cometh upon them, as Paul says in the first of Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 3. The name Euroquillo is composed of two words, the Greek Euratus, east wind, and Latin Aquila, north wind. Luke was once criticised for inaccuracy in using this word, but a windrose found carved into an ancient pavement at Thugga in Africa has shown that Luke was using the correct term. Today, this wind, which can reach hurricane force, is called a gregale. Brian Sheedy, a signalman in the Australian Navy, who spent a lot of time sailing in the Mediterranean during the Second World War, wrote, Along the length of the Mediterranean Sea, and more particularly at the eastern end, 
blow winds of unpredictable violence. On the seabed along that narrow sea lie thousands of ships. This in his book The War of Sea by Brian Sheedy, page 28. Acts 27 verses 14 to 44. Storm and Shipwreck. Two particular lessons emerge from the story at this point. The first is that of providence. Paul had said to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, we must pass through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. He said this in Acts 14 verse 22. In Paul's hazardous journey, that tribulation was God's way to save 276 lives. Jesus Christ had calmed the waves for his disciples, Luke 8 verse 24, but that was not to happen this time. Consequently, an angel appeared to Paul in the midst of the storm and raging seas, and while stinging spray lashed across the deck, gave him confidence that God's hand was in it all. This was God's will. Paul could confidently remind us that God has promised, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We should remember this when we experience life's storms. Indeed, this writer did when, as a young brother, he was on a boat that was washed over a reef in a similar storm one night off the west coast of Scotland. We pass through many storms in the days of our probation, but we're not forsaken. The Lord is with us, so that we are not tempted above that we are able, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Let us, therefore, come freely unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. No doubt, too, the centurion helped by speaking for Paul at his hearing before Caesar. The second lesson is that faith can flourish whatever the circumstances. Paul was a sick man, but believed his Lord's words, My strength is made perfect in weakness, given in the second of Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. He says to the soldiers on board, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. He knew he would be. But then, Paul's faith was exceptional. Or was it? He too was a man subject to like passions as we are, as James says in chapter 5, verse 17. When the northeast wind hit the boat broadside, it would heel dangerously close to rolling over. Nothing could be done but turn the bows to run downwind. With such pressure on the sail and yard from the wind, it was not possible to lower them. The captain and steersman were obviously experienced, or the vessel may well have broached and foundered at this point. They had to wait to trim the vessel until in the lee of the dangerously rocky island of Clauder, or Corda, 23 miles 37 kilometres south of Phoenix. This island would have been reached about mid-afternoon. Here the sailors, assisted by Paul and Luke, struggled to haul the waterlogged dinghy aboard. The strain from the huge central mast with its yard and sail had started some of the timbers. Frapping with ropes strengthened the boat. This is done by passing heavy ropes over the bows and winching them tight around the midships to hold the planking firm against the ribs. 
The next danger was that the boat might be driven onto the notorious shoals of Greater Sirtis off the North African coast. Of these, Dio Chrysostom wrote, Those who have once sailed into it find egress impossible, for shoals, cross-currents, and long sandbars extended a great distance out make the sea impassable or troublesome. Luke's mention of this danger means that the fear of the sailors was tangible. Everyone on board felt it. The sails were struck, that is, lowered, and only a small storm sail would be set at the bows to steady the vessel as they changed course to the west. Unfortunately, a westerly course would increase the rolling of the ship. No more could be done that day as darkness overtook them. The next day the wind was still so violent that they lightened the vessel. On the third day everyone helped to cast out the tackling. This probably was to make more space below deck for the passengers. Anyone on deck was in the way of the crew and in greater danger of being washed overboard. It would be necessary to continually man the pumps. After several days the ship was a sinking hulk. No cooking had been possible, none had eaten. All were wet, shaking with cold and miserable. Below decks seasickness would be prevalent. All hope of being saved was gone, except in the mind of one man. Be of good cheer. This one man stood forth in the midst of them and said, Sirs, ye should have hearkened unto me, and not have loosed from Crete, and to have gained this harm and loss. This sounds rather like saying, I told you so. But we know the Apostle better than this. His statement established his credentials so that they would believe what was to follow. He told them that the storm was not a punishment from God, but the distress was as a result of not following his advice by making the wrong decision to leave fair havens when it was too risky. He continues, Be of good cheer. These words of his Lord had been spoken to Paul when in custody in Jerusalem, mentioned in Acts 23, verse 11. There shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. Verse 22. How could he be so sure? Because an angel had stood alongside him and spoken to him earlier that very night. This was providence in action. Roman superstition would find it easy to believe that a messenger from the gods had spoken to Paul. And yes, he must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. This last statement, whilst saying none would be drowned, surely also implied that all would be converted and saved by faith in Jesus Christ. Their time on Malta would give plenty of opportunity for all to hear the word of God from his lips. At last, Paul knew why the winds had been so contrary and the voyage so distressing. It was a preparation of the hearts of those on board to thankfully receive the gospel of their Saviour, Jesus Christ. Paul concluded by saying that they must be cast upon a certain island. Worse was to come and they must be prepared for it. We might also note that Paul was never afraid to speak boldly and declare whose he was, nor of his faith in God's word, 
and the further revelation of Christ and his angels. Yet his bodily presence was weak, and his speech contemptible. In the estimation of some, we find in the second of Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. His power came from his comforter, the Lord Jesus Christ. So fourteen gruelling days passed in the Sea of Adria, which in Roman times stretched from Crete to Sicily, before the sailors sensed they were approaching land. It is thought by seamen that a boat in these conditions would drift at about one and a half miles an hour, 2.4 kilometres an hour. Corda to Malta is 476 miles, 762 kilometres, so that the 14th day would indeed bring the boat close to the island. Soundings were taken by hand line weighted with a lead weight. The bottom of the weight was hollowed and filled with grease, so that a sample of the bottom would be obtained as well as a measure of depth. For example, if the bottom is mud, it would indicate that land was uh, quite close. When the depth was found to be 15 fathoms, 24.5 metres, and the bottom rising steeply, four anchors were cast out of the stern so that the ship's bows were still facing the unseen shore with the waves breaking over the stern. To do this, the steering sweeps would have to be removed first. Anchoring from the stern prevented the ship swinging onto the rocks of Point Cura on the northeast of Malta. The bottom there is clay, enabling the anchors to hold against the pull of the swell. Abide in the ship. Instead of waiting for daybreak, when visibility would reveal their situation, several sailors let down the small shore-going boat under pretense of casting out anchors from the bows, which would be pointless under the circumstances. Their real motive was to escape. Paul alerted the soldiers to the danger, saying, Except these abide in the ship, ye cannot be saved. If the sailors abandoned ship, there would be no one to handle it and bring them all safely to shore the next day. It was a particularly heartless manoeuvre that was thwarted by the soldiers cutting the ropes so that the boat fell off, drifted away, and was lost to sight in the darkness. The crew may not have felt too bitter against Paul and the soldiers, as theirs was a desperate manoeuvre that may well have failed. None seemed to complain. But with the skiff gone, how would the non-swimmers get ashore? When in distress and danger, we may feel like taking desperate expedients. But we cannot be saved except we abide in the ecclesial ship, even with all its faults and weaknesses. Outside the ecclesia are engulfing waves and darkness. There is no answer to our problems. Only hopelessness and death. The Allegory The words of a hymn, Soothe thou our voyaging over life's sea, sets the idea. Adramitium means house of death. This is where we begin life. We all take ship on life's journey as Paul's companions. At times we find winds contrary, life is difficult. But then we are baptised and enter the ecclesial ship taken out of Egypt. Despite trials we arrive at Fair Havens, our refuge in Christ. A small harbour, but better than the open sea of nations. We might seek a more secure shelter, 
but the Spirit can send us in a direction other than we intend. The Lord has other work for us to do, unknown trials for us to endure in faith. Euryclidon, the tempestuous spirit of nations, can toss us to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Why? Because we find fault with our present position in Christ and seek to move to where life is more pleasant to the flesh. Such folly will bring us into storm and trouble. All experience the storms of life by which faith is tried, and by our example, others are saved. Storms can come upon us so suddenly that not even the sails can be taken in. Then our ecclesial ship must be undergirded by strengthening its foundations, or leaks appear and the lives, the salvation of all are threatened by fear of quicksands and fear of rocks. Life is full of fears, but faith is not terrified, for there shall not a hair of your head perish. Paul gave himself to prayer and vigilance in practical matters. How? By lightening the ship. All loose stuff must go. Television, novel, sport, even the tackling. When we are in danger of sinking, then we get down to the bare essentials. When life itself is at stake, the true values are revealed. We suffer loss, but not of life itself, verse 23, and 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13 to 15. Angels do stand by us to strengthen us, though, unlike Paul, we may not see them. Ye must be brought before Caesar. Wouldn't we fear the prospect? But Paul rejoiced at the opportunity to preach before kings. Be of good cheer. At the point of greatest danger, at the sound of breakers and the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, then look up and lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh, Christ says in Luke 21, verse 28. The depths have been taken, Twenty fathoms, fifteen fathoms, signs that herald the approach of the kingdom. Do not be tempted to leave the ship for a dinghy. Stay in the ecclesial ship or all will be lost. Let us let go any sense of retreat or alternative, holiday homes, caravans, boats, etc., if they take us away from the ecclesia. The anchor seemed to hold back at the end of our voyage. Some say, my Lord delayeth his coming, Matthew 24, verse 48. Wait for the day, verse 33. We must take spiritual meat now prepare to prepare for the final trial. All hope of profit in this life is gone at last, as the cargo of wheat is cast into the sea. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out of it. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. The first to Timothy six, verse seven to eight. Our Lord is the living bread which came down from heaven. He that eateth of this bread shall live for ever. John six, verse fifty one. The ship struck where two seas met, we read in verse forty one. The armies of the kings of the north and the south shall meet but we shall arrive safely to land. Where? Malta means 
a safe refuge. And with Christ, a safe refuge is where we'll be. So let us up anchor and make our final run to the shore. Remember, we're in Christ because of the Marquis of Wellesley, with John Thomas on board, struck a sandbank in a violent storm, just like the vessel carrying our apostle to the Gentiles 1,800 years before. Paul and Christ In a brief comparison, we note that 1. Both Paul and Christ became prisoners of Rome. 2. Christ calmed the sea with the words, Peace, it is I. Paul was calm in the midst of a storm because he knew Christ was with him. 3. Both received angelic ministration when in great trial. 4. Like his Lord, Paul broke bread and encouraged others. Such is Christ's care for us also. 5. Many were saved on the ship because of the faith of one. So with the work of our Lord. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And 6. Paul could say, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the Ecclesia. Colossians 1, verse 24. They escaped all to land. Soon dawn drew on, and Paul again took the lead. After fourteen days without food, everyone was too weak to survive the ordeal ahead. He encouraged them all to take food for their health and to raise their morale. He said, There shall not a hair fall from the head of any of you. This is a Hebrew idiom, which you find in First and Second of Samuel and the First of Kings and Matthew 10, verse 30. Then, setting an example, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Paul's example of giving thanks before all was another testimony to his faith and confidence in what God was doing. He did not resent God for the adverse circumstances into which he had fallen. Inspired by Paul's example, let us always give thanks to our God, both in private and in public, and not to be ashamed before our Lord at his coming. Whilst everyone was eating, a count was taken of the number on board. There were 276. This is a remarkable number. Not because it was so many grain ships could carry many more than that. Josephus mentions a ship that he was on carried 600 when it was wrecked in the Sea of Adria. 276, like many other New Testament numbers, is a triangular number. That is... 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4, and so on, to plus 23, when added together comes to 276. Other examples are the 153 fish, which is the triangular number of 17, 666, which is the triangular number of 36, which itself is the triangular number of 8. 120 is the triangular number of 15, which is itself a triangular number of five. Obviously, this device is another mark of inspiration. Daylight was now upon them, and a lookout would be sent up the mast to describe what could be seen from a better vantage point. 
from the sea what appeared to be a bay with a beach, the authorised version of Creek, offered the best hope of running aground safely before abandoning ship. It probably took most of the morning to cast enough sacks of wheat overboard to lighten the ship sufficiently for it to float higher out of the water so that it could be run closer to the shore. It would be necessary to leave some wheat in the hold as ballast, or the ship would become too unstable in the strong sea running. All purpose in the voyage was now gone. Only life itself was left to those on board, if they could be saved. When all was ready, the yard and mainsail were hoisted so that the ship could have enough headway to be steered. The foresail alone would not be sufficient. And the anchor ropes cut, abandoning the anchors on the seabed. The two steering paddles were loosed and the captain steered for the shore. All on deck would be holding their breath as the boat rushed forward. Suddenly the boat, flighting higher in the water without its cargo, swung off course. The beach where they had intended to put in could not now be reached, so they deliberately drove the bows of the ship with great force hard onto the sand of a smaller, more exposed beach. Waves breaking against the stern put the ship in immediate danger of breaking up. Their situation was desperate. What had gone wrong? The place where two seas met was probably close to the narrow channel between the mainland and the tiny island of Salmonetta. This channel cannot be seen from seaward, but in storms the surge of water through it forms a cross-current strong enough to drive a ship to port. In recent years, archaeologists have found eight shipwrecks around Malta from the Roman period. In the panic that ensued, the soldiers decided to kill the prisoners, lest any escape and their lives be forfeit as a consequence. They forgot that Paul was a Roman citizen, and the penalty for killing him would also be severe. Julius, wishing to spare Paul, prevented the soldiers from fulfilling their purpose. And so the prisoners were unfettered and, the wreck breaking the force of the waves, some swimming, others clinging to boards or pieces of wreckage, all escaped safely to land. It had been God's will that Paul should go to Rome. It was God's mercy that all would be saved. Paul was the central figure in the crisis. The whole epic is an outstanding story of God's providence at work. Chapter 28 Winter on Malta Rome at last Final appeal to the Jews Acts 28 verses 1 to 10 Winter on Malta The parable of our voyage to the kingdom continues as the events on Malta evolve. The island became part of the Roman Empire in 218 BC and was part of the province of Sicily. Yes, they all made it safely to shore, and the barbarous inhabitants showed no little kindness to the exhausted, shivering and starving survivors. Despite the rain, the inhabitants managed to light a fire to warm them. Malta was indeed a safe refuge. 
The word barbaros, authorised version barbarous, simply means that Greek was not their native tongue. The word is onomatopoeic, that is, their language, which was a Phoenician dialect, sounded to Greeks like ba-ba-ba, though some must have known Greek or Latin. Ever helpful, Paul set about gathering sticks for the fire. A poisonous snake, the Greek word is echidna, came out of the bundle of sticks and fastened itself onto Paul's hand. The Maltese, seeing this, said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom, though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. The islanders were referring to the goddess Nike, the daughter of Zeus, who was the goddess of punishment and revenge. Paul merely shook the snake off into the fire and felt no harm. Whilst there are no poisonous snakes on Malta today, it is unlikely that the natives were mistaken. Any poisonous snakes would have been eradicated from the small islands of Malta over the centuries that have elapsed to the present time. When Paul neither swelled up nor fell down dead, the islanders changed their minds and said that he was a god. Paul felt no harm, a phrase that in the allegory symbolises the immortal state when the saints will be as gods, Elohim. In continuing the allegory, we're reminded of the incident of the lifting up of the brazen serpent by Moses in the final year of Israel's exodus. That incident anticipated the crucifixion of Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three fourteen to 15 and Numbers 21. After Christ's coming, however, it is the serpent power that will be destroyed in the fire of judgment. As a result, in the refuge of the kingdom, the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, Isaiah tells us in chapter 11, verses 8 to 9. Again, dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord, in Isaiah 65, verse 25. Subsequent events would recompense their kindness, for the Lord had said of righteous nations, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in, naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Matthew 25, verse 32 to 40. Like the sick on Malta, the nations will be healed when Christ and his saints are honoured. Verses 7 to 10, kindness is returned. Publius the chief, the Greek protos, man of the island, Luke's term is proved correct by a first-century Greek inscription found on the island, lodged us, that is, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, in his own house. Since Paul had been thought of as a god, this hospitality for three days is not surprising, but, no doubt, very welcome after the arduous voyage. Whilst in Publius' home, Paul went into the room of Publius' father, and, after prayer, laid his hands upon him, 
after the manner of Paul's own healing by Ananias in Acts chapter 9 verse 17, and healed him of fever and dysentery. As a consequence, others on the island who were diseased also came to Paul to be healed. Julius would observe all this with awe and wonder. How true were the words of the Lord! These signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing it shall not hurt them. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Mark 16, verses 17 and 18. As at Lystra, Paul would make the most of the opportunity thus presented to introduce the true God, as in Acts 14, verses 8 to 20. When Paul and his companions left the island three months later, the people honoured them, probably with money, if you compare Matthew 15, verses 5 to 6, and showered them with gifts. After all, they had lost everything in the shipwreck. Luke does not say, but a community of believers was surely left behind to continue the work begun. Acts chapter 28, verses 10 to 16, from Malta to Rome. After three months on the island in early February 1860, though it was still risky for sailing, the party boarded another grain ship of Alexandria that had managed to ride out the storm and find shelter in Valletta Harbour. The captain obviously thought conditions favourable for the short crossing of about 90 miles, 144 kilometres, to Syracuse in Sicily. Syracuse was the centre of government for the Roman province that included Malta. Luke notes with interest that the sign of the ship was Castor and Pollux. Dioscuroi, the twin sons of Zeus, or Jupiter. It had been dedicated to these twin gods who were thought to rescue sailors in distress. Their sign was the electrical phenomenon known as St Elmo's fire. But they were not equal to Paul's god. After waiting three days for a favourable wind, they sailed another 70 miles, 112 kilometres, to Regium, on the toe of Italy, on the Strait of Messina. The strait was a mere seven miles, 11 kilometres wide at this point. A day later, blessed with a south wind, they passed through the hazards north of Regium and made the 180 miles, 288 kilometre journey to Puteoli in two days. Puteoli. This was Rome's principal port for importing grain from Egypt and North Africa. It was situated on the Gulf of Naples in sight of Mount Vesuvius. Naples, then called Neapolis, was another port a few miles south. A third port, Camille, was to the north. The port of Puteoli lay behind a breakwater built in the first century, nearly a quarter of a mile long. It also had a lighthouse. The wharves were said to be one and a quarter miles long, that's two kilometres. The city itself had an estimated population of up to 100,000, with a large Jewish community. Here Paul and his companions found a number of brethren who invited them to stay a week with them before travelling on to Rome. It is probable that Julius and Paul's guards were included in the invitation, which was accepted. 
No doubt Julius was impressed by the genuine love shown to Paul and his companions by these lovers of hospitality, who were not forgetful to entertain strangers, even though one of them was a prisoner. Titus 1 verse 8, Romans 12 verse 13, and Hebrews 13 verse 2. How refreshing for Paul after six months' isolation and privation. And thus to Rome we came though it was still 130 miles, 208 kilometres away along the Via Appia. In the meantime, the brethren in Rome had been advised that the Apostle was on his way. The brethren came to meet the party, some to Appii Forum, about 40 miles, 64 kilometres south of Rome, and others to three taverns, 33 miles, 53 kilometres from Rome. In those days, the Forum of Appius could be reached by canal. Passengers travelled on a barge pulled by a mule, saving them a strenuous walk. Strabo mentions this in his geography. Though it is unlikely that the soldiers were able to enjoy this advantage. When Paul had written to the saints in Rome, he had said that he wished to be comforted together with them by their mutual faith in Romans chapter 1, verse 10 to 12. His wish was now to be fulfilled beyond his expectations. These brethren had walked a long way to comfort and support him, and now they had to straightway turn around and walk back again. That's a girl pay love in action indeed. Paul thanked God and took courage. Note that he thanked God first. He always saw beyond his present difficulties to see that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God as we read in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 1. There was such joy and love. Yet Paul had never been to Rome before. Julius would be amazed and impressed. There was nothing like this in paganism, or even in what passes today for Christianity. No doubt Julius became a convert and spoke for Paul before Caesar. Consequently, Paul was able to write from Rome to the Philippians that I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, the praetorium, and in all other places, and many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This he says in Philippians 1, verse 12 to 14. Greetings could even be sent from Caesar's household. Philippians 4, verse 22. May Paul's example and that of other faithful brethren ever inspire us to preach the word, whether in season, out of season. As Paul says in the second of Timothy, chapter 4, verse 2. Rome. Rome by this time was a cosmopolitan city, with a population of about one million people, drawn not only from Italy, but also from all parts of the far-flung empire. It was the seat of the emperor and of the senate who together governed the empire. Romans worshipped their own numerous gods, including the goddess Roma, as well as those of Greece and some Asian, Persian and Egyptian deities. The city was built upon seven hills by the river Tiber, about 15 miles, 24 kilometres from the sea. The city had been full of slums with narrow, dirty streets. 
But Gaius Octavius, who by 19 BC had achieved unrivaled power and renamed himself Augustus, meaning sacred or revered from the Latin word for reading divine signs, hence augury, had replaced the city of brick with magnificent buildings of marble. He would oversee Rome's extraordinary transformation from the dirty, chaotic rabbit warrens of the late Republic into a capital city worthy of a Mediterranean-wide empire. This from ancient Rome by Simon Baker. Even so, only a few in Rome enjoyed its wealth. Most people in Rome were either very poor, dwelling in tenement buildings of three to five stories, or slaves. As many as 200,000 of the poorest relied on government welfare. This from Acts by Clinton E. Arnold, page 266. As might be expected, it was an idolatrous and grossly immoral city that certainly justified its allegorical name in the apocalypse of Babylon the Great. By the time of Paul's visit, Nero was emperor due to the scheming and murder of her husband, Emperor Claudius, arranged by his mother, Julia Agrippina. She had been Claudius's fourth wife. When she had married the Emperor Claudius, she brought her son from her first marriage, the future Nero, so that she could control him. She reminded her son that she had set him on the throne by murder, etc., this gave Nero a deep sense of insecurity and fear that led him to murder his mother and eventually brought about the collapse of his regime. This in Ancient Rome by Simon Baker, Part 3, Nero. There was a large community of Jews in Rome, possibly up to 30,000, and anti-Semitism was rife. Tiberius had expelled the Jews from Rome in AD 19, and Claudius expelled them again in AD 49, eight years before Paul wrote his letter to the Roman Ecclesia, and eleven years before he arrived. Many Jewish slaves, brought by Pompey in BC 63, had been freed and granted Roman citizenship. Most of the Jews lived in a Jewish ghetto across the river Tiber in a section called Trastevere, where... Father records, they met in houses of prayer, prosuke, synagogues. Paul in Rome. Paul arrived in Rome in AD 60. The ecclesia there probably had its beginning with those who had been in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, when the apostles had received the Holy Spirit. The ecclesia was renowned for their faith, we find in Romans 1 verse 8 and other places. So Paul, who had prayed that he may come to them with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed, Romans 15, verse 23 and 30 to 33, came to the capital of the empire to argue the case for recognition of the gospel of Jesus Christ before the highest authority in the world. The other prisoners were delivered safely at last to the Stratopedarch, chief administrator of the Praetorian Guard but Paul was allowed to dwell by himself with the soldier that kept him. This was probably close to the barracks, and so prevented him being accommodated by one of the saints elsewhere in the city. Paul was bound, but the word of God was not bound. We see Ephesians 3, verse 1 to 13. He still made converts, Onesimus, the runaway slave, for example, whom he had begotten in his bonds, 
Philemon verses 9 to 16. He rejoiced in his sufferings for the Colossians, and filled up that which is behind in the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the Ecclesia, Colossians 1 verse 24. From Rome, Paul wrote to the Philippian brethren, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as be perfect, by the forgiveness of our sins, be thus minded. Thus Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verse 8 and verses 14 to 15. Paul had no family life, no home of his own, no freedom, no holidays, no little treasures collected over a lifetime full of happy memories. And now as an old man he could not retire. He kept going as if he were a young man in the prime of life. What an example! And how we benefit by his letters written from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. And from prison at Caesarea, Hebrews. Acts chapter 8, verses 17 to 31. Final appeal to the Jews. Having settled in and recovered from his journey, after three days, Paul called for the leaders of the Jews from the various synagogues, to come to him to discuss his pending trial. The leaders having assembled in his room, Paul summarises the events that led to his arrest, his trials and his appeal. He emphatically denies that he has done anything contrary to the people or the customs of their fathers. This would be true because the fathers Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were never under the law. Consequently, he uses the significant phrase for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. On the other hand, Paul is careful not to accuse the Jews either. So at least they did not have to fear that Paul, a Roman citizen, might accuse them, leading possibly to their banishment from Rome again, as in the time of Claudius. The phrase, hope of Israel, is taken from Jeremiah 14 verse 8, where it refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel the saviour thereof in time of trouble. As such, the expression refers not merely to the promises, but to God himself and to his whole logos, or purpose. This is he who chose Israel to be his peculiar treasure, and who gave us a saviour, Jesus Christ his Son. Of this just God and a saviour, Isaiah adds, in the Lord shall all the seed of Israel, Jew and Gentile, be justified and shall glory. And so all Israel shall be saved. In his rediscovery of the truth of God's word, Brother Thomas came across the phrase, We are saved by the hope, Romans 8 verse 24. When he had found the answer to the question as to what this hope is, without which we cannot be saved, he finally separated from Campbellism and was baptised. For there is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Ephesians 4 verses 4 to 6. 
The help is Yahweh, Jeremiah 14, verse 8. But it contains the promises made to the fathers and includes the resurrection and restoration of Israel when Messiah comes again. As Paul tells us in Acts 26, verses 6 to 8 and other places. Luke, of course, only gives us a summary of what Paul actually said. Surprisingly, there were no letters about Paul received by these leaders of the Jews in Rome, nor were there any witnesses. We do not know why the rulers in Jerusalem seemingly had forgotten Paul. A number of suggestions had been made, and we cannot be certain why the matter was not followed up by them. But the fact that Paul had been declared innocent by Felix, Festus and Agrippa, because there was no case against him in Roman law, may well be part of the reason. It would be foolish to turn the emperor against them by making an unreasonable complaint against a Roman, especially if on inquiry their plots to murder Paul came to light. The Jews of Jerusalem knew that they could not win the case. Since there was no accusation against Paul, the Jews of Rome wished to hear him themselves. After all, the sect was spoken against everywhere. They were not ignorant of the way in which the world was being turned upside down by Paul and other followers of Jesus, as in Acts 17, verse 6. Meanwhile, the Jews used the word sect for the followers of Jesus Christ, in Acts 28, verse 22. This word means a party or division. In other words, they still saw the gospel as a branch of Judaism, however her heretical it might be. Same word is translated as heresy in Acts 24, verse 14. So a day was appointed, and many came to him in his lodging. No doubt the limited space available would be considerably overcrowded. To these Paul powerfully bore witness to the kingdom of God, and to things concerning Jesus from the Lord of Moses and the prophets. The debate continued from morning till evening. It would be a long, tiring day of reasoning from the Scriptures, countering every opposing argument with skilful exposition which would leave Paul's listeners astonished at his understanding and answers, as they did with the young Jesus in Luke 2, verse 47. How remarkably Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled all those aspects of the law and the prophets concerning Messiah, as he himself had explained to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus in Luke 22. And how important it is that we should know and become familiar with these matters ourselves. They are the foundation for all our setting forth of the gospel. In fact, of these two aspects of the gospel, the kingdom is always mentioned first, following the example of the Lord himself in Matthew 6.33, Mark 1.14 and so on. This really spells out for us what we ourselves should be preaching. Sent unto the Gentiles. As usual, some were convinced, and others refused to believe. The meeting broke up after Paul had said one word, spoken by the Holy Spirit through the prophet Isaiah, concerning Israel's rejection of God's word, so that they could not be converted, and I should heal them. Paul's citation of Isaiah is significant in that the prophet continues by saying that the unbelief of Israel will not be permanent, 
Eventually, Israel would be removed far away from the land and the cities left without inhabitant for their unbelief, but a remnant would one day return. Isaiah 6 verses 9 to 13. Israel was to be removed and the land forsaken only a few years after Paul spoke. The same passage is also quoted in John 9 and 12 and Matthew 13. The day is coming when ye, Jews who rejected Jesus, shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. And many shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the kingdom of God, Christ said in Luke 13 verse 28 to 29. They had judged themselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles, says Paul, in Acts 13, verse 46. Paul concluded by saying, Be it known therefore unto you, that the salvation of God, the meaning of Isaiah's name, is sent unto the Gentiles, the nations, and that they will hear it. This was a deliberate ploy by Paul to provoke them to jealousy. If by any means I pro may provoke them to emulation, which are my flesh and might save some of them. Romans 11 verse 11 to 14. The gospel to Jews had come to an end. No more could be done. Nor has anything been done for them to this day, except in rare and solitary instances. Paul's was a final appeal to the Jews that would not be repeated until they shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, or selection, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Romans 11 verse 25 to 28. The Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. No animosity is mentioned, just indifference. Blindness or hardness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Two whole years in his own hired house. Luke concludes his account by writing that Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house, Miss Thoma what is hired, probably on an upper floor of an insula, a block of apartments, and received all that came unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. The words, all that came unto him, remind us of Jesus' statement, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6 verse 37. It is obvious from Luke's conclusion that Paul had been released and was a free man living in his own accommodation. The test case for the preaching of the truth as it is in Jesus had been won. The saints were entitled to the same Roman protection as were Jews and those of other religions. Not long before, a law had been passed allowing a prisoner to be freed if no witnesses against him arrived in Rome to press the charges. Consequently, after perhaps 18 months, Paul would have had a brief hearing before Nero and been acquitted. 
In all, he stayed in Rome for two years, from AD 60 to 62. Rents in Rome were very expensive. How did he pay the rent for his hired house? Did the Philippian Ecclesia help? Perhaps he had received an inheritance from his family. We just don't know. What we do know is that he wrote to Philippi, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. He also wrote to them, But I trust in the Lord, that I also myself shall come shortly, thereby indicating that his trial was going well, and he expected to be released. And so Luke finishes his account on a high note that confirms for us that our Apostle was released to continue the work begun. And how thankful we can be for Luke's account of how the Gospel went out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth, in fulfilment of the commission given by our Lord in Acts 1 verse 8. Paul preached the gospel with all boldness, we read in chapter 28 verse 31 in the Revised Version. He had asked the Ephesian believers to pray for him, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly, to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Ephesians 6 verses 19 to 20. Evidently those prayers had been answered. Here is another lesson for us. We should pray for those who preach, that they may do it boldly in the face of, not now antagonism, but apathy. And let us not forget Luke's example too. The beloved physician was there with Paul through all his trials and privations until the end, as we find in the second of Timothy chapter 4 verse 11. Did not our Lord promise? He that shall endure to the end shall be saved. Epilogue Although it does not fall within the scope of this study of the Acts of the Apostles, we should mention briefly that Paul's work continued after his release. There are indications in his pastoral epistles of further travels, including a visit to Spain. On July the 19th in AD 64, a fire started in a small shop in the area of the Circus Maximus. The fire quickly spread and over a period of nine days burned out all but four of Rome's 14 districts. Nero did not start the fire. He did his best for the people, ordering immediate relief and the construction of temporary accommodation for the homeless. In his rebuilding of the city, however, Nero built himself an enormous and magnificent palace called the Golden House. His extravagance caused malicious rumours to start that the fire had been deliberately lit to clear Rome for Nero's megalomaniac vision. To save himself, he made scapegoats of the Christians. This from ancient Rome. 3. Crisis by Simon Baker. Thus commenced a new round of the most bitter and cruel persecution of the innocent. Paul was either arrested at Nicopolis, as most commentators suggest, from Titus 3 verse 12, or he rushed back to Rome to assist the persecuted brethren and was arrested on his arrival. 
It would be consistent with what we know of Paul that he would do his best to support the brethren without regard for his own safety. Either way, it is probable that being known as the leader of the followers of Jesus, Paul, now in his mid to late sixties, was arrested under the trumped-up charge of ordering the fire, tried and condemned. Second Timothy chapter 4. Almost his last recorded words were, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So Saul of Tarsus, who had become the apostle to the Gentiles, was executed shortly before Nero's suicide in AD 68. As David had said in mourning for another Saul so long before, the beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of battle? The second of Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 to 27. Two years later, Jerusalem fell under the assault of Titus. In conclusion, 1. Acts is definitely an inspired record, a masterly account of all things brought to Luke's remembrance by the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 26. 2. Acts must have given enormous help and encouragement to succeeding generations of brethren and sisters who suffered the bitterness of cruel persecution from state authorities and the church. 3. We should appreciate that, as Jesus Christ laid down his life for our redemption, other men too have hazarded their lives to give us the hope we have. We must value their sacrifice for us and be prepared to do the same for our brethren, though thankfully we are not called upon today to do so in such a dramatic way. Fourthly, Acts opens in chapters 1 and 2 with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It closes with chapters referring to the resurrection of saints. Resurrection is an essential and fundamental truth at the centre of the hope of the gospel. 5. Acts emphasises the restoration of Israel and the hope of Israel. Our salvation is bound up inseparably with the restoration of the Jews who are still beloved for the Father's sakes. And so all Israel shall be saved. Romans 11, verses 26 to 28. 6. At the centre of Acts is the record of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. The Council concluded that neither Jew nor Gentile believers can be saved by works of law, but only by faith in and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, circumcision in the flesh and keeping the law of Moses is unnecessary. This was a critically important conclusion for us because it opened the way for Gentiles to be saved according to God's purpose. 7. The arguments of Peter, Stephen and Paul before their accusers and the legal authorities are clear, unambiguous, powerful 
They spake with boldness, showing a comprehensive grasp of Old Testament scripture. Let us give ourselves to the reading of the word, so that like Paul we're able to say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 1 verse 16. And lastly, number eight, above all, the book of Acts shows us what to preach and how to preach it. This is God's way, and we cannot improve upon it. Mm -hmm.